All righty, welcome to a very special Saturday Night Fever edition of our call-in gatherings here. Gatherings, of course, of experts. Everybody here listening is, by definition, an expert, so we thank you for gathering with us. Uh, decided to do this on an unusual time scale, or I don't know why I just complicated that wording. We decided to do it on a Saturday night because <laughs> we just, I don't know what, I'm, how, what the hell I'm talking about. I'm sounding like delusional or something. We decided to do it on a Saturday night because for sort of uninteresting logistical reasons, we, uh, both Richard and I, uh, weren't able to get it together for our standard uh, Thursday night schedule. So here we are. And uh, Richard, uh, how's it going? Are you still out in the heartland of America no. hunting down spies with a marginal presidential candidate? No, man, I spent like, uh, you know, I spent like 12 hours in, you know, Southern Ohio and that was enough time for me. So yeah, I went down there, uh, did a podcast. Real fast. Oh, you, so you really, you really, you really, you really uh, immersed yourself in the uh, local environment. Yeah, I met an old friend. We had lunch. I went to the I went to the um, the hotel. Um, went to Vivek's campaign headquarters. Got some uh, got some stickers. Uh, did the podcast. Uh, had lunch with a friend, and then yeah, back to the airport. Wait, so you had a hotel room for the night, and you only stayed in Columbus for a total of twelve hours? How does that work? Uh, well, no, I mean I'm I'm counting like uh, let's see. So I arrived at like two a.m. on Thursday. And I was back at the airport at, yeah, 3 p.m. Uh, so, yeah, I was uh, about 12 hours. Yeah, so you and I have much different philosophies over about how to uh, handle travel like that. Because my logic is always, if I'm in Columbus anyway, why would I bother rushing around to, like, get back home as quickly as uh, possible? I'll sort of lengthen the trip. Yeah, and I was going to say, it's because, like, you actually have dependents and people who rely on you, whereas I'm just a total scumbag who can think only of myself. Does your uh, ruthlessly kind of uh, uncompromising utilitarian calculus still tell you that having a family is worth it, even though it makes travel and stuff so much less pleasant? Just clone yourself, then. I mean, they cloned that one sheep in the 60s or something, and supposedly that was 60s. it. I don't know. It, I was, like the, it was like the night I heard about it when I was a kid. It was like the 1990s. Was it? Oh, okay. Maybe it was the 90s. Yeah, yeah it was, was the 90s. Kid. Right. Dolly the, Dolly the sheep, right? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I thought 60s. So, you know why I said 60s? Because I, for whatever reason, got the song What's My Age Again by Blink-182 <laughs> stuck in my head. I never was ever even like into Blink-182 or to like pump like pop rock or something, but obviously I knew the song. So I just was, uh, I, I listened to it recently on YouTube and then was getting like fed Blink-182 stuff in my algorithm. And apparently the lead singer who, uh, Tom DeLonge, I think that's how you pronounce it, D-E-L-O-N-G-E, who left the band for a while and I guess just came back. 
is like legitimately some sort of pioneer in the field of UFO disclosure. And it seems a little nutty. Like a, a clip came up of him on Joe Rogan in 2017 where you could tell Joe Rogan is like kind of skeptical of the veracity of what he's saying in terms of how he has had all these rendezvous with government officials and aeronautics engineers and people who were involved in like the Roswell incident and stuff. But then it turns out that a lot of what he was saying he was doing like through his company was actually borne out by the facts. Like he actually did has gotten like Pentagon contracts and he actually did facilitate or like his group facilitated the sort of breakthroughs uh, article that was published in the New York Times in December of 2017 that for the first time reported on the Pentagon having had this unit dedicated to uh, UFO research that kind of opened, and that sort of opened the spigot of UFOs being treated as a more mainstream subject of, of interest. So I don't know. That's why I, and, and I, on a podcast, he said that, like he mentioned Dolly the Sheep and he said it was from the 60s. And so I don't, for some reason, I just repeated that unthinkingly. You know, they've got some interesting interests. I was watching the uh, Tiger King back when that was a thing a few years ago. And uh, they had like a Tiger King, uh, like they had a show for like a, a recap, like where they interviewed people about the series. And I don't know which Blink-182 guy it was, but one of the Blink-82 guys was just like there commenting on Tiger King for some reason. Really? Yeah, they're just, they're just men of many. <laughs> yeah. it, it, I, my guess is that it was probably Tom DeLonge because it seems like he has a... Uh, wider array of interest maybe than some of the other band members which is why he left for a while to like focus on his pentagon contracting business which who the hell knows how that developed exactly but like apparently like he was he says and i i can't like confirm with 100 percent certainty that everything he's saying is accurate on in terms of like what he's been involved in and what his company's been involved in but Company, Amazingly company, enough, some a, a bunch of it was borne out later by facts that came out, such as like these contracts, which are public record and so forth. So I don't know, maybe there was some. What do they do? Uh, he, he, it's a, it's like a it's like an entertainment production company, and apparently he was sought out by elements of the government in order to be like the liaison for the sort of calibrated um, disclosure of different UFO-related information, at least in terms of, like, entertainment products. And in the course of, you know, I don't know, organizing that, he hired a bunch of former, you know, security state officials, including some, some people who he claims were, like, at the very highest echelons of, like, um, government research on UFO subjects, and he's helped, he like, you know, facilitated the, this, uh, pro, like provision of information to the New York Times in 2017 about this Pentagon, um, UFO research unit. And I, I don't know what else he does exactly. I mean, I, this, that, this popped up for me. This like came onto my radar because like in, lo in looking into Blink 182 random stuff, I came across an article which show, which, uh, <laughs> reported that he, his emails were found, were leaked in the WikiLeaks dump of John Podesta's emails in 2016 because he had been in communication with John Podesta about their like mutual interest in UFOs. And then John Podesta was going to participate in his movie. And, you know, it's just crazy. I mean, and like I would be inclined to kind of dismiss it as like the rantings of somebody who's not especially 
Right, well, but, you know, as the years went by, like, a lot of the stuff that he said he was doing and like, would be happening actually was borne out. So, I don't know. Just a weird tangent I went on. Um, so, anyway, Richard, uh, what did you make of your trek to Columbus overall? You met with this nominal presidential candidate who, I mean, I almost hesitate to call him that in any kind of earnest <laughs> way. Well, who are you to decide who is a president? I'm no one to, but I, I mean, I would just, as I would say that about Marianne Williamson or whatever, like I, I reserve the right to be snidely dismissive of him, but maybe I can be convinced otherwise if you explained your experience in a positive light. Yeah, yeah. Vivek, right? What's his full name? Vivek Ramaswamy. Mm-hmm. And, and so he's, um, yeah, I mean, he's like bringing people into life. Ohio to do his podcast. Um, people who he thinks are interesting and have ideas. He's really interested in the civil rights law stuff. Um, he really wanted to dig deep into that, so we did like seventy minutes. And you know, he's been to law school. He's been to law school too. He was in law school about the same time I was in law school. So you know, he could. Talk How old about is he? Intelligently. Uh, he's only like thirty-seven or something. Okay. Uh, let's see, Vivek, or let's see, Vivek, uh, age. Actually, I, I want to know, I'm wondering, because I just said he was the same age as me because we were in law school same time, but it doesn't mean we're the same age. And you're uh, 38, he, right? Oh, he is 37. Um, okay. And he was born on, yeah, he was born like three weeks before me. Uh, okay. So, uh, he, uh, uh, yeah, so like he was he was interested in stuff. His big thing is like being anti-woke, right? He wrote a book called Woke Age. He makes it's so uh, novel. That's why I named, that was the inspiration <laughs> for my naming The Room this, because like, it's so just so refreshing that somebody's finally willing to come out and tell conservative audiences that they're against wokeness. Um, yes, many people do do that. Although, I mean, they've shown very little interest in sort of the policies um, that are behind this stuff. So Vivek, to his credit, is showing some interest in that. Um, yeah, we talked for 70 minutes and, um, yeah, um, you know, I had to go back to the airport soon after, after that. But, no, he's doing it for real. He has a real campaign headquarters. Um, you know, he's got like a big, like a, he's got a, he's got a building that looks like it was like, it's like a converted old farm, uh, out there in Ohio. And he's got, you know, I saw like a dozen or so, or maybe more, uh, staffers, um, got a lot of rooms, got, you know, the podcast production is, you know, is uh, high quality. They have, you know, cameras and lights and, uh, fancy bikes and all of that production guys. Uh, yeah. You know, a presidential campaign, quote unquote, is a nice auspice to run like a new media operation where you can have a podcast, you can hang out, you can be a pundit on TV, etc. I mean, look, he's not alone in using the vehicle of a presidential campaign to do that sort of self-aggrandizing PR stuff. It's, it's rational for him to do it if he wants to expand his public profile. I mean, the reason why like 20 plus Democrats ran in 2020 was not because, you know, Seth Moulton, whose name you probably don't even know, or Tim Ryan... Or uh, you know, even Bill De Blasio thought that they had a like, legitimate chance to be the Democratic nominee. I, I think it's these a great opportunity do, to expand your profile. I think these guys do have. Um, I think these guys go in there thinking they're going to win. Now, you know, historically, someone uh, coming out of you know nowhere, not doing well in the polls at this point. I don't know if you saw the thing I tweeted about the New York Times article. Basically, most of the time, the person who's like leading in the polls now, or one of the top two people in the polls, like right now, like at this point in the campaign before it even started, that's usually the person who gets the nominee, right? So someone who's not like polling as well as Trump or DeSantis getting the nominee at this point would be very, very historically rare. So someone who's at like zero, which like Vivek is at, right. um, you know, the probability of that happening. Jimmy Carter, not- I think that actually applies to, but you know, so you could find some exceptions, but you know, you're right yeah. in the yeah. main. 
And so, um, like Jimmy yeah, Carter so. was virtually totally unknown in 1975 when like he first started running in the primaries. Like he like he would actually go and like stay in people's random people's houses in Iowa and stuff because like he didn't have the resources to campaign. But anyway, yeah, yeah. But Vivek says he's in it to win it, so you know I'll take, <laughs> okay. I'll take him at his word. I'll take him at his word. Well, what else is he going to say? I'm not going to assume he's just you know trying to boost. His no, brain. I mean I, I should I should clarify when I give that sort of cynical interpretation of these sorts of presidential campaigns. I'm not necessarily discounting that the people in question could actually, on some level, think that they may have some chance of winning the election that they're trying to claim that they want to win. But there's like a multiplicity of potential incentives, right? So the downside risk for him is really not that great because even if like, he has a 0.5% chance of becoming the Republican nominee and it turns out he doesn't become the, no, the, the nominee, then he still benefits from the exposure and the notoriety and all the everything else that comes with the adoption of the label of presidential candidate. So it's not as though it's like 100% cynical and he's like just faking his declarations that he's in it to win it. It's just that there's like a, a range of other potential incentives that could play a role in motivating why people would choose to do this. Yeah, I think so. Uh, it, you know, if you're if you do too badly, if your campaign fills out like that badly, I don't know. Maybe it's uh, maybe it's, uh, like he could have ran for another office. Like you know, if you want to just be in the game, I mean, he could have ran for something else. Um, but no, he's going all in for president. So uh, no, yeah, I mean, I can mean, you can you think of a presidential candidate in like the past two cycles, two or three cycles, who even if they underperformed or did badly? Um, Ended up having a lower stature or ended up having, like, their political interests or PR interests, like, seriously damaged? Or were they able to leverage what they did achieve into something that they pursued subsequently? Jeff Jeff Bush, Rudy Giuliani, and I mean, those were something. Uh, Well, well, I mean, but those are two good examples, right? I mean, Jeb Bush, I don't think his – Jeb Bush is the household name now. I mean, he's still on – he was a retired – former governor of Florida then, and he is today, and yet he's now, like, he's one a, of the... He's a, he's a, he was seen as, like, the next leader of the Republican Party, and now he's a punchline. Now he has zero influence anywhere. He was seen as, like, if he would have just had a not running, people would have been like, oh, if Jeb would have ran, he would have been the nominee. He could have been, like, an elder statesman in the party. He could have become a senator or something for Florida, but that's what he wanted. Um, uh, no, I don't know. Well, talk, take, take Marco Rubio, Julia, right? Yeah. Marco Julia. Rubio. Marco Rubio was the favorite of the conservative punditocracy in 2016. They thought that he was this reformocon, meaning he like read Raihan Salam and Ross Dothat's book about how to reform the Republican Party in circa you know after the 2012 election, and he was had all these like great ideas for how to revitalize the GOP coalition and blah 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 blah, and then he you know basically crashed and burned. And uh, got neutered by Trump, and then what ended up happening with with Rubio? Well, he's now one of the most prominent United States senators. He's the chairman of the Senate Foreign uh, Senate uh, Intelligence Committee, and you know he's one of you know if you if you listed a if you made a list of like ten nationally prominent Republicans that people are more likely than not familiar with, he's going to be on that list. So I just don't think it really damaged no, Rubio that he lost right. to Trump. And Jeb and Giuliani, they started out uh, like they started out as like people thought they were. They had a great chance. Somebody who had, nobody thinks has a chance. I don't know what they lose uh, by running for president. 
Um, well, people thought Rubio had a great chance. He, that's why he consolidated like Republican yeah. intelligence. I'm not, not saying it's always bad, but you said you could you think of any example where somebody uh, ran and you know they, they ended up in more state politically. And I just gave you like you know a few examples. Um, yeah, but, I don't know. I don't know if I really buy it with Giuliani either. I mean, he still retains a <laughs> massive public profile that was burnished in part by his running by his being the you know front runner for a number of months in that Republican primary in 2008. And, you know, he was the like, chief counselor to Trump. What did he do after that? Try to, you know, try to overthrow an election. I mean, he, he disappeared for like 12 years and then was part of the Trump, you know, uh, reach up. Trump almost made him secretary. He made of tons of money. Life. He like did consult. I mean, like, he, he founded Giuliani consultancy. Yeah. But I, I think, I, you know, I, I, okay. I don't want to argue. I, 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 yeah. you know, I don't, I don't think, no, I, got I think it. you're right. I think mostly it does. Uh, it does uh, help you to run, uh, to run for president. Um, I'll tell you one good thing about Vivek, which shows character. Um, his book, he wrote that book, Woke Inc., and I uh, was commissioned to write a book review for American Affairs. And it was a very, mm. like, not very nice book review. I was like, this is like, you know, all these ideas are, like, wrong, and, you know, they're not going to work. And he ignored these better ideas that he should have uh, should have adopted. And then, like, um, you know, some, you write a not very good, uh, you not very positive book review. Most people are not going to like you. But then Vivek, who mm. like had a mutual friend, reached out to me and like wanted to talk about it. So this is a man of character, is, is what I'm telling you. He's got what it takes to change the country. No, yeah, that's it was, it was a, it was a, it was a, it was an ad, it was an admirable thing. So I respect. No, that's laudable. I mean, if it if the re- if review is in American Affairs, I don't I have I didn't haven't read it. And I didn't even know that you did that. But like I have written for American Affairs, and I would know that, you know, it's not going to be a personally derogatory review if it appears in American affairs. Like, it's like you're not going to be attacking him personally um, or you're not going to no, be taking cheap shots. Not. It's going to be a substantive critique, which you would hope, like, you know, rational adults can deal with in a way that doesn't result in them having, like, a hissy fit. Yeah, you'd hope, but they don't, you know, they obviously don't always. Uh, so, yeah, he did. So, uh, well, what did you make of him, like, on a personal level? Because like, when he announced his campaign... Um, I saw that, like, you know, he appeared on Fox and there was a FoxNews.com headline saying, you know, presidential candidate pledges to repeal affirmative action on his first day in office. And I, I said to myself, wait, what does that mean? And I mean, that's so vague. Like, how would a no, president no, just, uh, no, 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 I, let me finish. That doesn't mean he would just yeah. like, how could you just unilaterally as president, like rescind affirmative action? And I looked into it a little more and he was talking about that, you know, uh, executive order under Lyndon Johnson that I think, you know, you've probably tried to bring attention to. So did he yeah. get that idea from you as to like what he would actually repeal to get rid yeah. of affirmative yeah. action? Yeah, yeah, we, we talked about the affirm. Yeah, it's one of those things I critiqued the first. I should have talked about this. Uh, so that was in the that was in the review. I, I don't know if I mentioned the executive order, but I did talk about it at some point. And yeah, he learned that and he adopted. Uh, yeah, he adopted the idea. Um, so yeah, he has a specific thing, and he's trying to do like I think he's trying to do like his distinguishing thing is trying to like know something about policy. So when the podcast comes out, he said it might come out in a few days. You'll see that he's more. Um, you know, much more in-depth than you think for a presidential candidate. Like, I couldn't imagine Trump or DeSantis going uh, that in-depth. Like, he wanted to know, oh, this executive order led to this, and then the Brigade administration did this and that. And, like, you know, I was, my book is going to be on all this stuff, so I was able to talk about that. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, like, yeah, he wants to be informed. I mean, uh, some, of his, some of his foreign policy uh, takes and these other things are sort of, you know, 
conventional Republican. It seems like it seems like he's a work. He, he admits, says it seems like he's like a work in progress as far as like developing like how he thinks about every single issue. He's got like a few core things. Like he's you know very anti woke. He's like uh, pro capitalist, and uh, you know he's got these basic things: American, positive American identity. But then anti woke and pro capitalist. Wow, I mean that's such a departure from what you'd expect for a republic, an ambitious Republican. Yeah, well, you know, Trump, Trump <laughs> loves entitlements now. He loves entitlements and hates trade, so I think Vivek is uh, distinguished from him on that. Did he give any, um, did he, uh, did you touch at all on foreign policy stuff, or was that just sort of a uh, set of issues that probably, didn't? We talked a little bit about it afterwards. We have a mutual friend, uh, Chris Nicholson, who I've talked about her before. Um, Nicholson yeah. actually went to law school with him. Uh, and Nicholson's, like, very triggered by his um, Ukraine takes, his Ukraine takes are basically. Oh, it's going to leave them unprepared for China. Yeah, Vivek is very, uh, uh, very hawkish on China. And um, I just mentioned, like, oh, you know, about the Ukraine stuff. He's like, oh, I just think we can't afford to spoil it. He just, you know, said something really quickly. You can see the tweets. Go to his uh, Twitter. You know, he says stuff yeah. like, you know, we got to stand up for China. We got to you know, do stuff Mexican cartels. But no, we, we didn't really have much stuff to talk about it. Yeah. Um, so speaking of China, I feel like. I don't want to over dramatize it or over interpret what's going on, but I do feel a pretty strong intuition that the past month in particular, so, or maybe the past, I don't know, six weeks, beginning whenever the whole Chinese spy balloon incident started flaring up, has been a sort of watershed period for the trajectory of US China relations and political attitudes toward. China among both Republicans and Democrats and, and so forth. It's just been a very, what seems like potentially a determinative period in shaping the kind of future course of what the, um, you know, the dynamic between China and the U.S. will be uh, in the future. Um, part of this is informed by my experience at that Munich security conference. I'm still writing about this because it, I've, you know, I've had to be pretty careful and uh, figuring out how to correctly report some of the things that I came across. And I don't want, I don't mean to be unnecessarily cryptic, but you know, there's some sensitive info. So, you know, so it takes a while. Um, but, you know, I personally observed an instance of what seems, this is not yet reported anywhere, I, you know, I personally reserve, observed an instance of what seemed to be a bit of a, or not just a bit, what seemed to be a blatant sort of confrontation that certain U.S. officials like engineered against Chinese repre- Chinese government representatives at a function, almost as though that they were trying, almost as though they were trying to, um, you know, publicly berate. China to the face of somebody that was representing the Chinese government, okay, uh, uh, vis-a-vis Ukraine stuff in particular. Uh, um, wasn't there a news story about this, that they cornered, Lincoln cornered the... Yeah, yeah but that, 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 that's a different thing. That happened simultaneously, right? Simultaneously to the thing that I saw, okay, which I have, I'm, I'm, I'm being a bit evasive in describing until I get the thing, you know, ready to publish, uh, simultaneously to that, Blinken, yeah, went, or, uh, you know, they tried to, basically the U.S. delegation at this Munich security conference proactively sought out a meeting with Wang Li, 
one of the chief diplomats of China. I thought his title was foreign minister, but apparently it's not. It's like commissioner or something or other. It's like a party position. Um, you know, but, you know, essentially he's the foreign minister of China um, because there had been no real communications, apparently, between Blinken and Wang Li ever since the Chinese spy balloon episode, which resulted in Blinken the night before he was scheduled to depart, canceling a long planned trip to China. Because, you know, why would you want to go and have diplomatic engagement during a diplomatic crisis or a diplomatic um, flare up? Uh, you know, the, that's certainly not within the purview, apparently, of the chief diplomat of the U.S. What you do is, you know, under those circumstances, you want to just shut off di- diplomacy. So that was Blinken's posture. And so they so they re, uh, had occasion to meet for the first time after that episode at the Munich conference. And basically they just used, I mean, the U.S. delegation and Blinken himself used this meeting with Wang Li that they sought out as an opportunity to scold him and to... Uh, uh, plant this intelligence now that they claim they just recently acquired on China supposedly being on the cusp of providing lethal arms to uh, Russia for use in Ukraine. They didn't provide any accompanying evidence for that claim, um, which they went around in the U.S. did to different countries' delegations at the conference and basically just pushed this narrative as like their chief prerogative for their whole presence at the security conference. Um, so, and, and then, you know, Blinken goes on TV immediately afterwards and says, you know, don't worry, my fellow Americans, what we used this meeting for was like just like a PR opportunity to scold Wang Yi and let him know that the United States is not going to tolerate any provision of arms to Russia. I mean, clearly no attempt at any kind of conciliatory entreaty. Um, it was just like a, a an ambush, essentially. And, you know, I saw another uh, manifestation of that at, at, at the conference. Okay, that's what I'll say for now. Um, and yeah, it just seems like it's, it's, things are coming to a head very rapidly to the point where just this past week, you know, if you look at some of the congressional hearings that happened between Tuesday and, and Thursday, you know, I just, you know, collected a, just a few clips of uh, Republicans in particular, but, you know, Democrats seem to have no objection outright declaring. Tony Gonzalez, it's a, con- a Republican congressman from Texas, said it outright. We're at war with Russia. He just got back from Taiwan. He's talking to, he's like questioning some general at some Homeland Security subcommittee hearing, saying, "We're at, make no mistake, we're at war with Russia, et cetera, et cetera." Um, and I, you know, I've tweeted a bunch of other clips to this effect with really jarring rhetoric, where. It's more overt than I can recall it ever being with, with you know, major, you know, nationally known, prominent politicians just saying that the United States is at war with Russia or variations of that that are, you know, close enough. And I don't know. It just seems like no, there's no real debate or there's no real there's no desire on the part of anybody to, you know, uh, hit the brakes or it just seems like everybody's content to just let it spiral out of control. I don't know if you've observed that or if you've been following it enough to, to observe it, but I just wonder what you think. Uh, so you saw something that was like that Blinken conversation yes. yourself that you're going to write yeah. about? And how, how did you see this? You were at the... At the I ended up at a function that <laughs> um, journalists probably were not welcome to attend, and so I'm the only one that I know of who, who 
documented this particular exchange yet. Yeah. Breaking news, like a uh, true journal. Well, not yet. I have to, you know, gotta, I'll publish it when it's ready. But yeah, it's going to be news that has not yet been reported anywhere. It is, um, yeah, I just saw that clip you showed of uh, that, what's that woman's name, Luna or something? Yeah, she's a freshman Republican from Florida. She's uh, a former Miss, she's like a beauty star. I mean, her, an Instagram influencer who I guess the Republicans wanted to. I mean, a lot of these women have like, uh, are acting backgrounds, like uh, Bulbert too. I mean, they, they, uh, a lot of these, uh, anyways, that's a different topic. But uh, yeah, I mean, the, the anti-intervention thing for Republicans, I mean, it's sort of their muscle memory. They're not comfortable unless they're attacking some kind of foreign country, right? So the anti-war stuff can't be just anti-war stuff. The anti-Syria stuff can't be anti-Syria. Even the anti-AT-Ukraine can't just be anti-AT-Ukraine. It has to be justified in attacking China or like attacking the cartels now. That's become like their their big thing, you know, going to war with the cartels. Um, and so, yeah, this is a real, this is a, I think a, a really... You know, so I think this is just something sort of that they need. You see that they, uh, you see that uh, uh, Bannon is now fighting with Elon Musk over this. Uh, Bannon is funded by some like you know some uh, Chinese billionaire, right? And yeah, like, uh, yeah. He's going, Musk is like they have a cult of personality around Musk now. And the fact that you know he's going after Musk for this shows. I mean, the China what are they? Wait, what are they fighting over exactly? Uh, so I, it started out bad. It was like, oh, you know, Elon Musk is bought and paid for by the, you know, the CCP. You would take money from Hitler, sir. You know, he has this video. Uh, and then Elon is that Musk what Bannon said? Yeah, and Matt Gates, uh, Matt Gates uh, just uh, showed the Bannon video and then said, hey, uh, this is what Bannon said uh, about Musk thoughts. And, you know, Gates didn't comment one way or the other. And then Musk responded to uh, Gates. Um, and it was just like, oh, I used to think he was evil and smart. You know, Bannon was evil and smart. Now I just think he's evil or something like that. Uh, and then, you know, they, so they, they have this feud now. Um, yeah, over China. I mean, it does appear that it's, it's not just like an ego thing. Maybe it is. But like, you know, they both want to be like sort of leaders of like online right wing world. Uh, but the but the uh, uh, but no, it seems like there's a legitimate thing here on China where like Musk actually like doesn't want to fight China. You never hear him criticize China. People critic think it's like a business thing. You know, maybe he just doesn't care about fighting China. But that's definitely like not something he's interested in doing. Right. Uh, that is like makes him sort of, you know, despite him being like, you know, the king of the right wing Twitter now, uh, you know, this is sort of like one thing where he's not with them on. Uh, and so, yeah, this China thing is pretty, you know, pretty central. I mean, it's every foreign policy thing is we have to focus on China. We have to focus on China. Um, it's, uh, you know, the anti-war stuff. I mean, there's just, there's nothing, there's none of that now. It's just, it's just prioritization. Yeah. And, and one big component of this, at least in terms of domestic political dynamics is that whereas maybe six months ago, you could have reasonably said, I might've disputed it somewhat at the time or like questioned some of the premises, but like you could have been, it would have been reasonable to say something to the effect of Republicans are most kind of zealously antagonistic toward China, whereas Republicans, uh, whereas Democrats are fixating in an analogous way on, on Russia, right? So you could kind of like draw a distinction between which country drew the ire of either party or like which par country like animated the well, loathing of both parties. Now I feel, now I think, I think that they're very quickly merging to the point that there's really no intelligible distinction any longer between Russia and, and China in terms of like claiming that you're against one but not the other, right? And that in part has to do with Russia and China genuinely forging closer ties um, but also this attempt by, you know, the U.S. to bind the two together, 
Um, so just for, as an example, I, I've noticed that on the rants that Democrats now give just as a reflex where they try to bring every debate about every issue under the sun back to Putin and how like Republicans are somehow cozying up to Putin. I mean, they still use this ridiculous line. Jamie Raskin and Jim McGovern, two Democrats in the House, were commenting on this. You know, basically it was a messaging bill that Republicans passed to curtail the ability of federal government officials to censor social media. Jamie Raskin, people can look at my Twitter feed. I just posted the the clip uh, like an hour ago. Jamie Raskin went on this unhinged rant about how this is all about like helping Putin, but he's just as now vehement about throwing in China into the mix, saying like this is about like, uh, you know, enabling Russia, you know, both Putin and Xi to do active measures against the United States. So I noticed that the Democrats are like increasingly emphasizing their own animosity towards China on a roughly comparable sort of a in a roughly comparable tenor to how they talk, they've always been talking about Russia or have been for like the past several years. Um, uh, what's that thing on his head, R- uh, Raskin? Uh, he's undergoing uh, cancer treatment, so it's something to do with you know, it's the chemotherapy oh, okay. thing. Uh, yeah, the Russia, the, uh, the the yeah, the China, the China Russia thing. Yeah, they are. Um, you know, it's I don't know, like the. The China thing seems much with a much more all encompassing. It's like they buy our farmland, you know. They do this, they do that. It really is. They do seem to like you know the, the Russia thing. It seems pretty limited to sort of Ukraine and like you know like oh not having Putin propagandize us. It's like you know these like sort of discrete sort of issues. Um, even though they genuinely you know they hate Russia and maybe they, you know they hate the project too. But the Russia the China thing is an all consuming paranoia. Right, it's like a Republican will run on you know China's the greatest you know Bannon like you know one of the biggest figures on the right is basically saying China's the you know Hitler you know they're worse than Hitler or the biggest enemy we've ever had in our history. I mean, just really really uh, crazy stuff. And what they want to like you know have like the entire military strategy like meager on China. Like the Democrats aren't saying like oh we need to pull troops from everywhere else because we have to focus on Russia. Right, <laughs> it's just like it's one priority out of many different things. Uh, yeah. I mean, the Democratic fixation on Russia has been pretty close to all-consuming for the past six years. They thought that Russia, by way of Vladimir Putin, subverted the entire American government and installed Manchurian candidate-style the world's greatest fascist menace into the presidency. That wasn't all-consuming? Um, I mean, no, because it was like, you know, it was like, let's investigate Trump is probably, you know, well, I don't care. I, you know, the comparison's not, uh, they're, like, bot, they're bots are everywhere on social media propagandizing us and they're trying to create fissures in American society yeah, I, and exacerbate this, tensions. This like, and yeah, this is it was a pretty holistic, it was a pretty holistic paranoia and it continues it, today. It I was think. pretty, it was, um, it was a paranoia. Yes. I mean, you can, um, Look, I mean, uh, you know, they really, I think they genuinely believe that Russia uh, was behind WikiLeaks. Um, you know, I'm not sure if that's true or not, but that's what they, that's what they believe. So, like, it's not, it's not a crazy thing to think that the Russia influenced the course of the election, right? So it wasn't like, it wasn't, the whole thing wasn't completely made up. Um, <sighs> okay, well, we don't have to litigate, we don't have to relitigate Russiagate. The point is that, you know, whatever the different degrees of paranoia were that existed as directed at Russia versus at uh, China over the past couple of years, they seem to have pretty clearly merged into the same sort of just blob of paranoia that now consumes everything. I think you're, I think you're right on the democratic side, but I think the, um, 
I think on the on the no, I mean, the, but on the on the Republican side, I mean, like a lot of the rhetoric, and you're right, not in Congress yet, but a lot of the rhetoric is basically going. You know, a lot of these you know sort of influencers are going towards the idea that you know we have to focus on China because Russia's not that big of a deal. But you're right, on my like, Congress is sort of bipartisan. But this is the way it's always been, right? It's always been sort of the bipartisan consensus has been Russia scary, China scary. The China becoming like a main focus of like right wing politics is sort of new. Uh, but this, but this other stuff, yeah, I think it's been there for a while, and it's it's accelerating. I mean, there's no, there's also no. Uh, there used to be some like Tom Friedman types who'd say, "Oh, China's doing sensible things." Partly, it's because of China's, uh, you know, their policies haven't looked this smart in the last few years. Uh, but yeah, but there's no like wake of like technocratic sort of quasi pro China, which you would have seen, you know, 15 years ago. That's completely not too. So there's right. no like, pushback on it. And I think that was done away with with, you know, finality once this sinister alliance with Russia became, like, one of the chief features of, of China that the intelligentsia now is, like, uh, aware of and monitoring and chronicling. So, yeah, there would have been Tom Friedman types and other sort of technocrats who might have maybe urged a bit of accommodation to China or, or tr- taken a more, you know, conciliatory line or, you know, focus on the economic uh, mutual benefits of the relationship and what have you. But now I think, you know, the the nail in the coffin of that whole line of analysis really has been how the Ukraine war has ended up, you know, subsuming the perceptions of China as well. I mean, Xi is apparently doing a state visit this coming week to to Moscow. Um, I mean, what do you think the reaction to that's going to be? I mean, so... It's uh, interesting. I mean, I wonder if you're actually going to get the thing where... I wonder if they're ever actually going to provide aid. I wonder if this is true and if they're actually going to do it because it's interesting how uh, China sort of, you know, so cautious of this thing on the Ukraine thing. Uh, but that's interesting. I don't know if she was going to visit uh, Russia right now. That's an interesting, interesting timing. I wonder if they're pulling out. Uh, I might be messing up the. I might be mixing up the timing. I don't know if it's this coming week for sure. I do know that it's planned in the near future. Actually, Lukashenko, the leader of Belarus. Uh-huh. Um, right before the opening of the Chinese parliament this past week, which is one of like their big sort of national political events, Lukashenko had a state visit to Beijing um, over the course of days. And, you know, one of the things they've discussed was the you know, military ties and, and what have you. And so there was speculation that maybe there's some sort of thought of establishing Belarus as like an intermediary for, for China to provision lethal armaments if it were to do that. Um, I actually don't think it's that far-fetched that China would actually potentially do it. Uh, Did you see China, by the way? Not that there's been evidence provided, but based on something that, again, I'm going to have to be cryptic about, based on something that I was told by somebody who who wouldn't have any reason to obfuscate about this, I do think that it's actually within the realm of possibility. I just think that the U.S. is playing this weird sort of instigator role where they're almost trying to create a self-fulfilling prophecy around China becoming some sort of co-belligerent in the war. Anyway, but it, it's it's sort of ambiguous. Did you see the um, uh, the story that everyone's freaking out about about China um, uh, working out the deal between Saudi Arabia and Iran for them to reach? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, uh, I talked about that with uh, on Greenwald's show last night. Yeah, it's um, and look, I mean, the reason why. Diplomacy is at a total standstill between the U.S. and Iran now is not because 
you know, the Biden administration happened to be such fervent supporters of the ability of Iranian women to not have to wear a veil or that the U.S. is like a feminist foreign policy like the Green Party of Germany, but because of the alleged commingling of Iran with Russia vis-a-vis the Ukraine war. I mean, the radicalism and the uh, stridency that the Ukraine war has spawned is now, you know, uh, leaching outward into all these disparate domains with Iran being one of them. Yeah, and I don't know what's going on here because the... um it's a very strange thing. Uh, like, I don't know, like, do Iran and Saudi Arabia need, like, China to tell them to talk to each other? It's like, it's, it seems like this is a PR thing. And it seems like Saudi Arabia and Iran, like, might be, I mean, China might all be sending a message to the to the United States. I don't know. I don't know what to make of the thing. Yeah, because, you know, Saudi Arabia, for the past year, has defied U.S. sort of exhortations to take a harder line against Russia. Um, remember over the summer, they basically just rebuked Biden in terms of the, um, oil price, uh, cap that Biden was demanding that, 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 uh, maybe I'm getting the economics of it wrong, but Biden made a demand of Saudi Arabia vis-a-vis the, uh, OPEC regulations to bring down gas prices in the U S and they refused, um, and Saudi Arabia has even been, you know, uh, sort of petitioning to potentially join this BRICS formation, you know, the Brazil, India, Russia, China, South Africa formation, um, and move even more decisively out of the orbit of, of the U.S. Um, so I don't know, was there an actual sort of diplomatic inroad made between Iran and Saudi Arabia that China to legitimately help to facilitate? I, I don't know. It's hard to say without knowing the backstory or the inside details, but I would think that there probably would have had to have been some bonafide diplomacy because it was only a few years ago that Iran was being accused of bombing Saudi state oil facilities, and Mohammed bin Salman was calling the Ayatollah Hitler. So, I mean, th- th- that takes probably some diplomatic effort to defuse, I would think, but wh- who knows? Yeah, yeah, the Saudi Arabians are doing something, you know, they're, they're in a sort of weird position where they're sort of uh, uh, sticking their thumb in the eye of the U.S. Um, yeah. Um, All right, so uh, one, one more quick topic and then we'll go to uh, calls. Um, and we don't have to spend that too long on this. But um, as you know, I, <laughs> I've been reading the new book of Ron DeSantis, who's on some sort of national tour apparently presaging a presidential run. I don't know that it's a done deal necessarily that he is going to run. I think it's probably more likely than not, but, you know, people change their mind on these sorts of things, and it's not anyway a uh, absolute certainty. But, you know, he's doing everything that you would expect him to do in the run-up to a potential presidential campaign. And uh, he put out a new book, which is, you know, it's kind of a standard sort of uh, blueprint for one of these pre-campaign books where he's touting that the... Um, example of Florida that the nation should emulate because it's this bastion of freedom or whatever. And, you know, that stuff I'm not as interested in because, like, I don't know, how many times can you rehash those 2020 COVID debates? That's not really my, my value. Like, I wanted to know what, he was, what if anything, he was saying about um, foreign policy 
because, you know, he's been obviously a state executive since 2019, so that hasn't been his main focus. But when he was in the House from 2013 to 2019, foreign affairs actually were one of his top focuses because, you know, he had a, quote, national security background. He was a JAG lawyer who had been deployed to Iraq. Um, uh, You know, he just basically traveled in kind of conventional Republican hawkish circles. And interestingly enough, I don't know if I never exactly realized this or what, but DeSantis also wrote a book in 2011 that really hasn't gotten all that much scrutiny. Um, This was you know, as he was preparing to run for the first time for the House, he was in his uh, early to mid-30s, and there's a fairly elaborate discussion of foreign policy in that book, mostly geared toward critiquing Obama at the time. Um, and really, it couldn't be more run-of-the-mill, just conventional Republican pablum, really, um, in terms of the foreign policy critiques of Obama, like he, he dwells on how Obama, you know, would meekly bow before foreign officials and like, you know, show the weakness of America and how Obama had this kind of like preternatural left wing antipathy for the American project and was reticent to project American power and blah, 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 blah. Um, you know, maybe most tellingly, one of the things that, DeSantis ridicules Obama for was opposing the Iraq war. (laughs) Uh, DeSantis is sort of careful not to come out and explicitly say, I hereby am endorsing the wisdom of George W. Bush invading Iraq in 2003, but he does everything but that, right? He he endorses the surge as the right decision in 2007 because he can contrast that with Obama because Obama, when he was running for president in 2008 in the primaries, opposed the surge, right? So it's all like a partisan, really, um, Jeremy ad. That's the purpose of this book. And, you know, he also invokes, like, how Obama's flouting the uh, legacy of the Founding Fathers by being too eager to, you know, wield expansive state power and not being mindful enough of, like, national defense and, you know, uh, dishonoring the legacy of Reagan and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I mean, the the long and short of it is, at least as far as what I've been able to see, is that it's just 100% conventional Republican hawkish boilerplate in 2011 – with regard to Iraq, with regard to Russia, with regard to Iran, Israel, you know, pretty much every major foreign policy issue. And then in this new memoir that came out just a couple days ago, the the, the stuff on Iraq, it's like mostly a personal, like memoiristic telling of his experience in Iraq, which is, you know, very sort of carefully kind of uh, cultivated in terms of what he's sharing, right? Because there might be some stuff there that it might be not the most... uh, Felicitous for him to be forthcoming about, but you know, but there's stuff where he goes through and you know he uh, he condemns the corporate media, so he imports like the term that's in vogue now back to 2004 and condemns the corporate media for like being too aggravated about Abu Ghraib, and he doesn't really stake out any kind of oppositional stance to the Iraq War. He kind of like treads a line where Trump was on one extreme in 2016, right, where he, like, goes on the stage in South Carolina with Jeb Bush next to him and declares that George W. Bush lied the country into war. DeSantis clearly was a believer in the war effort, at least at a certain point. And so he takes this, like, middle ground position where he's, like, criticizing the criticism of the war but saying, oh, yeah, it turns out, like, that Wilsonian democracy 
didn't flourish in Iraq doesn't mean that he necessarily now, you know, retrospectively opposes the removal of Saddam Hussein, but there's some lessons to be learned. Uh, that's kind of like basically the the position he well, lands. It sounds like DeSantis is basically at every point uh, in his political career. It sounds like he's basically where the Republicans, like where Republican sort of energy is, right? He's uh, he joins the military. He's jag. He's you know part of the war on terror. In 2011, from what I hear, I haven't read this book. From what I hear, it's a big Tea Party book. It's about you know, uh, you know, it's about cutting government um, and all that, and it's about basically attacking um, you know Obama. Well, except in terms of national defense, yeah. Well, I, well, I mean, uh, but this was like it, this sounds like what they were saying on Fox News. In yeah, it's, yeah, it's a hundred percent. Like I, the way I put it was, it's nothing in that book that I, at least I've seen so far would be remotely inconsistent with the Mitt Romney presidential campaign in 2012 when he was running against Obama. It's like the same message. Uh, and then, but like without, it's out, but is it, it's like without the, it's not about building democracy or anything. Like there's nothing about that, right? That stuff is gone by 2011. Like Republicans. Uh, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't put forward a critique of like nation building or spreading democracy in the 2011 book. In the anyway, book that was released in last week, he does gesture at that in this okay. like non-committal way. Yeah, so there, I mean, there it's sort of a progression, right? And then in twenty, you know, twenty twenty or so, he's all about wokeness and you know fighting back against wokeness and you know sort of trying to hedge and haw in Ukraine, sort of like just say stuff like you know it can't be a black check, blank check, although he doesn't you know call him away. And Which is a totally anything. meaningless wow. statement. I mean, it's the same exact thing that Kevin McCarthy said in September that everybody flipped out about and made it seem like it was this firm declaration that under yeah, yeah. Kevin McCarthy's stewardship, the Republicans were going to yeah. rescind funding for Ukraine, which is just nonsense. Yeah. And, and then he's got, DeSantis the Chinese, repeats the same line. And he's worried about the Chinese Communist Party. He's worried about the Chinese buying, you know, farmland. Is he doing the farmland thing? He's doing some stupid thing. He's closing the Confucius. Confucius and yeah, I sent, you a, I sent you an excerpt from yeah. uh, his, his, newer, his new book, where he's saying, you know, I don't know. I, I mean, I'll, I'll read the quote out because it's, it's funny. Um, he says, uh, policy, blah, 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 blah. the CCP has been very adept at infiltrating institutions in the U.S. to wield influence and condu conduct espionage. Policy at the federal level needs to do a be much better job of combating CCP influence across a range of institutions. In Florida, at least, we take the CCP's influence very seriously. So he's letting everyone know that even as governor of Florida and focused on state issues, he's made a point to stick it to the Chinese Communist Party and, you know, deprive them of the ability to, I don't know what, buy farmland outside Jacksonville or something. Yeah. So, yeah, the point is, I mean, this guy is, um, he's a politician, right? He's, he's moving, he's moving with whatever, wherever the party's going. Um, and, you know, he seems like, you know, look, there's more substantive stuff going on at the state level. I mean, he's doing stuff that's, you know, um, impressive to people who are anti-woke. Um, and, you know, he's got a, he's got majorities in the legislature in Florida, so he's able to do that, but, you know, he's shown a bit of vigor. So, you know, he's shown, I think, some talent and, and winning elections, too, and make, staying popular. I mean, there's, uh, you know, his 2022, uh, the results of Florida were very impressive, actually. So he's shown, he's shown some skill, and he seems like he's uh, otherwise basically a Republican politician uh, who's moving along with the times. I think that's sort of the dissenting thing. Yeah, I think he's probably above average uh, in terms of his just raw intelligence 
compared to most other Republicans. I mean, he seems to have written these books by himself. Yeah. I, mean, I, I, I don't know how he wouldn't have personally written the book, at least in 2011, when he had no public profile at all. I mean, he wasn't even in Congress yet. Um, because, he wasn't you know, in Congress? Some... What was he doing in 2011? In 2011, he was, like, getting ready to run for Congress in 2012. And so he wrote a book, right? That's just uh, the broadside against Obama to win a Republican primary. What the uh, team? Um, like, what, 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 how, why would it, why, how would he get a book deal? Like he had to be something. I don't know. It's a, it was a very small publishing house. I mean, it's actually just sort of hard to find a decent ebook copy on the internet. I, I, I eventually found one. Um, I don't know exactly what he was doing. I think he might, might have still been active duty military at that point. Uh, but I have to, I have to double check. He um, served as Special U.S. Assistant Attorney, uh, Middle District of Florida. So he was. Uh, he was like a U.S. Uh, uh, special. So he was like a U.S. attorney. He was appoint, appointed by the DOJ. Uh, he was appointed by um, the Bush administration, I guess. Uh, and he served until 2010. And I don't know. Yeah, the competing patients to say what he's what he was doing between 2010 and when he became uh, 2012 when he won the election. Yeah, uh, my guess is he was still. I mean, was he a U.S. attorney or was he a so military he was a attorney? attorney. attorney. No, he was a military attorney. But when he returned to the U.S. a year later, this is after... Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right, right. Yeah. U.S. Department of Justice appointed DeSantis to serve as a special U.S. assistant attorney for the U.S. Attorney's Office. Okay, office. yeah, so that's what he was doing, I guess. Yeah, um, so he was a federal appointee of some kind, okay. Sort of odd for a special assistant U.S. attorney to write a book. Oh, no, because he was discharged in 2010, so he wrote it in 2011. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he had to be doing something between 2010. I don't know what he was doing by 2010 and 2012, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, whatever the case may be, uh, he you know has the, a book out in the public record in 2011, and he has this other one in uh, 2023. And I don't know. I, I I understand why there's such a compulsion among some Republicans to like lionize the Florida stuff. I think a lot of it. I don't know. You probably are more are better versed in the ins and outs of it than than I am. I, I, my just kind of a baseline skeptical intuition is that some of the great triumphs that he's reputed to have achieved in Florida are a bit exaggerated and overblown. You know what my favorite anti-woke measure that he pushed through in Florida is? No. What is, which is your favorite? It was in 2020, you know, when the George Floyd protests were happening, he got, he got it. He pushed through a bill or in Florida to criminalize, protesting on highways that shuts down traffic, right? So increasing the criminal penalties for protesters disrupting traffic or blocking traffic on a highway. And then the next year, sure enough, there are protests that block traffic on Florida highways, particularly in Miami-Dade County. And you know who those protesters were? <laughs> Probably QAnon or something. No, they were... They were anti. They were Cuban protesters. They were. Remember, there was that little uh, burst of frenzy around supposedly some sort of uh, regime change maybe happening in Cuba in the summer of two thousand twenty-one. The, the Cuban expats that, had that, these, you know, pretty very aggressive bill. public public protests. That, that bill was thrown out in court, wasn't it? Was it? Yeah, I thought it was. Well, I think it was. Maybe it was, but I, I, I'm almost positive it was on the books when those protests were happening and the. Police took no action against the Cuban protests, which are obviously a key uh, Republican demographic in Florida. So that was that was yeah, what it used to be the most. Twenty twenty one is uh, unconstitutional. Like by, by okay. this guy Mark Walker, who's the same judge I think who uh, uh, struck down the uh, anti woke act. So yeah, the judges, uh, yeah, the judges are um, 
you know, push back on some of this stuff. But no, I think a lot of the stuff is real. I mean, I think there's a, uh, you know, the, 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 um, the, um, a lot of the DEI stuff, you know, that you could do, you could do stuff, you could do stuff on that. Um, the, uh, the, I mean, they took over, they did take over university. I mean, he did put Chris Rufo, um, he did put Chris Rufo on the board of a university. They did fire the DEI person and basically got rid of her academic department. Um, the, uh, uh, they're doing some things with the accreditation of the schools. Uh, they did a, you know, small school choice thing. Um, yeah, this, I mean, they're, they're, they are like, uh, um, yeah, I mean, this is basically within the realm of like what you expect a governor to do on this kind of stuff. Okay, maybe so. I'm sticking to my general rule that I've abided by since I've been somebody who's involved in the media in any capacity, which is just to, for my own purposes and what I prioritize in evaluating presidential candidates, uh, making it very much focused on on foreign policy because you know it's the thing that the republic that a president has the most unilateral control over and it's you know undercovered compared to kind of transient yeah. culture well, war fine. stuff so yeah that's fine you could you could care about foreign policy though sir. yeah you know, people could, other people can care about you know like trans disney princesses and stuff if they want <laughs> all right let's go to callers uh johnny gl how's it going hey guys how you doing all right. How are you? Yeah, you uh, uh, having the chat on this fine weekend. So uh, thanks for taking the time. Yeah. Um, you guys hit a lot of my foreign policy points that I was going to throw out there. You guys, um, but there's a couple others. I didn't hear about. Um, I didn't hear about a protest in Israel that actually made things awkward for Secretary Austin to fly in and out of. That was. I thought that was kind of interesting. That, Kind of caught wind of that. Yeah, so Austin Didn't this past week, Austin this past week went to Israel, right? It had a joint pre- a joint appearance with the his counterpart in the Israeli government, and simultaneously that there are these seemingly large scale protests against um, Netanyahu and, and Likud among like the liberal elements of Israeli society, uh, because the claim is he's neutering the independence of the judiciary. Is that about right? Yeah. It just seems interesting that it was significant enough to cut short a secretary of defense. Oh, the, his trip was cut short? Yeah, I think I saw he got cut short a day, and he had trouble leaving the airport. Yeah, okay. Now, it I, might I, have been just have, ridiculous think, levels of precaution around security. I mean, yeah, so Israel, is, it's, it's interesting because they have, like, demographic big issues and that the uh, religious and the ortho, ultra-Orthodox are basically becoming the uh, majority um, and the courts uh, are sort of this one thing that, you know, keeps sort of uh, – they took away, like, the privileges of the ultra-Orthodox study a few years ago and uh, avoid the uh, uh, military draft. And they, they do other things that, like, a lot of, like, uh, uh, religious right-wing people don't like. Um, and so this is, like, sort of the, uh, you know, the right-wing people sort of taking the power away from the courts – uh, to do this kind of, to do this kind of stuff to defend sort of the liberal society and yeah there's protests on the liberal side so it's actually it's, it's an interesting sort of demographic sort of upheaval in Israel this you know this uh, uh, these um, uh, issues are not going away I mean this is a long term demographic problem for Israel yeah and I I miss this but it is true that Austin apparently cut short his trip to Israel at the request of, or this was at least the statement that was put out publicly anyway, at the request of the Israeli Ministry of Defense, the trip was shortened and 
Austin did not even go to his originally planned meeting place. Um, they just had a uh, an availability at the airport, like on the tarmac, um, and Austin didn't go anywhere else in um, Tel Aviv where he was uh, scheduled to go as these uh, protests were underway, which is which is interesting. I actually didn't realize that that happened. So the the protest must be like I mean, assuming that this is a correct rendering of what actually transpired, the protest must be genuinely, uh, you know, disruptive. Yeah, I thought if it, I saw the the day the trip being cut short thing, that sounded like it was maybe more substantial than the media was making at, making it out to be. And God knows they've had like a real struggle with political instability. And I'm wondering if that sort of Filling over into the broader societal, or maybe reflecting broader Israeli societal problems. Yeah, according um, to the according to the, yeah according to the BBC, two hundred thousand came out of Tel Aviv. That's that's huge for Israel's population. Yeah, these are serious protests. I mean, like liberal portion of the, society. Aren't the protests? Public. I want to say a decade ago. Like, they, weren't those like ridiculously huge when they had marches over, uh, you know, unemployment and uh, you know. Uh, yeah, I do. Re- I do recall a wave of protests that was maybe the largest that, was that Israel had at the time. Yeah, sure. yeah. I remember thinking it was bizarrely huge and fell out of the headlines pretty quickly and seemed to go away conveniently pretty quickly. A um, couple other. Yeah, when I was in when I oh, ahead, quickly, when I was in Munich, there was I, I talked to this woman who was from the Israeli Labor Party, who was talking about how pained she was that she couldn't be there at the protest in Tel Aviv because she had to be at this unit conference and was, you know, talking about how, uh, you know, revolutionary the, the protest would be and how, like, Israel's Israel stands at a crossroads and blah, 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 which may or may not be true. But, yeah, it was uh, it was mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> go to we seem strangely mad over their uh interest in banning gmo corn well and, i thought um, you were going to talk yeah, about the, the republic the drug cartel yeah stuff, i mean right? uh, oh, yeah yeah okay, I mean, what's that ingest okay never never yeah, met lindsey a war graham. he didn't like right <laughs> yeah lindsey graham is saying i mean there are republicans who are saying they that there needs to be a new authorization freeze of military force for mexico for the cartels and uh, Lindsey Graham was I don't, he, he was saying, look, this is not about invading Mexico, but we're going to like take some sort of aggressive military Mexico. action in Mexico, which like is any I, I don't know. Maybe it will somehow abide by the rules based international order in a way that we'll all have to contemplate very carefully. But, yeah, that was proposed. Fired back rhetorically, at least. And yep, so, you know, he did. We're I not, saw we're not in a real, We're not. A, I want to be clear. We're not in a real shooting war yet with Mexico, which is cool. Um, you know, because we got plenty of other ones to finish first. Yeah. You know? Amlo um, actually, unlike but apparently, he fired back rhetorically. Yeah. yeah. He was like, "No, you won't." <laughs> like, Amlo, unlike you know Biden, for example, or you know, pick your other quote Western leader. My understanding is that virtually daily, you know, during the week. On weekdays, AMLO gives a very – this is Lopez Obrador, the president of Mexico. He gives a lengthy press availability um, where un- seemingly unscripted, he you know, will take questions from Mexican media for you know a, a strikingly long period of time. And it's like a regular sort of fixture of his uh, daily schedule. And I saw him say something about this like – it was to the effect of, you know, are they crazy? I mean they think that we're just going to be okay with the U.S. invading – Mexico. I mean, it was like a very kind of commonsensical response. I mean, he didn't he didn't like uh, sort of 
overly dramatize it, but he sort of reacted as you would expect him to react. Did you did you see the shots he fired at Bill Barr? No. <laughs> so that. apparently Bill Barr decided to weigh in. Yeah, yeah, so Bill Barr decided to weigh in. Yes, that Bill Barr decided to weigh in. Right. <laughs> irony of ironies is we just had a conviction of his like attorney general or one of his top officials yeah, yeah. in his administration for for straight up being on the payroll. And Calderon's party yeah. was like this notoriously corrupt kind of, you know, long-term entrenched yeah, party. He was part of the PAN, right? The yeah, PAN, yeah. Is that, kind I think of that's right, right yeah. center from the PRI. Yeah, so it was basically like Dissolution you know, with which in, enabled AMLO to win in AMLO, 2019. It opened yeah. the door for him, yeah. yeah. And also humiliation by Trump. Don't don't sleep on that factor either, right? Right. What happened uh, there again? Just, I forget now. What, how did Trump humiliate him? I know what you're talking about. I don't remember the details. <laughs> Whatever happened, Trump ended up having... President at the time, and he was basically like, you're going to close your borders, and you're going right. <laughs> to... It was, it was pretty bad, I remember. I think yeah, it was, uh, you know, so, he was, he had just, he was fresh off his election. And, you know, obviously a big part of what he ran on was the border security stuff. And he really kind of gave it to him, I think, in in press, in public. And Peña Nieto didn't oppose him, didn't push back. He was just, you know, yes, Mr. Trump, you know, yeah, whatever. You, you know what I mean? Like he was very much like all smiles for the camera. Didn't have any, yeah, any, uh, any pushback on Trump's rhetoric, you know. Right. The, well, now that I'm remembering it, Trump went... I think it was in September of 2016, so it was just as the post-Labor yeah, Day, right Day name was heating yeah. up. Trump went to Mexico and did this very strange um, joint appearance with, with Nieto, I believe, at the time. Calderon, though, was the predecessor of right. Nieto, right? Yeah, in, yeah, the, in, the, in yeah. the 2000s, uh, during the period, I want to say like 06, when the drug cartel violence was at a peak. And that's who Bill Barr is praising? In no small... In no small part to his drug policies, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like he when militarized. He was when he, when was, he, was, he was the first guy to militarize. Yeah. He was the first guy to militarize the conflict, right? He's like, I also think that Barr. I couldn't give you chapter and verse on this, but I'm reasonably certain that when Barr was attorney general the first time under George H.W. Bush in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, he presided over a fairly drastic ramping up of sort of militarized oh, U.S. drug right. prohibition policy yeah. in Central and um, South America. And that's always sort of – so that's always sort of been one of Barr's preoccupations. Oh, wasn't he the cover-up guy for a lot of the dirty war stuff? Now I know. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think he ran a lot of cover up for Ollie North and the dirty. Well, that yeah. Well, that Iran Contra. Yeah, he was blamed, he was uh, accused of helping to, you know, get some of those uh, like John Poindexter and what have you uh, off for the yeah. uh, charge. So even even beyond that, in terms of drug prohibition policy, that was, uh, you know, that was one of Bush's top priorities. Right. He, he was the one who did a, a uh, national address, George H.W. Bush, holding up a what he called the bag of crack that had been taken from some dealer right outside the white house and like said, you know, they, yeah, they set him yeah. up they entrapped the guy. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I remember that. That was such a hard story. You wouldn't pardon the guy either. The guy he entrapped, 
He like had the FBI and set up a trap for him. Please sell me drugs, sir. Please sell me. The guy didn't actually deal drugs. And it was. The park, wasn't it? Something like that. It was right near the White yeah, House. It was, it was something egregious. And, and like people were kind of pressuring him to, you know, the story kind of leaked out. And people were pressuring him to pardon the guy. And he was like, no. Oh, uh, Johnny, I did not mean to abruptly remove you like that. I was going to make Matthew the next caller because I just interact with him and I know that he would want to uh, present a critique with me. Johnny, apologies for that. Did not mean to to uh, to eject you so rudely. But uh, you are up. Yeah. Hi. Hey, guys. Nice to hear from both of you. It was actually a really interesting show tonight. Sometimes you guys meander, but tonight I thought you were very on point and sync and interesting. So, oh, good um, Richard, I, I guess I have a question for you. So for me, I'm very skeptical. I, I have a lot of disdain for woke. I think it's, a, it's these are serious issues, tax on free speech, meritocracy, due process and so on. They're not frivolous. I reject that claim. But to me, at least, it doesn't seem plausible that by the Supreme Court, I, I just cannot imagine that universities <laughs> who have gone so far beyond notions of, you know, we should have more blacks in elite positions, given history and political sensitivities, these kind of things that, that plenty of historical precedent for in many countries, they've gone so far beyond that, to just crazy stuff, right? Why don't you describe that episode of Stanford briefly, Matthew? Because I did see the uh, video I don't, of that. I, I don't um, remember. I, I don't know all. I'll, of I'll describe it. I'll describe it. Then, for the uh, you know the sketch of it that I know of is that there was this federal judge who was invited by the Stanford chapter of the Federalist Society to you know give her give remarks or make an appearance and. Uh, you know, protesters were inside this lecture hall and heckling and basically just not permitting him to deliver his remarks. And there was a dean present and the dean was the dean for, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion and ended up like giving her own speech where the line that she delivered was very creepy. She was addressing this to the judge who was standing there and like being forced to just set, step aside and let this DEI Dean give her comments and she said that you know although Stanford you know wants to make sure it upholds its stated principles around free speech and free expression come on judge it was the juice worth the squeeze that's actually the phrase she used meaning that like was it even though you have the right to accept this invitation and give a speech at Stanford was it worth all the harm that you've done to our community uh, that was what the dean said. Yeah, so a, a very reluctant and like officially condemned, in some respect, uh, allowance of him to speak. So I guess in some bizarre way that's good. And obviously it's bad if you compare it to the norms in this country ten years ago. But but yeah, you, you characterized it pretty well, Michael. But my I guess my my broader point to Richard is I'm just very skeptical given the deep ideological commitment of these institutions that policy is what's going to change. I just think there has to be a cultural change 
in our notion of equality from this idea of Kendiism to a, a less utopian but still robustly liberal notion of just, to put it as banal as possible, quality of opportunity. Go ahead and, and prove me wrong. Uh, so um, you're correct that the cultural has a sort of momentum and has a, a reality all its own. Um, but if you know some, a little bit about the history of sort of uh, civil rights law and how we got to wokeness, I mean, you probably will find it much more plausible that government action can influence the culture. So I'll tell you a story in about uh, in uh, 1971. Um, the uh, the uh, uh, the predecessor of the Department of Education uh, went to universities and they tried to basically find uh, data on whether they were discriminating. Discriminating just meant you know hiring not enough women and minorities. And they went to Columbia University and they said, give us your data on who you're hiring um, for uh, as professors. And the president of Columbia University wrote back and said, we don't collect that data. We don't believe in that. We're, we're, we're not even centralized enough of a university uh, to, have the, to have something like that. You know, they, uh, the departments basically run themselves. And then finally, um, you know, after some pushback and basically, you know, the, the threat here is to take away government funding under the Civil Rights Act. They said, you know, we're going to have to set up a regime of basically race counting and to maintain our federal funding. And that's what we're going to have to do. Now, this is amazing. This is Columbia University 50 years ago saying, oh, my God, you know, we just believe in colorblindness and meritocracy. And the government basically, you know, basically forced them to behave in a different way. Um, and so, yeah, you know, the universities today are completely gone. Uh, who knows what they would be? You know, that's we got 50 years to get from uh, that to what Stanford is today. You know, maybe I'll take another 50 years of the law being different. Um, but there was, you know, the, the ball was set in motion uh, from Washington, from uh, from uh, from uh, the law. Uh, the affirmative action that Vivek wants to get rid of in the private sector, uh, there's an executive order um uh, that basically forced companies to be race conscious. They basically, you know, they said they, they said if you're going to get a contract with the government, which is a huge portion of the uh, uh, of the national workforce, uh, you have to basically count your uh, number of blacks and your number of women and so forth in different positions, and you have to set goals and timetables. You know, if you are not uh, meeting your uh, meeting the criteria. There's also something called harassment law. Basically, you could sue companies into oblivion if someone says something racist to them or someone just makes them uncomfortable sort of subjectively. Um, and, you know, and uh, corporations have responded to that. The DEI offices are direct descendants from what used to be called affirmative action compliance offices. They used to just basically, they used to basically have these offices that said we are complying with federal law that requires us to be race conscious. So it's sort of a myth of wokeness that this thing sort of just came out of Nowhere. I mean, there were policies in Washington that led to institutions changing. I mean, just hiring new kinds of people, making new kinds of positions, just becoming new kinds of institutions. And of course, many people are now true believers in this stuff. Um, but yeah, law is laws at the heart of it. Now you change the law, it's not going to change everything overnight. But hopefully, you you start to push things in another direction. You could actually, you I think things could change a lot faster than people think. I think a lot of these, uh, uh, you could actually use. A for colorblindness, and I think you know corporations will basically uh, bend the knee um, when when uh, when the other side exerts power. So yeah, I'm you know I'm optimistic about the law actually doing something. It's uh, uh, especially in the long run. I mean, the law has a cultural influence. I think the history of this stuff shows that. Yeah, it's go ahead, uh, Michael. If you want to add something, no, no, go ahead. Um, yeah, I, I look. I this is this is not my wheelhouse, so I'm just listening. Yeah, it is. It isn't <laughs> mine either. I'm, you probably, even though I'm a. I'm,
individuals we saw in the Stanford uh, snapping at Stanford would ever conform to um, colorblindness. Um, you know, a lot of those people snapping are, are only in the school because of affirmative action. You know that, right? Oh, but come on, there are tons of white students doing this. There's in fact, all, all there's, uh, so, go, so I, yeah. I have to, I have to disagree with that because. Uh, are, wait, wait a minute. Wait, let, let's see if there are there are there whites because I see uh, there's a video. Um, I, uh, I in my. Um, which yeah, I saw plenty of white students. In yeah, the... I, I, it seemed like at least plurality white to me, from what I could see. I, I saw. I heard two people. I, I heard two people aggressively yelling, and they were both. They were both black. And yeah, it seemed one, like there were some no aggressive yellers who were black, black, but like the majority. But it seemed like the majority of the protesters were white. Nonsense. But the majority were. The majority Richard, were white. But, but, but consider this point: if eighty. But I mean, come on, Richard. You don't know those... that any 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 one of those specific individuals. Oh, who happens I, to be oh, black is like necessarily the beneficiary of affirmative action, or in other words, would not have been admitted to Stanford but for affirmative action. That may be the case, but you don't know for sure. I, I know that the majority. Uh... Right, but you can't graph that onto. Okay, guys. guys. My, my point is not so much about the uh, – I mean, obviously, the LSAT, LSAT numbers are, are a lot lower for, for African-Americans on average. But, you know, I think that's not really my point. My point is if you – if whites, if 80 percent of white students – and certainly what – because still people in leadership positions, I would say because of more of a legacy. Liberals would say it's because of white privilege or whatever. I would say it's because of, you know, legacy positions and who – was in positions of power 30 years ago versus today, but so I wouldn't agree with that assessment. Nevertheless, most of these positions, certainly when woke just don't agree with the formulation that, oh, it's just minorities and women. Like, no, if whites totally are culpable for this ridiculous system that's been instituted. I, I think that... Um... Yeah. So there's, um, there's, uh, I think, I think actually a lot of it is women because if you, there's a lot of videos, I've gone through some videos and I, you know, I have a, uh, I have an article that's called Women's Tears Win in the Marketplace of Ideas. And it shows that it's often women crying. Men can't, you know, really get into each other's faces uh, in the way that women can and the way people, the Christakis thing. I mean, go back to the Christakis thing. Um, and so, yeah, so, I mean, so, I mean, a lot of this will be just like, and, you know, and a lot of this will be just like these people are. In but no, none of this screaming. So, again, I disagree with you on the student thing. I'm not going to debate that. But what is that? Because I don't have data on, on hand about what percentage of students are engaged in woke well, education. The, I, I, know the, I know the white students are not uh, pro-free students. Okay. I know that. Um, okay. But, but, but no, but not more importantly, the most culpable people in this Honestly, I'm not saying this is some politically correct fig leaf to cover my, you know, opposition to DEI and, rec and, and recognition that there will be fewer African-Americans, for example, considerably in these institutions if you have a um, if you if you abolish the system, which I favor. But I'm just saying as a point of fact, if, if whites, white, I, I believe whites is most culpable for this because whites had most of the power positions yeah, some I mean, screaming 19 year old who knows nothing. I view as less culpable than Christakis for, for, for saying, oh, yeah, the, actually, no, you have a point that the, the sombrero may have been offensive. He's screaming, you know, we can meet each other halfway about 
the, the use of the term master, the etymology of mass. Like, I honestly put Christakis as more culpable than the screaming lunatic child. Yeah, okay, so. The, how the laws and the culture and institutions, they, they all interact and what law could do. Um, now, you can, I mean, you could, like, you know, you can, you could change incentives. I mean, the government has done this um, through civil rights law, where, like I showed you, you know, Colombia uh, earlier. But basically, the Obama administration, they had all these sexual assault stuff where basically, you know, a man would have, a, you know, a woman would have a bad experience with a man. They, you know, they would say there's no burden of proof here. And basically, the, you know, guys would get suspended, you know. So, like, guys got suspended for, you know, these drunken, uh, these drunken uh, uh, hookups. Um, now you can have a university that comes down disrupting speech. You know, Chicago, University of Chicago, where the administration uh, takes a strong stand on stuff, there seems to be a, a strong correlation between the uh, how the administration acts and how the uh, students act. And then the, um, the administration, you know, is subject to the incentives of the um, of the government, of the ones who provide the funding and put all these regulations. And so, you know, there's no magic bullet. There's no, there's no uh, uh, flipping a switch and then everyone loves free speech and colorblindness and, you know, uh, we all get along and sing kumbaya. Um, but, you know, there's, there's government and it's been doing stuff and it's powerful. And yeah, Matthew, I mean, maybe it's a bit ancillary to obviously like gender norms and this whole sort of ideology around sexual assault prevention and, and so forth. I mean, that's a fairly outsized component of like the whole wokeness belief system, which I, you know, how much you want to weigh it against racial stuff. I don't know. It doesn't really matter, but th that's what Richard references. There does seem like a fairly straightforward, tangible, almost indisputable instance of, just straightforward government policy having a very appreciable impact on the, you know, on, on, as you put it, culture around these issues. Because, you know, when the Obama administration first imposed that, that drastically altered the burden of proof um, burden that had to be met uh, to uh, convict basically men primarily, of uh, sexual assault on college campuses and use kind of the coercion of the deprivation of funds for public universities to enact that change. I mean, that seems like it was very much in accordance with cultural shifts and maybe even hastened those shifts. And then when that policy was rolled back, I mean, you could see that having a fairly direct impact potentially on just the, the, the wider culture around those issues. And it is traceable to a large degree, to just um, to to government policy intervention, is it not? Matthew. Maybe, maybe, maybe Matthew's gone. All right, Matthew. Well, uh, thanks for that, as usual. And yeah. uh, well, Richard, do you have, like, am I right on that Title Nine thing? Is that? Oh no, you're right. You're right. Yeah, yeah I mean, I have, for those interested, I have a book that's coming out. Uh, 
uh, on all the stuff. It covers Title IX, it covers the Columbia stuff, it covers the universities, it covers the affirmative action and contracting, uh, it covers the history, it covers what law could do, uh, you know, what's politically realistic, how it could change things. So, yeah, you're, you're right on that. I have That's part of my book, as, as is all this stuff. All right, gotcha. All right, Sterling, you're up. Good evening, guys. Michael, hey. I saw you on System Update, and um, yes. we are so fortunate to have System Update. It just that he can be on every night at 7, and just give his his take on everything is just I re, I think we're really gifted. Yeah, by that's that. Greenwald. Glenn um, Greenwald show on Rumble. Um, most yeah. uh, Fridays I end up being his little uh, sidekick for like a week in review show, so yeah. he doesn't have to put too much. Yeah, no, that's great. It's easier for him because that's a lot. You know, but it's not like he doesn't have a lot to choose from right now. Um, so, yeah, um, my big concern right now, and I'm with you as far as fi- uh, foreign policy, Michael, um, the rise of BRICS is no joke. I mean, this is getting, you know, BRICS is supposed to be um, kind of a, an, a, an economic alliance, whereas NATO is military. And but I think, you know, if this got strong enough with now, you know, Saudi Arabia, possibly Iran, um you know, you've already got Brazil, Russia, India, China. I mean, major economic power players here. Um, I think if anything could bring us down, it would be that. I mean, I think it would be an economic thing. I don't think it's going to be a military thing as far as the United States. And I don't think this is anything to, you know, not take insanely seriously. I don't think I think also these countries, I mean, you take India, I mean, they're not huge fans of colonialism in the UK, which is part of NATO. So they haven't really taken a, you know, we're all with you guys on Ukraine. Um, and a lot of these BRICS nations haven't. And so they are, even all though they're economic, they're definitely, yeah, I mean, they're definitely, even though it's supposed to be an economic alliance, they're not, you know, um, I think they will, they will align militarily also. And so, yeah, I think this whole last thing, it didn't actually surprise me with because I've just been paying attention to BRICS and how it's growing and how we're not like the most liked nation on the planet. And, you know, we've really screwed over some a lot of countries. And I think it's just something to worry about. And I wish I America would, could be more concerned about how we treat... I, I was listening to an interview with uh, Colin Call about India. Uh, Colin Call is like this big guy who's been in the State Department for a long time. And uh, according to him, India is like switching to like the military alliance of the U.S. That they're, you know, they're, they're taking China seriously. They're switching a lot of their... Uh, I, uh, uh, military um, supply from Russia to the U.S. Um, they are, you know, the quad thing. So I don't know. Well, in, in, India would be India would be the main complicating factor there in terms of extrapolating from the economic arrangement that there would have to be, there could be some like coincidental military arrangements. Yeah. Um, but but that said that that said I think Colin Call obviously has an incentive to maybe play up the extent to which India is remaining within the sphere of influence of the U.S. because the empirical data shows that India has decisively rejected the demands of the U.S. over the past year with regard to Ukraine. I mean, I think I showed you this. Maybe we talked about it. Ports of Russian oil from February, uh, like yes. March 2022 to March, uh, March 2001, sorry, March 
2021 compared to March 2022, it's like an astronomical increase, like you know, 2,000 percent or something, increase in Indian oil imports from Russia. Um, and so, you know, obviously Colin Cowell, who yeah, but the U.S. I, I who that is, the U.S. Yeah. has been fighting an agreement. Uh, they've been signing agreements with India for like cooperation, nuclear. They had a nuclear cooperation. Yeah, they have for years. Uh, in two thousand what? Yeah, yeah, they've been doing that since about oh, since the mid two thousands. You know, one thing that I, I was talking to actually a former Indian government official, and he stressed to me something that I hadn't been f- fully cognizant of, which is that there still is this lingering skepticism on the part of like the Indian defense establishment, even just political establishment at large, to the U.S. on the ground that between the 70s, all the way, like from 1973, I think it was, all the way up to 2005, uh, the U.S. punished India, including with really uh, debilitating sanctions in the 90s, over India's nuclear program. So the U.S. likes to, you know, uh, tout all this stuff about upholding the uh, virtues of democracy and, like, the world order is all about authoritarianism versus democratic societies. Meanwhile, you know, for decades, the United States was actively, uh, you know, maybe strangling is a strong word, but, you know, putting severe constraints on the development of the world's largest democracy – on the grounds of you know dispute over the the propriety of its um, management of its nuclear arsenal, and that's not, that hasn't been forgotten among Indian um, you know officials. Not at all, and I absolutely agree with that. And what's so interesting about all of this, also, because they're saying here, just you know, these are the other countries looking to join BRICS: it's Argentina, um, Saudi Arabia, Algeria, Egypt, Bahrain, and is Indonesia. UAE, now, these I are think, not as well, very right? woke. But these are, yes, these are not very woke nations either. And so, so that's why I was bringing this up. It kind of ties in. And a lot of the problems that they're claiming they're having with America and what, you know, where we seem to be trying to force ourselves on everybody and we're just completely using, you know, NATO as vassal states for what we really want from Russia. I mean, these people, you know, Americans can be, we're pretty spoiled. We don't have to be so involved as other people are in politics, but in other nations, they are incredibly involved in what's happening. And they're not thrilled about a woke ideology being pushed on them, not because necessarily they're bad people. Their country is, it's very, sometimes very religious or, you know, they just have a different take on things. And I think that could also be a problem for us too, in all of this, from what I'm listening to and what I'm hearing um, I think BRICS is something to really watch. I think it is also, I think it's actually happening as an alliance against um, just the it, colonialism and just the bullying tactics that we can have, which we do have. Um, but I just think it's something to really watch because I think it'll affect everything and I think it's going to affect everything that is woke also. I could be hey, hey, Richard, is, is China woke? I mean, how does that, how does China affect? That it's actually fairly decisively anti-woke. I mean, they put out that communique recently yeah. about U.S. foreign policy, but there were several others where they were like, where they were denouncing like the liberal attitude toward drug use in the U.S. and, and so forth. So I, I don't know, Richard. Like, what do you what do you make of China and how it factors into this wokeness? Yeah. Sort of I, I mean, attitude? I don't think that category. I mean, I don't think the category of you know that's sort of the relevant category for understanding uh, China. If you listen to a lot of the retarded Republicans who talk about, uh, uh, you know, the CCP as our enemy, they, they say wokeness came from China. <laughs> what? 
It didn't come from Berkeley or, um, uh, you know, uh, or Yale or something. It came from China. You could be, you know, the U.S. really pushes uh, this woke stuff on its allies. But you could actually be within the NATO alliance. You could be a member of good standing in the uh, rules-based international order and not be very woke. Turkey. uh, Well, Indonesia is not woke at all. Neither is Africa. I mean, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. How about Hungary? Well, I mean, for for all the people are yeah. are, are, are um, antagonized by Orban constantly, and he's this like you know menacing autocrat. If you read his speech that he gave, Orban's speech to the uh, opening of the Hungarian Parliament a couple of weeks ago, he's still you know fairly uh, resolute in affirming the you know the primacy of NATO in terms of. Uh, Hung- Hungary's sort of security um, arrangements. So there's no like idea of him like re- uh, somehow yeah. rebuking NATO as a as a whole. Yeah, right. And yet, you know, I don't think anybody, you know, and he's still comfortably within the rules based international order, whatever grievances people might have with him. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think it's. Yeah. We 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 don't need to. You know, we, it's easy to exaggerate how much this stuff is uh, part of American foreign policy. Although it is important, it's definitely not the. Uh, only thing, and many countries, you know, you but Africa, I mean, like South Africa, I think legalized, I'm pretty sure legalized gay marriage, a lot of, I mean, a lot of their elites are often just basically, you know, they're basically yeah. being influenced by what the West is doing. I've heard that China opened up its first transgender clinic. It only has like one or two, I mean, so it's not like a, this is all over the place, but, you know, just in the last few years, um, uh, and so, you know, the, the direction actually they're moving in is now there's there's been some like uh, there's been some like things where China's been pushing like masculinity on its population, trying to encourage people to have kids. We'll see how that I mean, we'll see how that goes. We'll see how much effort there is. Uh, yeah, because you don't know who they're listening to. You know, it's so weird because we do you know, people do really look to us. And when they hear also, you know, America's having a woke thing, but they're also hearing that there is now this like real push towards Andrew Tate and all this, you know, hyper masculinity. So. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting. I just want to throw that out there. And obviously, you've got a long line of callers here. And it's always great to talk to you guys. And it was like, again, it's so good to see you on Fridays, Michael. I love all the work you do. And yeah, just something to think about. All right. Thanks, Thank Sterling. Uh, Walnut. Hey, guys. Can you hear me? Yes. Yep. Awesome. So uh, I initially called to actually talk to Richard and you guys about uh, the Yale situation. Because I think it's absolutely fascinating what's happening over there. Um, but I... by the caller just before me. Mm. Um, okay, go ahead. Yeah, I, I think it'll be kind of ridiculous to assume any form of military alliance in BRICS. Uh, first and foremost, because China has China and India have not resumed normal relations. Okay, like ever since China encroached on the Indian border, relationships have not resumed uh, to the normal level. The foreign minister explicitly said that our relations remain uh, abnormal, and India is pretty content to have it that way. I think right, there was this big gathering at the G20. That, uh, just sorry to interrupt really quickly, but I think uh, a week or two ago, the, the New Delhi hosted the G20 meeting of the foreign ministers from around the world, and I don't think China a participant in that, or maybe I'm not exactly getting that right, but it didn't seem. It seemed like there was some sort of sub status that was afforded to China in relation to that particular meeting, but maybe you know more than I do. Uh, no, China was uh, explicitly like, so they, they are obviously not going to, you know, sideline China entirely, but um, basically the st- uh, statement by Jay Shankar, uh, like, you know, he was very clear in saying we will not resume normal ties. 
and we will not. And immediately after the meeting, because I expect they anticipated this, China announced $1.3 billion of increased aid to Pakistan. So it was like $2 billion total over the course of four or five days. So I like it's not like China will not announce aid to Pakistan immediately after meeting India if a meeting goes well. Like no one in their right mind will ever do that. But Walmart, so, haven't in the past in the past year there have been some fairly significant uh, military drill, drills that India and China have jointly participated in with Russia in the east of in the far east of Russia. To my there? knowledge, I mean, that's, it's, not, that's notable. Uh, I think, to my knowledge, if I understand correctly from what I've been told, uh, those who were almost bilateral with Russia and other countries can participate and at least see their equipment. But that does not in any way, shape or form imply any form of alliance at large. No, it's uh, in fact, when that came, news came out, it was kind of surprised how people were taking it, because at least as the Indian establishment understands it, it's like, you know, it's like kissing the ring. So the Russians continue to supply your arms. It has nothing to do whatsoever with China. In fact, from what I understand, Indians are increasingly concerned that since Ch- Russia is becoming a Chinese, uh, I don't know, gas station. Okay, but but participate in joint military exercises with, I don't know, Russia or Iran, and if I don't India think it's a joint willing exercise. to tolerate, if India were at least willing to tolerate joint participation in that drill with China. It doesn't mean that they're forging these expansive new military ties necessarily, but it suggests at least maybe uh, that, that, you know, engagement with China on that level is not some sort of red line in the way that it may have been in the past. Um, I don't think it's like you should consider it a military drill. Like it's, it's less of a military drill than everything the Quad does. And the Quad is barely a military alliance at this point. It's that limited is what I would say. Furthermore, I think you are forgetting a very important consideration, which is the problem right now is that, you know, India has historically never had a proper ally. Right, are super concerned about the US, not because of any colonialism concerns of old, but because certain... um, ESG peddlers and Hungarians who are famous for shorting foreign exchange markets were essentially trying to create a PR shitstorm to take out one of India's most important billionaires, a guy who's constructing ports in Haifa and all over the Indian Ocean. In fact, because of a media campaign to take out this guy called Adani, who's one of the most politically important billionaires in India, because of that, the construction of at least one strategic port in the Indian Ocean has been delayed. And there was a whole risk of India losing access to the Haifa port within, in Israel, which is one of the most important uh, technical, you know, technically advanced ports out there. So that is how I would. Wait, wait, so that. what exactly is the apprehension toward the U.S. on the part of these Indian right wing people? Pushing full on regime change. So if you look at the statement of Eric uh, Garcetti, I think he basically claimed uh, like he said that he's going to push human rights issues. He has openly said that he's going to intervene and try to force India's hand on India's sovereignty over its citizenship bills. So the U.S. has... Eric Garcetti uh, is the U.S. ambassador to India. He's the former mayor of Los Angeles. He want, I think they want to make an ambassador. I'm not sure he's fully appointed ambassador yet. What right. I can tell you is, so far, there have been three bills in which the U.S. has intervened. The first was a farm reform bill in which our capital was literally laid siege to by farmers and by, by a minority of farmers. The majority of farmers were in support of this. 
but the uh, a small minority linked to a separatist movement in the north was funded by well foreign you know the, essentially a sikh diaspora and whether or not you agree with them the point remains that it was foreign funded to a good extent and the united states came in down in favor of the protesters who literally laid siege to a capital and then pushed india back and they also intervened on a citizenship bill which would have made it uh, much harder for bangladeshi or pakistani illegal migrants into india to gain access to the services indian citizens would so the fact right now is the us is pressing india on matters of citizenship and its own farm reforms so that is the main reason like Is there any is there any relevance is there any relevance here uh, to that whole uproar recently over the BBC and the documentary that was uh, aired on Modi? Obviously, we're we're talking Um, about the UK, but I mean the UK and the US are kind of joined at the hip in geopolitical terms. So, in colonialism, it's like you know the good old fashioned. uh, old boys club of regime change is back at it so people hedge their bets but and oh by the way i should mention this because this is pretty important one of the main reasons india is hesitant to do anything on israel uh, sorry on ukraine is ukraine historically has been a pakistani ally like ukraine was sending pakistan military equipment when it was at war against india ukraine is one of the main countries which pushed for sanctions against india when we received uh, nuclear technology so Ukraine historically well, wait, wait, has been. When was this an, that Ukraine was sending military supplies to Pakistan in the seventies? Uh, I it's, I don't think in the seventies. No, I think this was around Kargil War. So this would be like nineties, early two thousands. So okay, like, yeah, uh, I know that the I mean the, the the main war that I'm familiar with, not that I'm very familiar, would have been in. the, in you the think 70s, of the Bangladesh right? War, nineteen seventy one. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. So once yeah. once once Ukraine gained independence from the Soviet Union, they at that point in the nineties were forging these military ties with Pakistan. Okay. Like Indians, uh, like you know, I- Indians will forget a lot of things. Indians will not forget anyone who is friendly with Pakistan. Like there's a certain hatred over there, which is very well earned and well deserved. And yet, even Pakistan so that, has essentially the same sort of neutral or neutral leaning stance no, no, so, the okay, conflict so, as India does, doesn't it? Uh, Michael, I'm going to make it very simple for you in a very friendly manner. Mm-hmm. Pakistan. Yep. The thing about Pakistan is it's very hard to tell if Pakistan is an American sugar baby cheating on it with China. Or a Chinese sugar baby cheating on it for America. That's how I understand it. Well, I, I spoke to a prominent Pakistani government official at the Munich conference, and it seemed like he, his attitude, the, the attitude that he expressed about the U.S. foreign policy disposition, disposition at this, this point did mm-hmm. not seem to me to be all that different from what I've heard from Indian officials. So it seems like there might be a bit of a commonality there, whether, you know, the... Those two parties like it or not, they seem to yeah, be because kind of they have to balance. A, a, yeah, both of them have to balance both Russia, you know, India and China. And in the case of Pakistan, they all they tried to balance Russia because they had a sovereign debt crisis, and they quite miserably failed at that. But uh, no, one thing I would point out about the whole um, BRICS as an alliance thing, right now, one of the growing uh, people India is considering someone you know you need to keep your eyes on is Turkey. So Turkey has like started its own military export business, obviously, but Turkey also has been pushing to fund different countries, Azerbaijan, Pakistan, in the, in the what do you call it, Tajik, Greeks conflict. To some extent, it was also, you know, an Iranian Turkish proxy war. So Turkey is one of those countries which is now a problem. So like the Indian foreign policy establishment is really in a bad position because they are 
they've for the longest time and this is one thing i think the lady before i i would not assume more than one person of the populace even cares for anything called foreign policy because i would and this is like one percent of the people who have some form of understanding of the english language there, whereas, there the, whereas in the united states like it's just this common axiom that the u.s is like leading the world and presiding over the international system and so i mean that makes sense economically right yeah yeah so like, look just at, on just on turkey really quick while on that because richard sent me this wall street journal article earlier today let me just give you a quick excerpt this is a Wall Street Journal as uh, published yesterday. It, says, it reports Turkey, for example, in 2021, imported about $830 million worth of transmitters and similar semiconductors and imported about $79,000 worth to Russia that year. So that was 2021. Yep. 2022, it imported nearly $1.7 billion worth of semiconductors and similar technology and exported $3.2 million worth to Russia, which is, a, you know, obviously a drastic increase in that export-import dynamic with, with Russia. Oh, oh, I forgot. I have to mention this to you. Uh, Import-export reminds me. So you know how you mentioned that India's increased uh, consumption of oil from Russia, and that's partly true, obviously, yep. because it's cheap? One thing which people do not realize is India is basically importing Russian oil, refining it, and then selling it to uh, the West, because that apparently is not sanctioned. So India is right now importing more Russian oil because there's a market for them to resale the refined oil to make money and that and basically yeah, everyone heard, in the west knows this i heard from a credible person who had been affiliated with the indian government yep. that india india in anywhere near yep. the same sort of all-encompassing way so basically we, giving them a pass just to kind of manage the diplomatic relations one that is actually understood like in the less you know not the trumpian right but i would say more close to the Mitt romney right of india that is actually well understood secondly uh yeah it has to be done because increasingly some europeans are using india as a stopgap measure for oil and if they take that away you know germany is already facing a few economic problems as is yeah all right. Uh, did you want oh, to make I your uh, Yale comment while Richard? Uh, yes, I did. I had. A, I want to actually get uh, Richard's input on this because you know uh, his uh, his that women's tears and Title Nine was his woke discussion. It remains one of my favorite. I saw the letter which Yale put out. It's the most um, empty set of apologies I've ever heard. And to me, it seems. Do you mean Yale or Stanford? Are you talking about the most the recent thing? Stanford, Stanford, Stanford. Yeah, I'm sorry, okay, gotcha, yeah. I forget yeah. them. You know, I they, they confuse them. They're really annoying sometimes. But the Stanford thing, it just seemed to me very clear that they like. I do not see how they have an incentive to change unless people just put a blacklist on hiring or appointing any jurists or any judges of any form who have um, been at Stanford or Yale. Like, unless there's a blacklist on Stanford and Yale. Because, you know, conservatives appoint roughly half the judges in this country. I don't see if there are market forces to compel them to change their ways. Um, so, you know, the elite, you know, the elite law schools, um, they are. Uh, than um, you know, a lot of the rest of academia. Um, 
And Alina Kagan, when she was uh, dean of Harvard Law School, she hired a bunch of, uh, you know, conservatives and people attacked her for it. And the University of Chicago, where I went, was pretty uh, balanced. Um, Didn't Kagan oppose the pro, like a, a move to expel military recruiters from the Harvard campus or something? Maybe. That sounds like something she would have, she would have yeah. done. Uh, and so I, you know, this is, this stuff is, Look, the women's tears things is real. Uh, that that uh, video, I, I didn't watch it that closely, but I saw. I just I saw the demographics too. You you noticed the demographics? I'm not. I'm not yes, uh, absolutely. That's the first thing I saw. Uh, I'm not imagining this. Okay, I I saw two people screaming, one black guy and one black woman. I didn't watch the whole thing, but that was the, that was what I saw. Um, and you know, and I mean, this is the democratic. I mean, this is a lot of the, these affirmative action cases are a lot of you know. She looked at the demographic. I saw a lot of excitable white women in that video, for the record, but I, not that I mean, there are there there. Are, I mean, there, okay, okay, fine. There, there was some excitable women, but okay, white women. I mean, yeah. So you look at the Biden appointees to um, uh, to federal judges. I mean, they are uh, women and minorities. Now, this is going to give you know, if one side is practicing massive affirmative action, the other side's not. That's going to help conservatives. I mean, Kamala Harris, the only, you know, she's a albatross around the neck of the Democratic Party. Uh, if Indeed. Biden goes, if Biden goes away, you know, she's going to be the next in line. They can't get rid of her. They can't get rid of a black woman, I mean, who's the vice president. Uh, so she would be the nominee if something happened to Biden. And she's a terrible candidate, but because Biden said he's going to pick up There were actually some black women politicians who had some political accomplishments and like demonstrated some political skill, like uh, Val Demings or Karen Bass. And she, of course, you know, Biden had to go for the half Indian woman who everybody hates and who blew up spectacularly and got yeah. no fewer got fewer delegates in the 2020 primaries. Yeah, why more? Why did you go Kamala over those other two? I mean, that's a good question. Why not? Uh, why not Val Demings or Karen Bass? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, but anyways, they got stuck with they got stuck with Kamala. <laughs> Terrible. Uh, I am, you know, I'm up there. She was a progressive prosecutor. That's why. Uh huh. So no, she she, she burnished uh, Biden's uh, law enforcement bona fides. <laughs> that was probably that was probably what Democratic consultants convinced themselves in 2020 was the case. No, I mean I don't. Yeah, and she. primary debate uh, and and for, anyways, for that she was rewarded I, with the vice presidency let me tell you but though I, on the wokeness stuff i am i am optimistic i really am i mean the fact that people are listening to me makes me optimistic vivek well, i hear vivek taking my ideas but it's not just vivek i talk to um, people in desantis world i talk to people in trump world i mean they understand i mean my, my ideas about civil rights will have gotten out there i think the law is big i think people underestimate it i think people think these stuff are just has a cultural force on its own um i think that when republicans prioritize something they do get it done i mean you look at the roe v wade stuff i mean which i not a big fan of, and you look at guns, I mean, there have been real victories for conservatives. Over the Do you years. really think they're going to prioritize affirmative action when half of them are telling the, you know, you know, how, I, I really like Trump. Is all the elite conservatives tell their base that there's no need to go to college, whereas all of them send their kids to, like, target universities, for lack of a better phrase. So I think with the base in the lower tier of the coming apart story, 
I don't think most of these people would care about affirmative action because a lot of these people don't understand how much power the right brand name on your resume actually gets you. What is what do you say that again? The, what, what, I don't what, think the the mainstay of the Republican base, the eighty percent who are, you know, buying the nonsense of, that it's not important to send your you know kids to university. I don't think they will care as much about affirmative action because they don't recognize the power having the right brand name on your resume gives you. Uh, the so affirmative action is everywhere. I think it's not just the universities, but it's not about it's not about the you know the masses what they're pushing for. I mean, the masses have. Uh, the, the, that's not the issue. I mean, it's about having a few activists, uh, the conservative media. These people pay very close attention to what conservative media is doing. And they're, you know, they're going to be, it's going to be a lot harder to get away with this stuff like uh, Glenn Youngkin. I mean, has done a lot of things. The uh, uh, tech, mm-hmm. uh, Greg Abbott just got, just sent a memo, said no more DEI hiring in government. You know, Texas has had a Republican governor for yep. 30 years. And w- why did it just happen two weeks ago? It happened two weeks ago because, you know, this is a conversation now. Um, Richard, are there any quietly disenchanted Democrats that you've dialogued with on this, or is it just 100% radio well, silence? Well, the, the forward party follows me on Twitter. Are, are they close? Uh, okay, well, that, I'll take that as a no. <laughs> <laughs> no. Isaac, I mean, if you're... If you're a leftist right now, uh, you know, everyone who dislikes wokeness, I think, has sort of, you know, dislikes wokeness as has left the left or doesn't really consider themselves a leftist anymore because it's so overwhelming that if you're not woke or if you're skeptical towards, like, Jesse Signal, right? Like, it's like you're going to be skeptical about one thing and, you know, they'll lose their, they'll lose their minds. Uh, are there are there Demo- I think like, you could not every Democrat is a leftist. Needless to say, Democrats are not going to like fight affirmative action or anything. But you could see like because Republicans are. You know, I have another article on this on the right side of this uh, public opinion. You know, when the Republicans do stuff, like Democrats can have very tough time. You know, like bringing affirmative action back or something. Right, and like, it's much harder to bring something back than just to keep something going. So no, I I'm very uh I'm pessimistic about like Democrats. Like, Uh, Nathan, you're up. Thanks, and I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I'm you gotta a go, Richard. Out. All right, yeah. So have a good day. Uh, tough luck, everybody who wanted to uh, be graced with the presence of Richard. You have to. You're stuck with me, at least for the time being. And I don't, I don't blame you if you run away and pout. Anyway, Nathan, you're up. Yeah. Hey, Michael. Yeah, I was watching Debbie Wasserman Schultz last week as she was questioning Matt Taibbi, right. and it was really depressing watching i mean this woman rigged the democrat primary system there's no accountability whatsoever and it's really she resigned to disgrace (laughs) oh yeah and but you look at these people they never go away and it just it's the people that work their way up through the political system republican democrat by the time they get to the position like congressman senator president they're so compromised i don't know if there's any hope in changing ridiculous the questions that they ask and just do you think that people that are moving that are controlling our country whether you know you never hear nothing about Jeffrey Epstein anymore what happened to all those people that were going to that island you know Bill Gates Bill Clinton we used to have a former speaker of the house Denny Hastert the guy was a well-known child molester 
I mean, these people are just a scum of the earth, but there's no accountability and there doesn't seem like there ever will be. And as a conservative, I've been wringing my hands about this for years, about how there's no accountability and it doesn't seem like there ever will be. Well, on the Epstein thing, I don't know if it's really accurate to say there's been no, quote, accountability. I just saw an article today say, uh, on, or it was in the past few days, about how J.P. Morgan is suing a former executive who was accused of being an associate of Epstein. So, I mean, that's just one example of, I think, a lot showing that there has been some fairly punitive action taken vis-a-vis Epstein in particular. You know, I kind of have the opposite direction, uh, inclination now on stories like those. Um, and this might be a controversial statement, but so and so forth, which tend to be accompanied by lots of pro- prosecutorial zeal and public kind of moralizing I don't know. I mean, I'm much more, I'm increasingly disinclined to be agitating for quote unquote accountability on those issues because it seems like often they're very much exaggerated and weaponized. I mean, Matt Gates, the Republican congressman, was under legal scrutiny for two plus years on these phony charges that were leaked out by the Department of Justice to the media, kind of without any evidence really um, depicting him as some sort of potential sexual predator who was involved in like a, a sex trafficking ring. And they finally had to admit like a few weeks ago, the DOJ did that there was no evidence to move forward with the prosecution of, of Gates, but that didn't, you know, re- uh, negate the previous two years where he was under this cloud of suspicion and, and basically presumed guilty of like grievous sexual offenses. So um, on, on, on human on trafficking stuff, I just feel like there's very poorly defined evidentiary standards and lots of kind of overheated, you know, uh, fervor to just nail people politically. If you can kind of concoct some, charges against them as being some sort of sex pest, which um, I don't deny happens or has happened, but I feel like it's been, if anything, there's been an overcorrection where that is always the go-to tactic now to disparage anybody who you don't like on political grounds. Well, I just look at people, like it almost kind of proves the point though, I think, because the Justice Department and those kind of institutions, they can make false allegations about people that they find inconvenient and use those allegations to discredit them. But people that actually actually have dirt on that they can use that dirt against them to leverage to get things that they want. Those are the people that I'm, I'm most worried about because those are the people in those kind of positions are the people really making decisions. Like you don't get to the top of the food chain unless they have something on you to use against you, so you'll fall into line with whatever the deep state wants you to do. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, on the Epstein thing again, the guy was arrested. He did die in prison under admittedly mysterious circumstances. Ghislaine Maxwell is in prison. Um, I don't know. What more do you want exactly? People, it's almost like people feel like there has to be some Rosetta Stone uncovered that reveals all the sexual depravities that have ever been committed throughout history. Otherwise, there's never going to be adequate retribution gained for the Jeff, Jeffrey Epstein. I, I know. It seems like a bit... I don't know. I get creeped out at a certain point by the fixation on it. Like, what more do people think is necessary? Alan Dershowitz was under this cloud of suspicion. Whatever you think of him, 
on any other issue, whether it's Israel-Palestine or Trump's impeachment, set all that to the side. Alan Dershowitz was accused for years by one of the main Jeffrey Epstein accusers, this woman, Virginia uh, Gouffre, I think is how you pronounce her name. And only last November did they finally come to a legal resolution where she admitted that basically the whole thing about Alan Dershowitz being guilty of any sort of sexual impropriety vis-a-vis Epstein was a fabrication. And, you know, does... Epstein, I mean, does uh, Alan Dershowitz get any compensation for that? Does he get any kind of reputational like redress from that? I don't know. I mean, I didn't see it reported on that widely, including within these like, you know, uh, quasi conspiracy circles of online Internet commentary. And I'm not even trying to say that to be pejorative. You kind of know what I mean. These the, the, the people who make Epstein and the whole sort of mythology around it, one of their central sort of impetus in, in life. I didn't really see it very widely acknowledged that one of the supposed culprits in the whole thing had been exonerated did you i I don't know i mean i feel like there's again an overcorrection if anything but with virginia jufree i'm not gonna i'm not gonna say anything about her because obviously there's people that will take advantage of those kinds of situations and make false false you know you know they'll say things make make things up about anybody just to try to gain more fame or fortune or whatever the instance may be but you know if you if you look at people like, you know, that Jeffrey, that uh, Dennis Haster. I mean, how does that guy, a well-known child molester, become the top yeah. guy in the house? I mean, you, you can't tell me that people didn't know about that because everybody in Wisconsin knew what the guy was doing. And then they didn't. Illinois, yeah. And every, yeah. Oh, Illinois, yeah. Everybody well, I mean, that, like, but, okay, but that was, I mean, that was I, I, a very interesting case. I covered at the time, actually, for, for Vice when I was a, a columnist. That was to do with his... Like when he was in his twenties and thirties, right? Uh, and it was a wrestling coach. So yeah, was there some creepy stuff that apparently went on with Dennis Haster when he was coaching wrestling at some high school in suburban Illinois uh, in like the in the seventies? Apparently so, but it wasn't some like sex trafficking ring that he was accused of being complicit in. It was these hushed up, you know, maybe somewhat um, vague allegations from decades prior um and then he was ousted um this or and then he he was charged not ousted but he was he was he was charged despite his stature as a former speaker of the house so i mean it almost kind of proves the point that it's not i i just don't see these massive cover-ups that people think that they're needing to be constantly on the alert for was barney frank wasn't he running a prostitution ring out of his basement uh, I think he was accused of having gay liaisons of questionable moral <laughs> probity in the 80s. Um, I mean, but did you, you remember that, don't you, about the guy that he had running the, the prostitution ring out of his basement? I, I don't remember it being a – see, maybe this is too legalistic of me, but when you say prostitution ring, my immediate instinct is going to be, okay, was that proven in a court of law or was there some adversarial process – of fact finding that established that Barney Frank was actually running a prostitution ring. I'm not sure. I know that he was, he was a, you know, he was a, he was gay, you know, a prominent gay member of Congress who uh, had some rendezvous with maybe people of, you know, younger gay men that was maybe questionable. But then to, to extrapolate that out into some like sex trafficking ring or prostitution ring, like it was some like all in, engulfing sort of uh, system that he was hiding or something. I'm not sure if that really 
is the case. I mean, in 2006, <clears throat> one of the reasons that Republicans lost the House, or one of like the un, you know popularly understood popularly understood reasons, is because this of this congressional page scandal where this. Republican Congressman Mark Foley turned out to be a closeted gay guy and was basically flirting with and, you know, having dates with, uh, you know, you know, interns or, you know, you know younger uh, students who were under his, you know, uh, tutelage in this, you know, page uh, apprentice type program. That was came, that came out. That resulted in a big scandal that implicated lots of people and ha- wrought major political consequences. So I don't know. I mean, you can give lots of examples of this stuff happening recurrently, which you probably wouldn't be able to do. I would think if it was all being successfully covered up to the in this in the to the degree that people seem to suspect. Has the, has the media ever asked Joe Biden about his daughter Ashley's his her own diary, saying that she was taking showers with her? That was oh, I mean, come on, that's <laughs> have they asked her? Mom, has the daughter has the has Ashley Biden accused her father of? behaving in a sexually predatory manner with her because they took showers together when they were kids. I mean, that's a pretty common practice. I don't, I, I don't think it's particularly well advised to do that, but she I mean, said, she said that he was taking showers with her and that it sexualized her. And that's what she said. No, she didn't. Uh, well, I mean, so, so, so you think that Joe Biden is guilty of sexual predation with regard to his daughter? Well, really? I've never, I've never heard of anybody taking showers with their twelve-year-old daughter before. I mean, that seems a little strange. Yeah, it's it's maybe strange. I don't know. Was she twelve or was she younger? I mean, I, I've I've heard of that done. Uh, again, a bit weird, but I think there's like a you, there, there's a pretty significant burden of proof to just peremptorily de, peremptorily declare somebody a sexual predator. I mean, that's why I was so, I mean, and again, this is probably not popular for some people who are listening, but the Tara Reid thing is another perfect example. It's still amazing to me how credulously that just utter scam, like transparent hoax was lapped up by people who didn't like Joe Biden and therefore were willing to accept anything about him that was a derogatory allegation just because of their pre-existing political opposition I'm sorry. I think it's necessary for people who are rational to be able to separate their dislike for someone politically with their acceptance of wild factual claims about the sexual depravity that they're supposedly guilty of. But it seems like most people can't separate them and they just assume that anybody who they dislike politically, especially if they're a male, ipso facto must also be a sexual predator. I mean, I think that's the trend. So if anything... That's the trend that, at least as I perceive it, needs to be reined in more so than that we need even more punitive kind of retribution or vengeance seeking against everybody and everybody for you know all these uh, you know opaque sexual offenses. I just kind of found it odd that everybody who claims these are these were conspiracy theories. If you would have told me 15 years ago there was an island that was being visited by all of our main politicians and our most important, like Bill Gates and people like that. I would have been called crazy, but yet it's all true. So to claim that there's just conspiracy theories and they should be they should be dismissed out of hand seems a little. Well, I'm not, I'm not calling that. anything in particular a conspiracy theory. I mean, the the Epstein thing was, uh, yeah. I mean, clearly there was a lack of interest in vigorously pursuing that story to its full extent, probably in uh, in part because of the powerful people that were involved in the legal 
resources that they had at their disposal for um, countering you know, what they would allege were def- defamatory claims and so forth. But, you know, I read about the Jeffrey Epstein thing, I want to say in like 2000, uh, I don't know, 12, 13 or something in Gawker when they published the logs from the from the, the flight, uh, the flights to the to the island in the Caribbean. So, I mean, I, I mean. the details of what was going on but but but, but but hold on i think a reason why a lot of people were skeptical to just kind of fully embrace the entirety of what was being alleged vis-a-vis epstein was because of the credibility of some of the accusers and sure enough the accused the the one accuser who set the sent to motion the whole story virginia gouffray you know years and years later after everybody thinks that the whole epstein story had been settled and the the depravity was finally revealed, admitted that she ba- she defamed a public figure on, on nonsense. I mean, Alan Dershowitz, again, forget anything else you might think about him. The guy is in his 80s, and he spent years being smeared as a sexual predator on the basis of claims from a person who then eventually had to admit had no factual basis and we're just her own kind of mad ramblings well what does that tell you that that's somewhat significant isn't it well that is scary absolutely that anybody can make any allegation in, well just in, anybody in, the, the, the key woman who set off the whole epstein thing to begin with oh yeah absolutely and then and people like that they actually you know ruin the credibility of people that do have legitimate claims against people that do these kinds of things and that's unfortunate that the people there are a lot, a lot there's a lot of people out there that try to take advantage of a situation like that where they think they can get fame or fortune like i said before but i guess my main concern is more that it seems like whether it's political corruption or financial corruption like joe biden and his son and in ukraine and all the stuff that was involved there it doesn't seem to matter what it is it, they have to have some sort of dirt on you in order for you to work your way through the republican party the democrat party so the people that eventually get to the top of these different parties are all corrupted in some way that can be used against them so it doesn't matter who we vote for we're always going to never we're never going to get what we want you might want medicare for all you're never going to get it you might want to end these wars you're never going to get it because the, the deep state has information on these people whether it's credible or not that they can use against you as a weapon to, to, to take you out or to get you to do their bidding. And that's what my main concern is. And I don't see a real solution to it. Yeah, you know, I think attributing the lack of progress on something like, you know, Medicare for all or <laughs> a uh, or on curtailing the war war making apparatus to, to attribute that lack of progress to some sort of blackmail that's being lorded over politicians who otherwise, if they weren't constrained by this blackmail threat, would follow through on their stated desire to, you know, uh, you know, uh, reform the CIA or abolish it or uh, give everybody health care. I know I think that's a bit of a um, deflection or it kind of it kind of obscures the real structural constraints that probably are more determinative of this sort of political stasis that I think you're How would you correctly referencing. If, if polls are so in favor of ending these wars and, and ending all this corruption, 
and politicians are obviously driven by polls because they want to get reelected, then what would you attribute it to? If not, if not some sort of, of, of blackmail or or some sort of bribery, what would you attribute it to? Because it seems pretty obvious if you wanted to be remain popular, you'd do what people want. You wouldn't do the opposite of what they want, would you? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it's com- it's complex. It, it's There's uh, lots of different layers to it. On foreign policy, I think something that people maybe are intellectually aware of or think that they understand to be a factor here but probably don't appreciate the full extent of is the just sort of inevitably corrosive effect that the existence of the national security state bureaucracy has on or i don't know analytically neutral and almost helpful to understand the actual reality of what this entity is these are the people who are involved in the day-to-day decision-making sort of process and kind of set the terms of the debate for a lot of these people especially in congress when they're briefed on foreign policy issues i mean they're the ones who kind of dictate the parameters of the whole discussion around what to do with the 900 troops that are still in syria or how to handle the provision of weaponry to ukraine or how many troops to train to deploy to Taiwan for some sort of war exercise, right? I mean, the, the, the parameters of these debates are being dictated by this whole sort of interlocking complex of think tanks and weapons manufacturers and um, national security uh, bureaucrats who are in office and out who kind of form, you know, what is sometimes colloquially referred to as the blob um, and are extremely decisively influential in uh, you know, advancing their own self-interest, which is this kind of bureaucratic momentum toward a just posture of omnidirectional sort of militarism and um, bellicosity. And that might, be the, that, that might be not as satisfying like emotionally as saying that, you know, I don't And that's the reason why they're not taking these principled stances. But I think it's probably the more accurate explanatory factor. Can anybody make an argument that what we're doing in Ukraine has any any positive effect on the United States and the people living here? I can't think of any reason other than that they might have something on Joe Biden as far as like financial nah. or Olaf. Scholz. I mean, I can tell you what the argument is. I know exactly. I could I could ch- recite the argument chapter and verse at this point because you hear it ten billion times if you listen to how the people who are in favor of the policy status quo justify their position. They think that this is a necessary battle to preserve the rules-based international order, um, Western values. And if Russia is allowed to prevail, then that undercuts the whole system over which the U.S. presides and has uh, presided since World War II. And the the maintenance of that U.S.-directed world order actually redounds to the material and, uh, you know, even in a sense ideological benefit of the United States. Now, you can agree or disagree with that. I obviously have lots of problems with that Mm -hmm. argument, but that is the argument. You can make up a fairy tale to justify anything you wanted to do. Like yeah. Olaf Scholz, how, how does he justify allowing his pipeline to be blown up by the United States to when his own population is gravely affected by these kind of actions? There's no justification for it whatsoever, and there's no upside in, in, to Germans who are living in the cold right now to be putting up with these kind of policies, but yet they do. And, the, and these policies continue to move forward no matter what the population believes or how popular they are or aren't with the people that live in these countries. And there's got to be a reason beyond just, you know, some 
fairy tale or some ideology. It's, it's got to be. There's got to be some reason for it. Because who, who would do these things if there wasn't something either forcing them to do it or giving them a positive outcome for doing it? Nobody yeah. would do these. Well, Nathan, it's a big subject. Uh, I think we uh, covered at least the uh, <laughs> the outlines of it. Um, appreciate your uh, thoughts and Gator. You are up. Hey, Michael, how are you doing? Um, I'm okay. There's a, a lot of uh, expansive topics tonight, so I'm not too sure what to focus on, but I'm kind of thinking that one of the contributory root causes of, of, of this that's being deliberately sidelined is what is being demonstrably shown beyond doubt by Taibi et al.'s Twitter files revelations. And those, the content of those revelations is undeniably true, yet they are being undeniably ignored by almost all of the media, including left-leaning people. I mean, I've actually talked to one of them who who had a triggered response. I won't go into it, but demonstrating to me. Um, so Taibi was in an interview with Brianna Joy Gray, right. who spent the entire hour of the interview simply asking him, did you look for any left evidence of left um, specific left bias, say, for example, on Bernie Sanders, because that's what I'm interested in. And he went, no, we didn't really look for Bernie stuff. We didn't do that. What we did was the way we looked at the Twitter files demonstrated that there were high level, all encompassing efforts to basically fuck with anything they wanted, whether that was left or right. So my search terms focused on trying to find that big picture rather than drilling down to a search term like look for Bernie Sanders, because Bernie Sanders only gets you Bernie Sanders stuff. But if you want to see blocking, you search for shadow banning, you search. But hold on a second, Gator. Brianna Joy Gray, who, you know, I'll just disclose that I know not, I'm not, you know, the best of friends with her, but I know her well enough to be reasonably confident that I would expect her to take a, you know, modestly, fair-minded approach toward covering this issue at the, at the very least. Hmm. So I'd be surprised if she... It's not, it's not, it's not condemned. I'm not, look, this is, the, well, hang on. This is the point I'm kind of making, right? She wasn't condemning him. Neither did David Sirota when David Sirota interviewed Yeah, that was a ridiculous interview. Bo- I didn't hear that. Yeah, but what they both did was equivalent. They both ignored the content and they essentially went after the the method or the messenger, right? Now, they didn't do it in really over attacks. They did it in quite passive-aggressive ways. David Sirotis was, was the first time I heard this, right? And that was obvious. Now, weirdly, Brianna Joy Gray spent the entire conversation essentially asking the same question in different ways. Taibi was just pissed off with it, answering over and over again, right? And up for an hour... The, you could have asked the question twice, got the answer. No, I didn't specifically look for Bernie. I did something different because my, my focus is different. But as Taibi has pointed out, and he even said this in Congressional Thing, at his last release shows, well, we found that the GEC, in the way that they have targeted indiscriminately and falsely um, target accounts, they've actually wiped out left and right. And there are, there are examples. I mean, even the Congressional hearing, um, the, the guy with the purple tie, I can't remember what his name is, was trying to be a smart ass and said that there is literally not a single example of.
wants. And, 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 and Jim Jordan just immediately goes, yeah, I can give you one right now. Here we go. Right. This came from Biden's administration two days after he got into office. Kill this account is basically what he, what he said. He submitted it to record. Right. Anyway, my point about this is that it's telling to me that the Twitter files. Content I think that would have been Dan Goldman. OK, who is, is that, the, is that the freshman yeah, he's real, Democratic real. representative from New York, who was a, uh, the Levi a, Strauss, Mueller, yeah. a Mueller prosecutor. Mueller investigation right. prosecutor who ended up, you know, winning a Democratic primary in New York City. Yeah, and who also actually technically, as far as I can tell, misinterpreted or misrepresented the outcome or findings of Mueller. Right? He he was very selective in what how he described Mueller for the purposes of that. Uh, of Sorry, that he wasn't right? he wasn't he wasn't a prosecutor in the Mueller investigation. I, I I misspoke. He was a counsel for the House Judiciary Committee for one of the impeachments of Trump. Okay. And he, okay. he parlayed that into a campaign for Congress, of course. Okay. So, so my point is that the, the content is, is even more, I mean, if you thought Snowden and Binney and Drake's revelations were earth shattering and they were, these are even more than that because what they show is the genesis of where, or sorry, the, 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 the trajectory of where Snowden goes and where Binney goes, right? Because we have as a society across the Western world, if not the globe, ignored to get on top of what Snowden told us about. And now we live in a society that is literally ruled by what Twitter files shows us as the most totalitarian panopticon we could possibly imagine. And we don't even know it. We don't even want to know it because what does it tell you about where your perception of the world really comes from. And this is where it connects to woke, right? And this is, I'll try and draw this in, draw this off so you can tell me I'm wrong. Because uh, I'm sure I am, but it's just a perception test, right? The wokeness, right, in, in where Richard's talking about how it's spun out of um, possibly well-meaning corrective attempts like affirmative action, which ultimately done the wrong way can become very destructive and toxic, right, potentially. Wokeness now strikes me is basically this way in which not only is it a divide and conquer tool, but there are questions around the proportionality of the topics in question versus the actual scale of the pop. I identify as gay, all of the subsets of being gay or, or non-binary or all of these other things that are non-cis or even smaller than that. That means that in any one group, it's quite a minority issue. Now track that against the number of column inches that all of these woke agendas are getting. And you've got to start asking yourself the question, are we dealing proportionately with this issue through this whole manifestation of aggressive woke idealism, which goes even, ideology, sorry, that goes even as far as trying to, in, to affect sexualization and sexual education of not just um, teenagers, but literally children below the age of 10, right? That, I mean, is that proportionate? Do, why are we doing this? Why would drag, drag shows, I mean, be, be of rated as, as being an, an adult event in pretty much any country I've ever visited, and yet suddenly we've broken a watershed where, where, where there are little baby, there are babies in drag shows. I mean, I don't understand where the well, line Well, just for the record, like. just for the record, I th recent polling has shown a astronomical increase within just the past several years in identification with various flavors of gender fluidity among younger mm -hmm. generations. So I, I just pulled up 
yeah, yeah. an item from 2021, nearly 40% of U.S. Gen Zs now identify as LGBTQ. So you could see why that would precipitate some like wider societal debate and consternation and like political conflict, right? But I mean, I, and I'm not necessarily disagreeing with you, but I'm just curious how do you respond to this? Because I could almost flip the yeah. argument and ask yeah, you, well, if, if the number of persons, uh, especially, or let's just let, limit it to the number of people under 18 who mm. are receiving like uh, hormone blockers or uh, you know puberty blockers or are receiving medical interventions related to gender transition. Um, mm-hmm. If the number is relatively small, and I th- there was a big article in Reuters a few months ago that was one of the first to sort of try to quantify this using um, insurance data in the, this is the United States specifically, and it's not a, not a perfect measure, but it's, you know, somewhere in the ballpark. And, um, I think it was just, it was like a few thousand or it was minuscule compared to what you might assume if you were following day in and day out, like the alarmist ramblings of people like a Matt Walsh or others who make this hormone treatments by like a factor of something insane like a hundred percent like he was not even in the same universe he did worse worse than that michael as i understand it from what the clip i saw um he he didn't he couldn't put a number on it he just said it's a massive amount and then somebody tried to then after the fact check it and the best the data that they cited was about a thousand children in that in a given year were on these things Right, which which is you know in the population of the U.S. is a statistical error, right? Um, so he embarrassed himself by not even having command of the data that he was trying to suggest demonstrated his entire point. That's the real humiliation of him, I think. Which is a big 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 mistake. I mean, well, I, he, I ended, think he, did but, that he ended up, no, no, but he did. I mean, he he started to rattle off guesses because he didn't know yeah, yeah, he didn't the know number, the data, yeah. and he ended up saying that there were. Um, I think he said millions. Yeah, he said that he said he told Did Rogan he say, okay. that there are okay. quote well, millions. He used more. the word millions of minors in the US that have been given these hormone mm. drugs, which is mm. again, the upper range estimate of total number of people who have been pres- given utility of those drugs or whether the science is sound or other kind of ethical or political questions involving this phenomenon, which is increasing in its prevalence, no doubt. Um, but if you're somebody who's focused on this issue 24-7 and it's like your entire media persona to supposedly be some kind of expert authority on the perniciousness of this trend and you're so oblivious as to the actual data that you misstate hmm. the number by like, I don't know, I actually calculated it at the time. I just pulled it up. He misstated the number by 4,000%. So, I mean, couldn't you argue that he's yeah. the one who's having well, no, this, on, you know, disproportionate kind of, fixation? You and I are arguing the flip sides of, of the same coin yeah, here yeah, to I think agree. about it. Because what I'm saying is, is proportionality. If we take proportionality and we find that the number of people this really is affecting is not that big, although you're saying that below 18, the concept is taking is take, getting traction in, in Gen Zers, right? Let's come back to that for a sec in a second. But we're both agreeing that roughly this might be a relatively small scale um, real manifestation problem, right? You know, people aren't chopping... Proportionally, yeah. 
chopping the tits off, right? Let's put it that way, right? Okay, so. And the, and the perception management engines that push this into your head might actually be acting disproportionately. And the question is why, right? Why is that? Why is this being hammered down everybody's throats now? And which engines are doing it? Well, that's the mainstream media and that's all of the perception management systems like Twitter, Facebook and whatever else, right? And that's not an accident. And the Twitter files show you that it's not an accident. What the Twitter files need to, 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 be, to be focused on is not whether or not Matt, Matt, um, how Matt technically did his job on it. It's what the hell do they say inside? And why the hell are all of these government agencies have free reign sloppy fascistic access to these engines and, and, and can execute comms perception management agendas at will? That's the thing. And, the, and to bring this back to what I started on. Yeah, well, let me just address something really quickly, though. I yeah. can't begrudge a Brianna Joy Gray or whomever else might be interviewing Taibbi about the Twitter files for having curiosity about the logistics of how the process worked, at least earlier on when it kind of just exploded on the scene and you have Elon Musk involved and he's the richest man in the United States. And I mean, obviously, that's, that's going to generate some understandable intrigue I, I wouldn't deny that I myself would have that kind of intrigue just from the standpoint of, you know, how did this work practically? Um, so, I, you know, obviously those questions are valid to ask, but if it ends up being the only thing that you're interested in. Exactly. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Then, the, then your priorities are askew because you're just. I agree. Willfully neglecting the enormity of <laughs> the, the gold. actual substance of the, the revelations and, you know. That's your own choice. I mean, you're yeah. at a certain point, you have to move beyond that initial intrigue once like the itch has been scratched, curiosity-wise, and, and focus on the actual material that's being reported. And very few people seem to be interested in doing that, especially on the liberal left, because they think that it's somehow inherently yeah. beneficial to Republicans slash conservatives. Um, you know, and it is true that they, apparently the Republicans are the ones who invited Taibbi to come testify. But so, so what? Who cares? Yeah. What it, it, it is, was what Taibbi has reported and what he has said in his testimony, is it? True. You know, substantiated, substantiated. Is it merited? Is it logically sound? That's what people should be primarily interested in, not these kind of like second order sort of meta considerations about who might be helped in 2024. You know, I mean, that's, that's just so irrelevant. But that's all yeah. that's all lots of people can really bring themselves to put at front of mind. That the equivalent would be to say, "Hey, Sai, how did you? Um, what was the minutiae of exactly how you wrote every pay, every word on that? Um, and exactly when did you do it? And who were your sources?" Nobody did that. Nobody does that to any journalist releasing a story, true or false, right? But they're suddenly doing it to Matt Taibbi. Why? And the thing is that these people who are actually passively aggressively do right, and that's how they—that's how they were able to. That's how they tried to dismiss Hirsch's report on correct. Yeah. North Street. It's Meanwhile, the New York Times every day yeah. has, you know, paraphrases U.S. officials yeah. making some claim that they even admit is not really tethered to any discernible <laughs> fact pattern. And nobody gives a shit. Yeah. Like, it doesn't even exactly. occur to anyone to question the propriety of that. And, and these, these are coherent, integrated techniques of perception management of the general populace, uh, uh, fundamentally sophisticated propaganda techniques, 
which the Twitter files show you are, are deeply embodied in tech, government and um, private contracts. In the press, no, which tells you again, right, that that obfuscation or suppression is essential because it's another reinforcing propaganda perception management technique. And anyone who doesn't report it and anyone who sidelines Taibbi and his crew are part of the problem. And that's the giveaway. But the, the, the more pernicious thing is that they aren't even sidelining him as evidenced by what happened this past week. Like, it's not as though... Taibbi was being sidelined as in he was just being straight up ignored. It was that an image of what he was doing vis-a-vis the Twitter files was presented to the public as being overwhelmingly colored by his supposedly dodgy arrangement with Musk slash Republicans. And that then gives a license for huge swaths of the public to just ignore completely anything to do with the substance because they just now have been you know, habituated into the yeah. assumption, reflexively, that it's just a political ploy, even though, I mean, the idea that Taibi, if you know anything about him, I, mean, I happen to know him personally, I mean, the idea that he would be at all interested in just running a political ploy on behalf of Republicans, it's just yeah. beyond absurd. It's just not anything that relates to what he is as a person or as a journalist, but that's the image that's being portrayed out there to the, you know, less informed public about the significance of these reports, which is, you know, let's say unfortunate. Yeah. Now, now what also is, 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 is kind of like an example of the loop coming full close, becoming fully closed on this or these techniques is the Russiagate Trump indictment, everything that Trump, all the shit that was thrown at the Trump wall has fallen off, right? And it didn't fall off because um, basically it took time to fall off because it need, the wall needed to get wiped down with the fucking cloth of shitty court analysis, right? And eventually when they tried to test it all in court or in the Mueller report, whatever, it all was shown up to be literally just shit, right? Now I'm not a Trump, I don't support Trump. I have, I'm completely apolitical actually, to be honest, because I'm so cynical, right? But this goes back to... We're kind of in the same boat on that. Yeah. I mean, it's all shit, right? And um, the perception management side of this is key. We all have to go back and ask ourselves, honestly, search your soul. What was your perception of Trump and where did that come from? Did you think he was an absolutely massive tool because he's a hot guy? It came from The Apprentice for me. Or were you, sorry, what was that? <laughs> for me, it came from The Apprentice, you know, the reality Oh, yeah, show. okay, fair enough, yeah. Right, maybe that would be legitimate. But, but di- or did it come from the fact that you were told he was a Russian agent? Did it come from all of these other things, which we know know are lies? If you believed any of it, right, then you have been duped. You have had your perception managed actively by proven liars. And the problem is that that is difficult for people to cope with. And not just that, men- right? I mean, because the Russian agent narrative was... Co-mingled with yeah. other like intersecting narratives that were the most yeah. histrionic, maybe in the history of American politics, like, yeah. you know, actual fascist, you know, yeah. not just installed yeah. by Putin to subvert the American government, but taking that opportunity to impose like a 1930s, you know, Germany mm. t- tyranny. And maybe he was going to be opening up concentration camps. Remember AOC went and cried at one 
And now there's like similar yeah. facilities underway as we speak. And like she hasn't been doing any photo ops. Um, you know, that he was uh, empowering Nazis, anti-Semites, white, uh, white nationalists, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That was hyped to the nth degree as well in yeah. conjunction with the Russian narrative. So it wasn't just the Russian narrative per se. It was how it factored into this kind of all-encompassing hysteria that was kind of cultivated as the characterization of Trump that most people would have absorbed even just by passive um, uh, passive absorption Osmosis. of it's just what was yeah. in the media and cultural ether. Yeah, and also, who 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 said that the White House was full of literal, actual Nazis? Oh, Joel Roth, the head of perception management at Twitter. Funny that, and he was wrong, obviously, because 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 um, otherwise America would have to be now struggling with the idea that it voted for Nazis or it supports Nazis. Oh, hang on, there's another example of it doing that across the other side of the world, isn't there? Right? There are so many ridiculous examples of this that are going to get memory hold, or maybe people can't instantly bring back from out of their memory because it sort of fuses together with every other insane Trump, Trump episode. But shortly after Trump took office in 2017, it was Holocaust Remembrance Day, I think, which is mm. in late January. <laughs> and there was like this um, Kremlinology reading of the statement that was put out by the Trump administration marking Holocaust Remembrance Day, or maybe he didn't, hadn't put it out quickly enough, or something to do with like the administration's acknowledgement of Holocaust Remembrance Day to, to uh, propel this insane hysterical narrative that the presidency to like run some sort of anti-Semitic suppression, you know, state suppression initiative, as though like that was a reasonable characterization of like Trump's mm. instincts and like life experiences. Like he was using, you know, he was trying to, you know, basically do another Holocaust. That was well, I mean, that was said pretty bluntly. Um, of course, you know, that even that was like a bit too, even for like the most ardent Trump, you know, addled um, critics that ended up being a little bit too far fetched for them to entertain for very long. So it kind of faded somewhat, but you know, Never entirely, and there was always this like undercurrent of you know uh, some sort of imminent threat, or that the U.S. was like teetering on the brink of total collapse by virtue of Trump. That really made people just psychologically unhinged in a very palpable way. That you know inter intersected with the um, uh, the uh, the Russian thing, but it wasn't limited to that. And I actually think, ironically and amusingly enough, if people just stuck with the image that was cultivated of Trump by NBC Universal for his hit reality show, they probably would have been better off and they probably would have had a more accurate <laughs> apprehension of what Trump was doing and like what his whole persona was actually geared toward. Um, firing people on TV. Do you really want to make him the national boss? Yes, no. absolutely. Let's do it. <laughs> that's the simple as you need to make it, right? He'll crush ISIS for us and he'll, you know, get along with Putin and everything will be great and... You'll, you'll win so much, you'll be tired of winning. All right, Gator, appreciate your uh, insights as usual. Cheers, uh, mate. Take it easy. Jenny, and then Brody, and thanks to both of you for waiting. I, uh, I am humbled by your patience. Jenny, are you there? Jenny, are you there? There you are. It's a little bit glitchy, so. Oh, is it? Yeah. Yeah, I can hear I was you. 
I, okay. I, I sound glitchy to you? No, the sound completely went out for a few seconds. So really? I don't know if Uh-oh. Okay. people experience that. Uh, I wish Richard was here because a couple of weeks ago, me too. he asked me to share a link to my uh, coverage of this Utah tra- human trafficking case. And because he asked me about it, I decided top of my Substack. I just put the link in the chat. And I shared dozens of the stories I covered during oh, I'll, the first uh, I'll, six I'll weeks. pass that along. Uh, I'll try to remember to pass that along to him, just so you know. Oh, thanks. That'd be great. You know, to your point about the Twitter files, and I, I completely agree with Gator's uh, assessment of what's going on. There was one person who was outed who, her name is Brandy Zadrozny. She's a journalist for NBC yeah. News. She was assigned to this Utah case to write the definitive debunking article. And so she did. And she's one of the people that Matt Taibbi has outed now as, you know, basically complete insider in this, you know, sort of censorious type journalism that we're seeing. And so I, I was cheering when I, his, I saw her name because she has been kind of like the bold. She's been one of the absolute worst over. offenders for quite some time now. So she didn't even have to be outed. She all she had she out, she's outed herself. <laughs> she did. Well, she wrote a book on how to um, basically dox and stalk people on Facebook and unapologetically has called herself the disinformation, misinformation expert. She says she works the disinfo beat. And so it's so interesting that she was the one chosen to debunk, supposedly debunk this story that I've covered now for over nine months. And um, there's more information coming out about that story all the time. I've done dozens of posts and podcasts and made videos. And then some other indie journalists have stepped up. There's a guy on Substack called Investigations in Ritual Abuse, and he's been pounding out some amazing journalism. Most of the What's early the journalists to find her were, supposedly authoritative debunk of this Utah thing. Is it just um, I put, I just put together a post about Matt's testimony at the top of my Substack. It's just the one okay. I did today, and it has a link to Brandy's article. If you just Google "satanic panic in Utah," you'll find it. It's an NBC News okay, got it. NBC News story that she wrote probably about two months after the story broke. And to me, it's just pure propaganda. She didn't bother to interview any of the victims. Uh, she didn't do any sort of deep dives on the past of the people who've been or, who've been arrested. There's been someone who's arrested. Didn't cover that at all. She just zeroed right in on this guy who was running for office named David Levitt. And he, he and his wife are the victims. And he's a good guy. And he's a politician. And you know, it was just so smarmy and, and in my opinion, not thorough investigative journalism at all. You know, it's just a cover. On Capitol Hill, I, I was so. And I just want to be clear. I just want to be clear for my own purposes, Jenny, that when I don't know if you heard me before, but when I kind of expressed this sort of general burgeoning skepticism that I'm instinctive, I'm increasingly kind of inclined toward with regard to human trafficking and so forth. That's just a subject. And I think you and I talked about this in the past. I'm not therefore going to then just give automatic credence to some sort of debunk from a Brandy Zazoni on NBC because I would apply just the same amount of skepticism toward her twist on things because it's probably all in service of, you know, advancing this 
standard sort of, uh, oh, we have to center the Internet because right-wing conspiracy theorists are such a, a clear and present danger or whatever narrative. Um, so just well, want to clarify that like, from my own standpoint. No, and I agree with that. And to Nathan's point earlier, when he was talking about the people who had traveled to Epstein Island, I think it's a mistake to say that anybody who was on Epstein's plane or on Ghislaine's there being told, hey, do you want to go on vacation to this Caribbean island? Come on with me. And they were honey trapped. And then yeah, and come, come, you know, we'll have all these scientists and intellectuals over there and we'll have some great conversation and it'll be this unique, in, uh, enriching experience and so forth. I mean, I mean, if I was like an adult when that was going on and it were presented to me in those benign terms, can I guarantee you that I would have under no circumstances thought that it might sound cool and enjoyable to go to the island? I don't know. If I'm being honest, I don't think so. If I was told that it was a underage sex trafficking ring and that I was going to, going to get myself ensnared in, then no, I wouldn't go. Uh, but if it was being presented to me as just some sort of like intellectual uh, voyage thing where you get to talk to astrophysicists and novelists and celebrities and whatever about like the uh, – zeitgeist issues of the day yeah i mean i could see how that would be compelling and i don't know again i'm just sort of a bit hesitant to just cast with such a broad brush that anybody who's even the most tangentially associated with any of this has like been proven guilty of sex crimes which clearly in the case of alan dershowitz yes was the opposite of the case it backfired and you know alan dershowitz again whatever the heck you think of him on any other issue clearly he was wronged by his reputation being sullied on false grounds for years years and years without any real recourse other than this ultimate sort of legal settlement that he was able to belatedly arrive at with this chief accuser. And again, it wasn't just any person, right? It was the woman who was one of like the lead instigator of the entire Epstein narrative. Yeah. And I agree with you about the Matt Gates story that he was just absolutely muddied in, in the media and there's absolutely no, you know, no story there. Just throw in the mud, see what sticks. And again, I, People calling for the list of people who went on Jeffrey Epstein's plane. I really think they're well-intentioned, but somewhat misguided in thinking that this means these people are all guilty and they were pedophiles and whatever, because they may have just been going on vacation. And so I think it's better to just stand back and kind of let things unfold. Uh, it, it's obvious to me, though, Michael, that there is something off with Joe Biden when his own son calls him Pedo Peter. And that's, you know, proven by Hunter's laptop. That's wait, wait, did that. Hunter Biden called his father Pedo Peter? Pedo, P-O-D-O. Really? Pedo Peter, he does. Was it in He's jest? Uh, I, wouldn't it be nice if we thought that was true? You know, I, I don't know. What do you call your father? Colin and Twitter and stuff, but again... Occam's razor doesn't tell me that Joe, but like the the most simple explanation for who Joe Biden is as political as a political figure is that he's like a chronic sexual predator. Like that just doesn't ring true to me and doesn't seem consistent with the evidence. I mean, there's plenty of other actual issues to focus on with regard to Joe Biden, and to for have to, for people to just have this kind of like reflexive certainty that he has to be sexually depraved, and like that's again the Rosetta Stone to like understanding his like the depths of his depravity. It just seems like a gigantic distraction. 
Sorry. I don't, yeah, I mean... I, I'm, I'm just kind of taking it all in and watching. I have lots and lots of questions. Um, I wondered what you were thinking about the, the bank fail in San Francisco, too. Um, I'm sort of clueless about it. I mean, I've read a couple of articles and seen some of the chatter, but I don't feel like I have much that's intelligent to add, really. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think the open question seems to be if it is a portent of some sort of a wider systemic um, failure in, in the economy that's uh, into, uh, imminent, or at least the kind of banking system. And some people are saying that if there's not like drastic action taken by the opening of the markets on Monday, that there's going to be some sort of ripple effect. I don't know. Um, but it doesn't seem like a very um, <laughs> uh, fortuitous uh, omen. And no, it's in, another, in, in a maybe only uh, vaguely related way, it brings to mind something that I've been trying to tell people with regard to like their predictions for the next presidential election and stuff. First of all, I don't think that people should try to make firm predictions about electoral politics events in the future because it almost invariably makes you look really dumb. Um, I can't tell you how many, you know, left wing, I mean, left and right people uh, online in all throughout 2019 would be telling me with the utmost unflinching certainty that the idea of Joe Biden even winning the Democratic nomination was an absurdity. And, you know, of course, that came to pass. But that's just one example of this. But if let's say that there, you know, there is some sort of ripple effect based on this bank failure, and it does portend some sort of systemic, um, you know, um, uh, contraction of the economy or something. That's why you can't rule out even Trump winning in 2024. You know, people think that there's some kind of structural disadvantage in the Electoral College or something that would prevent any Republican, not least Trump, from from actually winning uh, in, in 2024. Well, I mean, really, you're going to be that confident in that prognostication, even if there's like a major recession or even, God forbid, a, a depression. I, I wouldn't be so sure one way or another. So I guess what I'm trying to say is it just reinforces to me the need to be a bit epistemically humble about the uh, kind of inherent uh, abs uh, uncertainty of the um, you know political and economic uh, dynamics that are going to be shaping whatever electoral outcome we have to look forward to in, a, in two years. Agreed. Thanks for taking my call. All right, Jenny, thanks as always. Uh, Brady, cheers to you for sticking around so long. I don't know that I could do it, but I, I admire you, and again, I'm humbled. Hey, man, thanks for hosting such a cool room. I think this is such an amazing conversation that like, I've really been wanting to have with people for a very long time. Well, I'm and glad to I hear feel that. Like it, it means yeah, I'm not just spitting into the wind. <laughs> No, not at all. This is like this is really touching on the zeitgeist of our bullshit right now, and uh, I think that. Well, if I can do uh, anything, it's that I can I can cut to the heart of the bullshit. Hopefully, yeah, man, I do appreciate that big time. Honestly, it really kind of propels humanity forward in that way, you know. Uh, and so, uh, I think this is all like I think that woke is an organic term that the. CIA, the, the gummy mint, the World Bank, whoever you want to call them, has co-opted and made into a bad thing. It started off 
uh, as a word that simply meant elevated awareness or perspective, which I think we can all agree on, right? Well, yeah, and it really entered like popular nomenclature through the Ferguson episode in 2014 with people like DeRay McKesson who were, you know, in fairness, uh, like artificially, you know, algorithmically elevated by Twitter to um, cover the protests and opine on them. Um, Stay woke was a kind of injunction given to protesters in Ferguson to like be aware of their surroundings, be aware of like the context in which they were operating. Um, be aware of like the grievances associated with the police and the state authorities, et cetera, which I was in sympathy with for sure at, at the time. And obviously, yeah, I mean, like many terms such as these ended up getting sort of morphed and distorted and appropriated for such a wide variety of things that it's pretty much divorced completely from whatever the original genesis was. Yeah. And I mean, uh, we can scientifically measure wokeness. Okay. Like I can explain it to you guys this way. If you think of the opposite of woke is obviously asleep, right? So when you're asleep, you have what we call a low, uh, neural complexity, right? So there's not, you have, you know, neurons firing nonetheless, while you're asleep, you're not dead, but neurons are going off. But the, the, uh, complexity of those, uh, firings of the electromagnetic singling in your neurons is not nearly as complex as when you start to wake up. As you start to wake up, everything starts to light up, you know, and tingle. And that's what we can call your waking state of consciousness when you're coming out of theta or whatever and going into alpha mode, I think. And then uh, beyond that, you have like beta and theta waves or no, I'm sorry, beta waves, which is like kind of like a little more focused, I think. And beyond that, we've even begun to measure what we call gamma waves, uh, gamma brain waves, and even a super gamma or hyper gamma wave uh, brain waves. And it turns out that gamma brain waves can actually repair damage to the brain, um, stimulate new nerve cell growth, uh, increase. It's, it's like it's amazing. It's absolutely fast. Can't REM sleep do something similarly reparative? That puts you into theta. And the interesting thing about theta is that uh, that is the state of mind that people go into when we practice clairvoyance and um, remote viewing and all of these very interesting parts of science that uh, science deniers have been denying for years. Hmm. Well, that's an intriguing tie-in to woke as a political or you know, sociological phenomenon to you know the brass tacks of the this the scientific uh, parallel. It's probably more fruitful of a version of woke to focus on if you actually want to like arrive at actually helpful or beneficial information that could you know exactly. enhance the uh, exactly. well-being of humankind. Yeah, like you remember Batman Forever where Jim Carrey was the Riddler <laughs> and like he invented this like fucking brain drain thing like for the TV sets like oh You my know, God. I never you saw that, that Batman cuz I remember like before Batman oh Begins came Watch out. Okay. I remember before Batman Begins came out was it like 06 the yeah. there was this stereotype of Batman movies as just being like ridiculous cartoons and so I just sort of yeah. bought into that and never saw those 90s versions. I had I waited for like the gritty serious you know, morally complex Batman to come out 
in 2006 because I was, you know, very full of myself. Not really. I never even gave it much thought. I just watched whatever movie I happened to watch. Well, I can tell you the Batman movies are predictive programming by the industrial complex, the uh, by the World Bank, whatever you want to call them, the Octagon. Well, speaking of movies, I just watched – I was uh, on a plane a few days ago coming back to the U.S. from Europe, and I watched the new Top Gun movie, which apparently is – the highest grossing movie of Tom Cruise's entire career. And think of the hits, at the, the, the hit blockbusters that Tom Cruise has been involved in over the years. You know, Mission Impossible and War of the Worlds and Jerry Maguire. I don't know. I'm probably missing a, a, a ton. And, and this is the movie that had, this is the movie that was the most, generated the most revenue of any Tom Cruise movie. And it's amazing because, I mean, on the one hand, it's just a great movie just from a pure, you know, uh, mindless enjoyment standpoint, right? Like you can't help but enjoy, at least I can't help but enjoy yeah, just the theatricality of the movie. Yeah. Right. But it's so unabashed in its propagandistic nature. I mean, it's, it's not even subtle. They look say at the like, very beginning of the movie, they say, look, look, everybody, this like climactic mission that we're all going on and that we're bringing Tom Cruise out of retirement oh, to lead yeah. is like, for NATO, and it's to bomb like this uranium enrichment program in a country that like may or may not be Iran or may or may not be Russia. It's hard to tell. They never specify. But yeah, I mean, it's like just so open that it's almost you almost have to like respect it because like they're not trying to be at all um, uh, underhanded with the propagandistic kind of intentionality. I disagree of the, on the, the respectability of it, but. I understand you could fear it almost. I, I see. I, I would make a distinction between fear and respect, <laughs> you know, and yes. Yeah. Maybe respect is the wrong word, but like all, all, all I'm trying to point it's, out is like, they're not even trying to be, they are about it. You know, like they're just like, fuck you. We're doing this kind of like Elon Musk was like, fuck you. We'll who we have to, you know? Um, and, my only point was that maybe again, maybe respect was the wrong verb, but like there is something notable that they're yeah. not even attempting to be underhanded about just being open about the propagandistic value. I mean, at the premiere of this movie, I saw that the admirable admiral who oversees, you know, the air corps of the Navy that, you know, in the movie is depicted by Tom Cruise and this other, these other people. Um, he attended the movie premiere, the admiral. Of the, like the acting serving admiral in the U.S. Navy attended the movie premiere and was like was posing for photos that I saw with you know Tom Cruise and the director and the producers and stuff yeah. like I mean it's it's all out in the open, um, which again I think you know you would imagine like in this if this was the '60s maybe it might have been a bit more surreptitious no, or something but then again I'm they not sure the movie star maybe I'm just kind of back in the '60s we had our Zelensky of, yeah. in the '60s didn't we Reagan. That was the 80s, 80s, but yeah. Did we have another one before that? And Reagan was the first movie star president. That's when yeah. Californians elected him governor, Who's that? governor in the 60s. Calif- I was just going to say Californians did elect yeah. Reagan governor in the 60s. Yeah, he came so, out of Hollywood know, in the 60s. Pretty much yeah. the same deal. And a product of Hollywood, as, as it would be, you know. And um, yeah, our country's pretty much been doomed since then. And unless, you know, we all pull our heads collectively all out of our butts at the same time, which I think is possible with the use of psychedelics and um, some of the new the new science that I mentioned that's coming out could actually propel us into a golden age of humanity where there is no war, where we have enough food, where we've got housing figured out. You know what I mean? Like and we're also approaching singularity, which is just this amazing moment to be alive. You know, I feel like. 
This is what I'm here to witness. Well, I mean, in terms of psychedelics, there's reason for optimism on that score, right? Because yes, I, mean, I can explain the science for you. So basically, acceleration what's of is, social acceptance of psychedelics uh, today. I mean, I, 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 just, yeah. just 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 quick to set the scene on that, though. Like, if you had told me 15 years ago that psychedelics would be as mainstream a pursuit as they are today, I would have thought that you were People nuts. People still call me nuts. So yeah, there's some for, yeah. grounds People for call optimism. Me crazy every day that's for it still. I got arrested okay. for mushrooms, <laughs> two grams of mushrooms. Uh, it's a felony, automatic felony. Yeah, it's oh, really? one of those mandatory minimums is an automatic felony for any amount of mushrooms. Texas. What state and was that? And so get this. Okay. Yeah, Colorado, yeah, Oregon, great and though, for other people. Know, uh, I'm still working on it here in Texas. Uh, but uh, alcohol destroys glutamate receptors in your brain as well as barbiturates and benzos and uh, Xanax and stuff like that. Destroys your glutamate receptors in your brain, which are responsible for higher cognition like empathy, like theory of mind, things like that. And it turns out that psychedelics actually – this has been a theory of mind for like – you know, psychonauts have all known this for a very long time, for thousands of years. This has been the secret of the Illuminati, you know, and uh, this is the secret of Freemasonry. It's the secret of the Egyptians, you know, the DMT, you know, psychedelics. It's all been there for it's been a controlled substance for thousands of years here on Earth. And it's been only allowed to the ruling class for a very long time. And what it does is it actually repairs your glutamate receptors in your brain, uh, making you less susceptible to advertising and a number of other things, as well as repairing brain damage, like glutamate receptors, which are important for things like thinking, you know? So. No, I buy it. I mean, the first time I ever did, I mean, it's been a while now Everybody since I've done to psychedelics. You know, I mean, like probably 10 years. Yeah, it's the point. ultimate uh, but teacher. I did it a handful of times. And, you, you know, know, I became uh, one of the amazing familiarized enough with it to be conversant to the effects, right? Meditate. And I still, to this day, uh, I was natural, can so vividly recall the sensation of when I first had the psychedelic effects of mushrooms and psilocybin. I'm a little bit of a weirdo. I'm a little bit of a case. And just having such a palpable feeling that like these clutter and the gunk that had built up like in my neural pathways that I didn't even know had like congealed into this like calcified sort of like mental impediment. I just could feel them almost dissolve and like, 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 like that the the cobwebs got cleared out in a way that I, you know, I yeah, still, absolutely. again, years later, really do wish that more, uh, I think everybody were able to experience to in some Honestly, fashion. It's, it's kind of like, it's, a, it's a, amongst ways to become enlightened. It's, uh, one of the more painful and arduous ways. <laughs> like there are better ways to do it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So this is how the mystics put it. They put it like this. They say, uh, well, I envy you. I wish I was a natural meditator. I went, I like, I dove in head first on that at one point, you know, maybe 10 years to a 10 day Um, full on silent retreat. And there were times where it was just anguish. uh, Um, and you know, you feel like you're like uh, climbing up the walls or uh, something and you just can't quiet this. 
noise in your mind um, no matter what you do and it's actually can almost be like physically painful um so no i'm nowhere near you in terms of that being like a natural she takes your hand and just leads you right there really you know consciously trying to cultivate what we're doing when we meditate is we're essentially learning to create our own androgynous dmt and um, we're doing some really interesting things with our electromagnetic. I know, but I kind of like well. at that at the time I did and it, I was kind of like, a, I mean, it's yearning for like just an extreme uh, like experience that was totally different from my like ordinary waking life. So I just starting to decided to do it, you know. And that we have as humans kind of understood on some deeper level for a long time. Great, great, great phrase, great phrasing there. I, I might have to copy that or steal it from you. Cornucopia of biological processes. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> of different put that in my Google Docs at once. Yeah, and uh, it's, it's really like a symphony. Like you have a light body. You know, you have your electromagnetic field, which is what I refer to as the scientific. The scientific definition of the soul or the spirit would be the body's electromagnetic field. And the funny thing about it is, you can't fucking sell it. <laughs> like, uh, but you can certainly subject yourself to some really bad electromagnetic fields, you know, and uh, it also lends some credence to uh, astrology, the ancient science of astrology, because as soon as you factor gravitational fields into the mix, it's like, holy fuck, <laughs> like it really starts to make sense, like why every now and then astrology. You write about something. I mean, it's just the cycles of nature. You can think of it like the cycles of nature. Like, look, certain plants grow in the spring. Certain plants grow in the wind. Like, certain things happen in winter. Certain things happen in spring. That's essentially what astrology is, but on a much larger scale, right? Well, Brady, if you a, have a, a if you if you want to put together a plan to airlift psilocybin. Uh, on a wholesale basis, well, my dude, you, like the Don Bass. I'll do you one better. Um, I actually created I'm, a political in, party I'm called the Proxy so, uh, Party, and I'll, I'll drop a I'll link happily to that work together with chat. you on that. And that's All right, basically Brady, uh, part of the platform already is exactly. Yeah, yeah please do. Yeah, like imagine if you could like, I know this almost sounds like a joke, but like just imagine in theory, if it were possible to put Putin, Biden, you know, Zelensky, Xi, um, and whoever else in a room and just like force them to have like a psychedelic session together wouldn't yield like a po more positive outcome. I find that hard to believe. Uh, all right. Uh, Andrew, do you have a psychedelic update or? 
you want to change the subject. Probably we should change the subject because that can get a little uh, hinky. I had my first psychedelic experience not too long ago. Really? Mushrooms and uh, lower dosage testing the uh, waters, I guess you could say. But I uh, relate to the experience. Lower dosage to the mean, like, uh, would you call it like a micro dosing or was it enough to have like like a full fledged two and a half to two and a half grams, roughly, maybe? Uh, that's not a low. I mean, that's a that 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 has been more than enough for me at various points. So I wouldn't call that a well, particularly low dose. Well, I plan on doing plan on doing more with my friends. Okay. So, I mean, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I know the the feeling of having kind of like the the way I described it was like I could see why people relate to this fungus. They kind of personify it as having like a mind of its own or being an entity that takes over your brain in a way because you. I kind of felt the normal patterns of thinking and behavior and feeling that I'm accustomed to fading away. And if I just kind of leaned into that, I, I, I don't know. Am I making any sense? Does, does this relate? Yeah, you're making sense. I mean, a lot of uh, people who have no familiarity with psychedelics who are listening to this over the past you know, 10 minutes might probably think that it sounds like just in, like insane hippie uh, just blather, but... Oh, really, if you do, have, if you if you have the experience, you can you know viscerally relate to the admittedly sort of you know, highfalutin way in which the impact of psychedelics often gets discussed. Like, how about do- doors of perception, Aldous Huxley? Right. I mean, yeah. sounds a bit overwrought or overstated, right? But no, I mean, once you understand that there are other doors of perception that are accessible within your consciousness that can be opened with certain chemical intervention, then that metaphor is like 100% perfect and accurate and actually describes something that's deeply real. Yeah, to put it in a more clinical way, it just I think it allows you to have a different state of mind, to put it simply. And that's just how I describe different patterns of thought and feeling than what I would be used to emotionally or cognitively. And it's, you know... I've only done it once, so I'm not an expert, but I just related to the feeling. Well, I know for me, I mean, when I first did it, I felt like it had such a profound, like, curative effect on, like, a dep- kind of like a depressive state that I didn't even know I was encumbered by. Like, not that I was clinically depressed or anything, but there was this sort of undercurrent of, like, a depressive, like, impediment that was clearly in existence somewhere in my psyche that I couldn't, I didn't even like have like the resources to fully apprehend. And because of the change in perception that is afforded by the, the uh, psilocybin, you can kind of like chip away at whatever that idiotic sort of hindrance is that just sort of dogs you and that you might not even be like conscious of, but like once you become conscious of it, you realize how you can, how it can be transcended and how you can have a more sort of, um, you know, just a kind of clear and almost appreciative outlook on, on life and how you're even just kind of your reasoning faculties can be improved. Like, I mean, it sounds like a cliche, but the first time I did it, right. Um, I just kind of dabbled on acoustic guitar. I was, I'm not, I'm not like a, a huge guitar player by any stretch, but you know, I just, it was like such a creative, like renaissance for me that I wrote like 10 songs <laughs> nice. and they're actually pretty good, you know, it's cause like it just sort of opens up sort of, um, 
it like unlocks doors within your your psyche that again you wouldn't even have known were in like the room that is your mind to use another sort of questionable metaphor yeah it just looks like part of the wall <laughs> yeah the door, you don't even recognize it's there i i think it'd be especially helpful with psychological aid um i mean i i think maybe veterans with trauma um one of my best friends my best friend works at uh, va and he definitely sees potential in this kind of a thing Oh, I mean, it's such it's such an obviously superior antidepressant than any of the junk Mm -hmm. that gets prescribed in mass to people through you know psychotropics and Zoloft and whatever. I mean, yeah, it's like the efficacy rate. Even when you know most of the studies that have been done that I'm aware of, maybe hopefully they've broadened out the scope of these studies in the past couple of years, but even when they started getting, you know, government approval to do studies of terminally ill pa- uh, cancer patients and stuff who were given a dose of psilocybin under carefully monitored conditions, like the efficacy rate of curing their angst or at least severely diminishing this dread that you would, you know, they very, these people very understandably were, were had and were hobbled by if efficacy rate was something like, I don't know, 70, 80%, maybe even more like, if yeah. anything had that same sort of efficacy rate and it wasn't like stigmatized by the culture and the law, you'd be, you'd, you'd have a, a, uh, you know, an avalanche of people rushing to make sure it was as widely available as possible. But, you know, it's been yeah. a slower process with uh, psilocybin in any way, but I think it's hopefully progressing in that direction. I think it is. It's undeniable to, to, to I mean, even if the, drug itself or the psychedelic itself doesn't cure a person it may open them to different pathways of treatment that they weren't open to before and that in itself could be helpful really but you know i think i think i think you know once you like the you the your neuro you like over time if you're in a depressive state which i have been at various points in my life thankfully not recently but like you grooves develop in your sort of neural network Mm -hmm. that then become just the norm for you. And you're not even like aware that you've been uh, sort of, you sort of habituated yourself into certain modes of thinking. Um, So like if you're stuck in like a ruminative spiral, I feel like there's nothing better that I'm aware of than, than psilocybin to kind of break you out of that, unconscious routine that you found yourself stuck in and then manifests as, you know, depression of one way of one sort or another. Um, so yeah, I mean, to me, if you actually do want to help people improve their mental well being, it's like one of the, it's like such a no brainer and so unquestionably worth pursuing in contrast with, you know, becoming, prescribed in perpetuity, you know, um, SSRIs whose supposed mechanism of efficacy is like not not even even scientifically established and actually has has been, has had doubt cast on it recently. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny what our society stigmatizes and what it doesn't. How many people on mushrooms go around shooting up schools compared to SSRIs? I mean, I got to guess look at these school shooters <laughs> and the SSRIs are a common theme. I'll just say that. Anyway, 
I mean, yeah, this isn't what I called it. Peter Hitchens chronicles this. If you're ever interested, he has like a data running database of like all the mass shooters who have been on uh, Paxil or you know Zoloft or whatever. It's funny when anyway. society stigmatizes and what it doesn't, right? But um, I didn't really mean to get on the sidetrack, even though it was a hey, why discussion. not Saturday night? What the heck? Yeah, um, you know who could use some psychedelics is uh, Louis Mensch. I think she could use a heavy dose. She might be the one person on earth who's like beyond help and even psychedelics <laughs> wouldn't work for her. I just get such a kick out of her sometimes because I saw her like giving tactical advice to people that were like posting pictures of themselves in the field. And I'm just like thinking of how deranged you have to be <laughs> to be like sitting in your apartment with your cat on your head, you know, posting on Twitter some soldier that you're sending to fight. Like... It's just the, the level of pretentiousness and arrogance is just off the charts. It's really yeah. amazing. I don't know if you happen to see the screenshot that I posted on Twitter earlier today of yes, her replying to that guy, Ilya Pramorenka, who's like my number one. I mean, supposedly this guy is like reporting on the front lines, meaning Ilya, but like he always has seems to find the time to like troll me 24-7. So I don't know how... Um, besieged he can really be in the, uh, on the on the front if like that's always well it seems like his main job is handing out money to veterans so I think if anyone who, uh, could investigate that I wonder if Ilya is corrupt himself because he's well, definitely involved in distributing wealth to well I don't know veterans. if you remember this but uh, it, I think it was last September he was putting out like one of his regular solicitations for money right and um, if you looked at the PayPal like it was it was over PayPal. If you look at the PayPal terms of service, it prohibits money going to like hate groups or whatever, and they use the ADL as the authority on what constitutes a hate group, right? And on the ADL website, it still happens to be the case that like the wolf's angle and the uh, you know the, the which is like the logo of the Azov uh, regiment that's still deemed a hate symbol, and yet. Ilya was explicitly raising funds for like you know the heroes and defenders of Azovstal, which is you know dominated yeah. by actual Azov, like actual like ideological Azov fighters. But for whatever reason, uh, you know PayPal didn't uh, intervene why. to uh, to cut off that revenue stream, which you know was just shocking to me. I'm sure you know shocked you. Yeah, well, the first where it went wrong is using the ADL in the first place. But yeah, that's but if you're going to use it, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to hold to the well, standard. Yeah, you know, it's like you have a rule book and then you just throw the rule book right out the window, isn't it? Isn't, isn't that the way things work? Um, the thing I, I missed most of the show, so I apologize, but um, it was pretty good. Know, I gotten it's, it's sort of an unusual one because I've gotten a number of people like go out of the way to praise this particular show for whatever reason. Richard stayed on for longer than usual, and I don't know. I think we had like a, just a good. Uh, Report, uh, rapport or something, but people seem to enjoy this one. Maybe it's because we're kind of like letting loose on a Saturday night in a way that's uh, atypical, uh, or at least it's like just has a different vibe inherent to it than if we had done it on a Thursday as usual. Yeah, it's definitely seems a little more relaxed. So uh, maybe that's the stars are aligned. That's that's what the pod has been needing, right? But um, with the topics that you've talked about, have you talked about uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia? Yeah, we did. We did talk about it. Yep. That's okay. I didn't mean to get. But if you have, like, I'm sure you, you, I'm sure you might, I'm sure you'd have an original thought if you want to. Well, raise something about it. 
seems to raise the specter of multipolarity with China coming in. I'm not sure what you've talked about, but that just seems the obvious surface level stuff. And I wonder. Yeah, if I talked about it on um, Greenwald's uh, Rumble show yes, last night as well. Ooh, um, yeah. You know, I guess because Greenwald said that he was taken off guard by this announcement that China had brokered ostensibly some sort of detente between Iran and Saudi Arabia, right? And I just kind of, uh, I said that from my own, from my own vantage point, not that I necessarily would have predicted with any degree of certainty that this sort of agreement would be announced with any like degree of imminence, but there were a number of precursor developments that made it not especially shocking that that might be in the works. The first being Saudi Arabia and Israel <laughs> uh, amazingly joining together to buck these constant U.S. demands to, you know, basically just sign on to the whole Ukraine program. And despite being, you know, the chief client states for years of the U.S. in that region and having resources poured into their coffers and military backing and et cetera, et cetera, um, the U.S. really hasn't gotten them to budge all that much, if at all. Uh, over the past year, notwithstanding all the you know the grandiose rhetoric about how this is the last stand of democracy that's on the line in Ukraine and so forth, um, and I don't know if you recall, but when when gas prices were at their peak like last summer in the U.S., Biden tried to you know appeal to OPEC to I think it was like cap the prices or I'm going to screw up the economic details of what actually was being requested. But in any event, Saudi, Saudi Arabia up. totally, totally, you know, uh, basically just spat in the face of the administration and uh, aligned with, uh, with, with Russia very, very overtly. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, it, you didn't have to be an expert reader of tea leaves to have some intuition about something like this happening. And then the uh, president of Iran was is, uh, is it Rouhani, I think, or... Uh, yeah, Rouhani, he was in China within the past uh, month or two on like right. an official state visit, as was uh, Lukashenko a few uh, weeks ago. So, yeah, I mean, you see sort of like the outlines of some sort of, you know, arrangement to kind of becoming more clear and kind of coalescing into some sort something tangible. And that uh, is kind of more or less explicitly arrayed against the U.S. as sort of this like counter hegemonic um, counterweight. Yeah, definitely. It seems like, I don't know if I'm making more out of this than it should be, but it seems like a marker to the end of U.S. hegemony. When is the last time China has come in and brokered a major peace between two, conf I mean, this is sticking their nose directly into American, an American sphere of influence, right? And they're doing this with wanting to buy oil and yuan as well, right? They're there are multiple facets that that you know. If you look at South America and what's going on there, there's a lot of you. You just can kind of see blocks forming in different parts of the world where it seems like the American hegemony is really being challenged. And I remember when Trump was elected, reading this. I can't remember his name, but this expert on conflict resolution was predicting that this marked the Trump's elections marking the 
beginning and the end of the American Empire, and that it, it, we're going to lose Europe, and and it wasn't. It was kind of a clairvoyant take, actually. Yeah, you know, I, I kind of in a dramatic sense. It was in a much more gradual sense, which I think is what we've seen play out, basically. Not necessarily because of just Trump, but yeah, I, I propounded like a variation of that thesis during the Trump years. Uh, if you're interested, type in to Google the Spectator Michael Tracy 2018 Trump American Exceptionalism, and there's a column that I did that kind of outlines the, the thesis. Um, you know, it's interesting because Mearsheimer actually demarcates the beginning or the end of the unipolar era as the year 2017. So, you know, from 1991 with the dissolution of the Soviet Union to 2017, according to Amir Scheimer, is how to kind of conceptualize chrono uh, temporally the quote-unquote unipolar era marked by just American dominance and then Trump being this sort of interloper actually does sort of hasten the transition away from that. Um, and you have to, it's, you have to, uh, at least in the way that I've discussed, you have to kind of walk a fine line because although there's this utterly hysterical interpretation of Trump as somehow, uh, you know, colluding with Russia or being this Nazi tyrant who's going to collapse the American constitutional order and destroy the global alliance system for his own, like, narcissistic um, self-aggrandizement. That's, like, one sort of hysterical spin on it. But there's I – would, I, I would always try to couch it as – couch my framing as recognize that there is a grain of truth to that paranoia as to what Trump was seen as representing. Because I think a, a reason why the elite – revulsion to Trump was so pronounced was because there was a recognition that such an anomalous president taking power and him, him meaning Trump being a president who actually even more than Obama, which is ironic because this is what like, cause the right spent years castigating Obama for this, but even more than Obama, Trump kind of declined to affirm like American exceptionalism dogma and cliches. I mean, he would be given written speeches every now and then where he would like just mouth certain platitudes along these lines. But you could tell like when he was actually speaking candidly, including famously with uh, Bill O'Reilly in 2017 at the Super Bowl halftime, whatever, or during the Super Bowl, he did a interview with Bill O'Reilly where he infamously said, or famously <laughs> said that, you know, what, you think we're so innocent when O'Reilly yeah. was trying to get him to denounce Putin? Um, so, I mean, there is a kernel of truth to Trump sort of hastening that transition sort of phase. It's just it was way – it was just like erroneously yeah. and histrionically interpreted by most people, especially like in the D.C. sort of intelligentsia who saw it as like threatening their professional status. And they always said he was an isolationist, right? That was yeah. always the Trump, but he wasn't. Clearly, he was hawkish on China uh, in various ways, and he was not in Iceland. And Russia. He bombed, <laughs> and I, Syria. bombed an Iranian general. Yeah, it, 
So it's it's weird because it, it's almost like it's a paradox that the America first person is against American exceptionalism. But in his own way, Trump was kind of a realist. He was a transactionalist realist. And that's why he was writing love letters. I think among the reasons he was writing love letters to Kim Jong-un and things like that. And He wanted to have the he, Taliban to Camp David. Right, right. So this, And Bolton like, vetoed just, it somehow. It, it, it was a kind of worldview that is more realist. It's less... I don't know, American exceptionalism. I, it's hard to even define what that really means. Well, right, because like if you were if you were if you were if you were somebody who bought into the whole conceit of like Reagan's shining city on a hill and America has this like destiny to be this almost like religious leader. Yeah, like uh, yeah. it's like quasi religious leader of the global order. Then how could you lower yourself to? bringing the Taliban to Camp David, right? That's almost like antithetical to the project that you're supposedly uh, presiding over, whereas too. Trump didn't, yeah. didn't, didn't care about any of that. So he said, yeah, well, why the hell wouldn't I have the Taliban to the Camp David to, to you know, strike a deal? And why wouldn't it be rational to try to entice Kim Jong-un about, like, opening up beachfront properties on, in North Korea? Oh, like have a Trump hotel, like, on the ocean? in North Korea somewhere. I mean, I think that was actually raised by Trump to, to Kim as like sort of a, like a potential uh, benefit that the North Korea could, could reap if they, you know, got to a different relationship with, with the U S. Uh, but so again, like there was something real about Trump representing a shift. Yeah. His attitude from, towards Europe, his attitudes toward Europe represents this shift. Yeah. I don't know. I, I go back I and forth, right? Because people say that, but then you know, what was the actual policy outcome of his attitude toward Europe? Well, it was the strengthening you, of NATO. You could say that about a lot of things, where he said one thing and did another, right? But I think, at least, at a certain point, like what he did or like what was actually done policy-wise, is like the thing that is probably necessary to place a priority on in terms of one's analysis. Sure, but because like I mean, if Trump was an isolationist, was say- then Obama was an was an uber isolationist. I mean, well, Obama never bombed Assad. Obama didn't send lethal arms to Ukraine. Um, so, I mean, does that make yeah, Obama not, even more of an isolationist than Trump? I'm not sure. It's not that he was an isolationist in regards to Europe. I, that's always a misnomer with him. It was that he was more transactional, right? He wanted them to pay for it, right? He wanted them to do things. It was this exception to the ideology of America as this policeman, and we're doing these things like we're, you know, funding European democracy or protecting it because we're just the saviors of democracy. And he's like, no, you're going to pay us. You know what I mean? You, like, say, you say that, but type in Obama burden-sharing NATO, and that was one of the central themes of Obama's approach to Europe as well. Really? Also, Bush's approach. I mean, this is like a, that's like a constant recurring theme of American presidents trying to extract additional defense spending commitments from Europe so that the U.S. wasn't shouldering such a vastly disproportionate amount of the the, the funding uh, uh, you know responsibilities for for NATO. The thing is that because Trump had this extraordinarily atypical rhetorical style and communications kind of approach, and basically treated the presidency as like a pundit platform, people used the the rhetoric and used like the the the, the, the public persona as they're sort of heuristic for understanding what Trump was doing and not to, to, to totally 
dismiss the significance of the public presentation because it's, it's huge. I mean, it's the biggest bully pulpit in the world, right? Uh, but, you know, if it happens to be the case that Obama and Trump pretty much had the same policy aspiration with regard to Europe and contributions to NATO among European member states, I mean, that's got to count for something, right? I mean, that shows a certain continuity that people were kind of, you know, deceived into overlooking because they were so just un- ineluctably fixated on the uh, the uh, brash personal style and the tweets and stuff of, of Trump, which, you know, again, uh, it's worth paying attention to, but it's not the far from the whole story. I think it's really is most of the story, honestly. When it comes down to it, I think his presidency, if he got elected again, would be very similar in that his rhetoric is one thing and the actions end up being another. I mean, he had a, they opened a base, a military base in Poland just because they named it after him, right? It wasn't that a story as really? well at some in, point. In Poland? They, they were considering having a military base in yeah. Poland, and one of the things that were, uh, they were they were trying to do was name it at you know, Trump or something about Trump. Probably. Well, I know the, the, the uh, embassy in Jerusalem that Trump moved has is like either named after Trump or there's like a giant plaque with Donald J. Trump on it that, you know, was Trump's favorite part of the whole experience. Um, so, yeah. yeah I, mean, I just think it's pretty clear he was not, he's not ideological himself. And the, these kind of things kind of surmises transactional persona to me yeah you know i think i think that gets to why that the 2020 campaign was not as effective as the 2016 campaign in lots of ways because after four years of just sort of being subsumed into the mainframe of the like the republican national committee trump did at least rhetorically cast himself as more ideological than he probably really was in that, like, if you look at his speeches and his, you know, public comments in 2020, there's like a lot of stuff about Marxism, which right. I doubt Trump had ever even thought of really in any sustained way in his entire life. But all of a sudden, we're supposed to believe that, like, you know, at 74, he has this like sweeping critique of Marxism and how it's being perpetuated somehow by like Joe Biden's Democratic Party. It just didn't register in the same way I thought as when he had more kind of like a non-ideological critique. In 2016, was Bannon, was Bannon in his 2020 campaign? He wasn't, right? No, he wasn't. He was on the, you know, he was like an outside advisor. He was, he was in contact with Trump, but he wasn't he, formally. In 2016, he was. In 2016, he was. Yeah, he was brought on in uh, in August and was sort of the uh, campaign manager. But I, I don't even. I think people, you know, sort of. There's a tendency to sort of overstate the individual influence of like political Svengali's, like a. Bannon or, you know, at one point it was a Karl Rove or David Axelrod. I'm not even sure who it would be now with, with Biden, maybe Ron Klain, who's not currently in the White House. But, you know, that's... Yeah, I think people, because they like the sort of the palace intrigue dimension of it, they kind of assign more import to those characters than probably is warranted. Um, no, your point I, about the language made me wonder just about that. The, the, why is he talking about Marxism? Because I also found that ineffective as well. Yeah. Because right, sure in 2016, the critique of Hillary was like not – it wasn't that Hillary is a Marxist or Hillary is too left-wing. Yeah. It's that she's the emblem of a corrupt system. Yeah, it was a much better message, and I think it could have been – And more accurate. Much, I mean, like it's almost – it was also like more defensible to make that critique against Hillary because like – totally. There was truth to it, whereas it just like 
kind of was not true that Biden was going to institute some sort of like Marxist system of government to the United States and like expropriate the, the uh, you know, the means of industry and so forth. It was just sort of like one of these typical sort of uh, young, uh, young Americans foundation, you know, conservative ink sort of fantasies that they used to rile up their, their followers and think that every Democrat is like a, uh, is Saul Alinsky waiting to unleash some kind of socialist tyranny. <laughs> right. Secret revolutionaries. That's definitely sounds like Joe Biden to me. Just yeah. waiting for four decades plus to spring into action. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, wh- wh- I do think Trump was ideologically different in that he was neutral or a amoral ideologically. But I, I don't think you can attribute the downfall of American hegemony to just that alone. I really think it's more about the conditions going on in the, in the rest of the world at this point. No, and I don't it, attribute it to that alone. I just think it's a, yeah. it's a, it's a or even. It is a factor, but I think, I mean, it's pretty clear Biden and the team are dedicated to that ideology. And it's, I mean, shit is just flying off in a handle left and right, it seems like to me at this point with between Ukraine going horribly, which I believe it is in terms of we're going to have to abandon it. I do think that's what's going to happen. I know it may seem. Why do you say that? I think that it's going to become a project that. No offense, but like I can, I can vaguely recall you pretty much saying the same the same thing like six months ago. I mean, have you revised any of your assumptions? I don't think so, because I think that it's going very badly for Ukraine right now, and that the assumptions I've had were that the U.S. won't be able to keep up in a military industrial, we could just say NATO, the West, but I mean the U.S. mainly won't be able to keep up, especially Europe, because the U.S. can increase its industrial capacity. I just don't see us going on a World War II uh, war economy footing all out for something in Ukraine. I, I think that if there's Throw Taiwan war, in the mix. Yeah, there would have to be major escalations. In, I mean, if we were going to war in Taiwan as well, I mean, it would be such an insane amount of ammunition. That it, we would need to transfer the whole... I really think it would need to be a wartime economy that wouldn't be so easy to ignore. It would be substantial. It's not like what's going on now. I, well, I, I mean, the industrial mobilization uh, of the U.S. in World War II was unprecedented and had no precedent of anything that the U.S. had ever even attempted to embark upon, really, before or since. I mean, the possible, with the possible exception of World War I, but World War II was a, was a far more... Um, all-consuming effort that the entire population was enlisted in, with you know the government you know, literally seizing the means of production in certain instances, where you know Roosevelt had emergency, you know, asserted emergency authority to commandeer like car factories and stuff and make them into armament factories uh, just by brute force of the coercive power of the federal government. I don't see that as being on the horizon in the U.S., but there's a directionally that's where the u.s is headed um yeah where you know, i just don't think the, that's going to happen in a time horizon that will be able to save ukraine um i don't know i mean i can't quote i can't give you a direct citation of something that you said because i don't remember with any specificity but like let's say and i think you probably acknowledge this is probably a reasonable recollection that i'm making 
notwithstanding the lack of specificity. But like, I, I, I can kind of recall you saying pretty similar stuff, let's say last June, July. I mean, and then it is the case that whatever casualties were incurred, Ukraine did retake a good amount of territory with mm-hmm. the direct operational involvement of the United States, which kind of gets underemphasized. I mean, they actually had generals planning out the uh, stri- strategic and tactical uh, plan. So right. I mean I don't, I don't know. Are, are you are you how confident? I mean, why should you be so confident I'm that there's confident not going to be any that. success of this, um, you know, allegedly looming offensive? I mean, the one in the fall seemed to work. Uh, well, I don't think that it's going to happen at this point. But that it could it could happen. I guess I'm not you know privy to any kind of special knowledge. What I would say is that so when all those tanks arrive, what they're just going to. Them All those the tanks are not that many. Well, I mean, they, you got you got enough for, you got enough for battalions. If they get everything, first of all, the tanks that they said that they pledged, most of them aren't getting there, and they're well, they're trickling um, in. I've seen like, them coming in from Poland and stuff. You know, yeah, slowly like but surely. Yeah, and this is what I mean. Is like, so what are you going to do with those ten tanks? Are you going to sit them in storage, or are you going to deploy them to use them defensively now? Because if you do that, they're going to get destroyed. You can't use them in a counteroffensive. I just don't see a little trickle of ten or twelve tanks at a time, or is it's going to change anything? They, Ukraine had tanks; they got blown up. They had hundreds. Let's say they have. Let's say they have a hundred ready to go and operationally activated, and battalions yeah. that have been strategized out by the U.S. for this like armored combat formation where you know they, they make yeah. use of the training if they get they're getting in the uk and oklahoma and at uh they're, you know uh, ramstein and the, and you know i don't know i i, I think they're it's foolish mad. to underestimate i don't know i just i just I, I'm, I'm not anywhere near confident yeah. enough to make a sweeping statement about how you know anything is certain in this i mean i think there's inherent uncertainty well, to war that people sometimes gloss over I think war is more predictable than you could actually it comes down to a numbers game actually and it it, it you know the numbers favor Russia in this equation I believe unless you look at direct NATO intervention I and I don't think that's going to happen necessarily I do think there's going to be a push for it but I don't think it's going to happen but did I you honestly could, predict the course of the war like when it first started on February 24th you honestly could have predicted the how the the Kiev offensive or faint or whatever you want to call it that whole episode you really could have predicted how that would have unfolded no. yeah no not that no i well i would say that it's probably likely that in retrospect if they only had 60,000 troops that they weren't going to be able to take a city of 3 million i think that's pretty obvious and could have been obvious at the time once there was stiff resistance that whole thing fell apart and if I recall correctly, the shape of the war changed very quickly within like a week or so. Is that roughly correct? Because I remember there being about a week and a half of uncertainty as whether Kiev was going to be even in in a in it because Kiev itself was never penetrated by Russians. It was like Ipern was the closest they got. No, no. The uh, the uh, the my understanding is, and I've talked to you know analysts who were very intimately involved in like assessing intelligence and stuff not that i necessarily think that they have to be right because of that but because you know they're not i've talked to people who are not trying to actively bullshit me as far as i can tell who um relate the chronology of 
Russia having achieved its objective of getting to Kyiv within a day or two and then not proceeding further to actually even right, approach like anything that would have been like an occupation of Kyiv. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But, but at the time, like, I mean, I don't, uh, at the time when it was happening, who the hell is to say what was actually going well, to be the, the course of action chosen from the military or, or political leadership of Russia? I mean, they could have I don't know. tried to do I a brute offensive into Kyiv, uh, theoretically, but they chose not to. I mean, I just don't yeah. know. I mean, again, I try to retain as best I can, like, epistemic humility. And if I reflect back on, like, that first week last year, I didn't know what was going to happen. I had had no reason at all to think that I could predict what that trajectory was going to be because there were so many variables and, and uncertainties and uh, ambiguities. Um, so I, I know I, th- I think it's worth kind of trying to draw on that again, just sort of a well of, of epistemic uh, humility, even if things feel like they've settled into a more predictable pattern now, because that seemed like that that was also the case before the Kharkiv offensive and so forth um and then well, yeah yeah the chips fall Pre- fell where they did predicting a war is really ridiculously hard um i think even just keeping track of what's happened in a war and having a perspective on it through the fog of war is hard enough let alone predicting something but i do think that you can look at some things that happened where the two big offensives where Ukraine retook land didn't really get them that much closer to winning the war. It, it, you know, it's not like a video game where you capture an objective and you get points. It's, um, this is why I said it's a numbers game because you have men and material or material, however you want to pronounce it. And when those are degraded, that side can't fight anymore. So on what does winning the war mean? I mean, that's, that's another just winning the war definitional means, ambiguity. Well, you tell me that yeah, Ukraine be, uh, successfully expelling Russia from Kharkiv and Kherson were not in furtherance of their war aims? It could have been in furtherance of their war aims, but I'm saying it doesn't necessarily mean that Russia's closer to defeat because it matters how it happened. And in, in Kherson especially, the Russians basically didn't take any losses pulling out, or it took very few losses, and they didn't have a bunch of people captured. It wasn't a thing where they had... 10,000 troops surrounded and killed and surrendered. They just pulled out and they got their equipment out. And in, in uh, Kharkiv, it was much sloppier, but it still wasn't mass losses of manpower. And if you would have seen that kind of a thing, it, you can bet Ukraine would have been parading it on propaganda. Okay, but the end and, result is that Ukraine did retake territory again, thanks to the extremely intensive operational um, involvement of the U.S. in large part. But they didn't get. I, it I, I just think it's. A, I think it's they like a, a, a bit, a bit, a bit. I think it's kind of questionable, like post hoc rationalization, to say that like retaking major cities is not somehow an advance. Doesn't of it the depend on the cost? Warriors. Uh, I don't know. Does it? Yes, yes. Because if your military runs out of men and material, you no longer have a working military. It doesn't matter if you capture a city if you can't hold it in the next three months because you've run out of manpower and things to fight the war with, which, by the way, is what they are reporting in Bakhmut. Have you read the Kiev Independent writing about this? I mean, it's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. Fucking I Kiev Independent. So you've yeah, they're, they're using, they're, they're, using they're, they're using World War II artillery shells. 
and they are firing like a fifth of what they want to be because they don't have ammunition. And this is in a nutritional war where there aren't like giant movements of thousands of tanks across open plains. This is literally take a couple hundred meters and blow it up at a time and fight over it and then walk backwards and forwards. Who do you think is going to win that war? It's the one with literally, this is a direct quote. They not a direct quote, but the numbers are direct is that every time a Ukrainian gun, meaning artillery gun fires in Bakhmut, they are responded to by 19 guns. So every one artillery fire they get off, the Russians are going to fire 19 back. Who do you think is going to win? This is representative of the entire war. This is what I mean by a war by numbers. And yes, it is important in terms of morale and politically, in which I believe I said this at the time. I said I don't think it's going to be impossible for Ukraine to retake Kherson. But one, I think they're going to lose a lot of people and uh, material doing it. And two, I think it's going to be mostly a political win. And strategically, I mean, okay, they pushed them across the river and now they're across the river. And can you strike Crimea? Maybe a little bit. It's not really a huge game changer, but if they lost, that's why I'm saying it depends on the cost. And I don't know the numbers and no one does because Ukraine won't say, right? Who's, who's going to say whether it was worth it or not? Only Zelensky and a couple of United States people probably know and maybe a couple, you know, here and there. But it's obviously not open to our knowledge. All I can say is that Ukraine has a smaller population and that they've got no economy and that they're entirely dependent on the West and they have no yeah. military industrial complex and everything they're using... So this is a matter of willpower and ability, and Europe does not have the ability to fuel this war militarily. They simply do not. They're saying this right now. This is why their countries that pledged tanks are going, in second thought, we're not going to send these, or we're going to send you some. Well, they haven't said that. I mean, you say that, I mean, you say that, but like, look at the commitments of material that, you know, recurrently come out of even like a in Norway and stuff. And like every so often randomly it's reported that some of the most assertive countries and like intensifying the furnishment of arms are like the Netherlands and places that like you would never have expected. I'm not saying that the Netherlands can alone supply the war effort. Right. But you know, I I don't see, I mean, cause I remember like Last, I don't know, May, June, July, being assured by people who were of this more of like a bent that's a kind of reminiscent of yours. I'm not trying to generalize or be sure, um, yeah. de- 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 denigrative at all, but I-, I can't tell you how many times I was assured that you know there's going to be a mass mobilization in Europe against the war effort, and the governments are all going to collapse, and you know the economic tumult is going to precipitate all this like massive upheavals and just you wait it's just a matter of time well i don't know none of that really seems to happen it seems like the economic uh damage that was foreseen over uh, for the winter in terms of energy prices was probably a bit overstated Scholz, i was because i was just in germany i mean Scholz delivered a speech right before he went to the u.s to the Bootenstag, where he i think accurately if you look at the data reported that um you know prognostications of germany's economy somehow collapsing because of the you know the the, the drastic shift in, in energy supply uh, never never came to pass so I don't know is that consistent with what with what people of this kind of more skeptical bent would have um, 
anticipated uh, in in you know this last spring or summer. I don't, I don't think so. I think you know. So that's just all the more reason to retain some degree of humility and uh, not think that you know you have you got the whole thing figured out. Especially with again a phenomenon as just in, in inherently chaotic and unpredictable uh, as war, which is like you're hard, you'd be hard pressed to find a phenomenon that has ever existed on Earth that is more <laughs> chaotic or unpredictable yeah. than war. Or lied about more. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, think of our, think of our information deficit. Like, we don't even have, like, the basis to make rational de- de- determinations as to the likelihood of this or that outcome, given what's being concealed or given what's being propagandized. Yeah, it, it's definitely something where I wouldn't put money on it, right? But I just have opinions and gut feelings, and it's not no, like I'm directly invested. So, but I, I do, I do see what you're saying. Where there were a lot more bleak prognostications about the winter, especially, and they did have a mild winter in Europe, from what I understand. So that's lucky in a, in a sense, and I think that might have helped. But there's definitely, I mean, you saw the thousands of people protesting in Germany recently, right? I mean. There's, yeah, I saw it. I, mean, I was, I was, I was there. I mean, it was like you know, yeah, a modestly sized protest. Not anything to just dismiss out of hand as irrelevant, but you know, a few tens of thousands of people in Berlin, like you know the, which would be the locus of any kind of protest activity, is like not necessarily <laughs> representative of the of the entire country or what the like political incentives are necessitating. I mean, just like it's, it's, it would be um, foolish to over-extrapolate a protest like in the United States that is like some, being de- like declared to be representative of the sentiments of the entire kind of cross-section of the population. No, it's like a particularly animated exercise minority that can mobilize, you know, a modest turnout on a Saturday afternoon. I mean, it's, it is what it is. Proof of a strain of it running through society is what it is but how what that means politically is a different question obviously and i don't know enough about politics in any of these european countries to say it just seems that over time as this costs more maybe there will be more opposition to it but i mean especially with things like the nord stream pipeline i mean i guess that just isn't something that gets to uh be discussed in reality in <laughs> it's like we're living in a double world right? but it could just as easily be the case and i think this is probably more borne out than the alternative explanation it could just as easily be the case that the longer a war drags on the more hardened feelings are on the war the more intractable the consensus is the more difficult it is to actually shift opinion away from the kind of single-minded pursuit of victory. I mean, look at how radicalized both Ukraine and Russia have gotten respectively in their war aims compared to February or March of last year. It's like night and day. So I don't yeah. know why there shouldn't be a similar well, effect in in Europe. I mean, I'm open to different theories, but it seems like that's at least, at the very least, a plausible one that it could actually, you know, the, the, the protraction of of the war is actually serving to you know uh, reinforce the pro war attitude because like it's like a sunk cost fallacy you're in it right it's, yeah. it's been ascribed with all these grand ideological implications now what all of a sudden you just relent and hand over the rules based international order to Putin because energy prices went up four percent in a in a month or something I mean it I mean that's kind of 
don't know. It just doesn't strike me as particularly plausible. I do think that's going to be the ultimate resolution, though, is that we walk away from Ukraine, and I think it's going to happen within. Well, I'll tell you what I think the ultimate resolution is, and I've been uh, unfortunately I haven't gotten this article done as quickly as I would have liked because um, I would have liked to have it out by now. But you know, it has required a bit of circumspection in how I report things, and I had to get you know additional. It's just been a process, right? I, I mean, I think it's. Pretty plain to me, and this is drawing on my experience at the Munich Security Conference, which is like ground zero of radi- the, the, the radicalism, the newfound radicalism of the so-called Western security establishment. What they're aspirationally setting out as the, quote, end game, people like to use that word a lot, is to attempt to foster regime change in Russia. I think that's what they're setting out toward. Whether that's a tenable goal to pursue is like a separate question. But it seems like that's the consensus as to what needs ultimately to happen in order for there really to be a resolution to the war. Um, Does this require them to fund Ukraine at the same time? So they have to help Ukraine fight and overthrow Putin? Or is it well, they, they to have just to let Ukraine you lose and then overthrow Putin? Because it, no. it seems to me if the end goal is to get rid of Putin, I don't understand why Ukraine is part of that. Ukraine, they, they view the Ukraine war effort as a necessary non-negotiable vehicle by which to achieve the regime change objective. Right. Okay. So victory for Ukraine is a prerequisite to the ultimate goal of you know, actually getting rid of the Russian federation or the russian sort of like an imperial state as they say it exists because if the foundational problem is not addressed meaning just the actual composition of the of like rus as it uh, exists in its current you know state manifestation if that's not addressed then there's not going to be any resolution um so you know that's why gary kasparov was there lobbying along with this guy you know katakorsky and these other, you know, so-called Russian opposition leaders to be installed through means that they haven't really spelled out with clarity quite yet. But, you know, I, I got them to allude to things, at least. What they want is uh, ultimately to have you know, the U.S. be the, the muscle in uh, installing them as like this technocratic council in Russia. And to once regime changes is fostered that's that's really the because if you look at how mutually irreconcilable the war aims are of the respective parties i mean people talk about negotiations not being on the horizon it's beyond that at this point it's like this gulf that it's almost impossible to fathom like how it could even approach to be uh, bridged at this point so they're they're going all out on the maximalist uh, war aim i think and you know, they, well, and they've also convinced you. themselves that the nuclear risk is not anything to be particularly worried about because Putin was revealed to have bluffed about his supposed quote red lines, which is like just a cliche that they love to invoke yeah. um, oh, over the fall. Delusional. So they're 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 emboldened by Putin supposedly being feckless as to his nuclear threats, and they don't and they they have this term that they use: um, we can't self deter, so we can't. De- deter ourselves from what is necessarily necessary to to do militarily just because uh, uh, otherwise we're capitulating to putin's nuclear blackmail which he's already demonstrated 
is toothless, uh, given that you know he annexed these territories and didn't do so anything does, about it. Does that include na- direct NATO intervention? What was your feel on that topic? Because I don't understand how they think this is utter delusion. This is utter delusion to think that they're going to overpower the Russian military by sending ten tanks a month and not. <laughs> I mean, not enough. So they have to win in Ukraine, and they're going to overthrow Putin. But they're not going to do this with NATO intervention. I don't understand. Well, I mean, the longer it goes on, the longer, the the more opportunities there are for some incident that could be cited as necessitating direct NATO intervention. But I think they want to do what you and I have talked about a bunch of times, which is the strategy that Lloyd Austin articulated back last April. Actually, Kamala Harris in Munich last month gave a speech, hardly covered, really, at least this part of it, where she echoed what Austin said, saying, look, the strategy is working. Russia is being Weakened. She actually used that word, weakened, the same word that Austin right. used in a- a- April. So, no, I, I think that the preference would not be for any sort of overt NATO intervention. It would be for the protraction of the war, which gradually weakens the state capacity of Russia. And then through, like, maybe some nudging, some gentle nudging, that would lend itself to a circumstance whereby regime change could be facilitated. Again, obviously... So There's a lot of ambiguity there as to what that would mean in practice, but I think that's the yeah. clear aspiration, and I have lots of evidence that I'll, uh, I'm going to be publishing relatively soon, so I'm happy for you to review it and tell me if oh, it's possible. You. Yeah. I think it sounds exactly like what – I. it's delusional. It's absolutely delusional, and that's why I believe it. See, I don't know because if it is. I mean, I, I again, here's the epistemic humility instinct. Kevin. Is it delusional? I don't know. I, I mean, the well, U.S. – uh, I, I, You know – the U.S. played a big role in dissolving the Soviet Union, didn't they? I mean, not that it was the only factor or not that there weren't other factors that contributed to that geopolitical event. But, you know, the U.S. had a role. Um, I don't know. A lot of people thought that that was an utter impossibility for a long time and was delusional to even contemplate as anything approaching realistic. I'm not sure that there's – I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, the U.S. is the world's – it's still the world's <laughs> – top hegemonic power for a reason it can get a lot of shit done yeah i just don't think this is going to be possible to do without direct nato intervention and i do think that there's going to be a day or a a week or a month where reality reaches these people where when something (laughs) i can't predict it they're setting up the legal framework to prosecute putin and imprison him him even in Uh, a u.s administered court well, I it doesn't seem like they're, they're. It doesn't seem like they're um, having some sort of epiphany as to the folly of their no. policy goals. I mean, reality will hit them in Ukraine because the thing about war is that you can lie about it for a, for a period of time, but war is, you know, as they say, politics by another means, right? And it's going to come to a resolution. I do think it's going to come to a resolution within a year or so because I don't, I don't think Ukraine has lost. 10,000, 20,000 people or whatever they said. I think it's much higher. I think it only makes sense that it's much higher when you have undisputed reports of a 20 to 1 artillery advantage to Russia in a war where the basic objective is stay in this trench and don't die. I'm pretty sure the one with 20 times more artillery is going to win that. And it's just a matter of numbers. And I feel like that's the reality that they're going to come up against one day or another. And I don't know when that day is. Because well, a year from not- now, this this industrial mobilization that's already well underway. Look at the National Defense Authorization Bill from last December. The, all the ingredients are there. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, we're going to be a year into that mobilization. No, it's not going to be on the same order as World War II, but it's going to be on it, a level that dwarfs anything in the past several decades. Um, I, yeah, you should look at the output. And I think it would be helpful to, I don't know who should be spoken to about this, but someone to look at the numbers and actually crunch the numbers. Because these are pretty simple things, I would think. If you get the right reporting and say, what is Ukraine asking for? What do they say they're using per day? What does that mean per month? What does that mean per year? And then just say, okay, what are we going to say? What 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 is our plan for this year? How many are we going to be able to produce? And by the way, is that the total production for the whole of the United States then? Because that's not all going to go to Ukraine. There's still going to be purposes for the United States to use that for ourselves. Well, they so say because they say for OPSEC, I mean, all that info is yeah, well, uh, kept, kept, uh, kept secret. So even the U.S., I mean, continually claims like April Haynes. I think she just repeated it this week when she was testifying before the House and Senate intelligence committees that they still, just as she said last May, have less insight into like the operational status of Ukraine than they do, than they do Russia. Now I'm not sure I totally believe that, but that's what they at least insist. That's, just, that's why we get these constant, you know, magazine type uh, pieces in the Washington Post and the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal about like the scale of Russian casualties. But there's almost nothing comparable coming out about uh, Ukraine. Is it a massive conspiracy to? suppress that information that otherwise the journalists and editors would have available to them. Uh, I mean, I think there's got to be an element of that, um, just given the social pressures and the desire not to, like, jeopardize Ukraine operationally or what have you. But I do think it would come – if that information were available, it would come out somewhere at some point, right? I mean, it's too leaky of a sieve to think that that would be kept away and hiding for, for perpetuity. And then also, Andrew, I mean, think about this. In terms of the – multivariate like uncertainty here we don't know what's going to happen in the pacific theater i mean yeah avril haynes said this week okay in a exchange with a republican member of congress i posted the clip a few days ago his name is chris stewart republican of utah chris stewart was saying look Based on Biden's public statements about Taiwan, where he's overtly pledging that the United States will militarily come to the, quote, defense of Taiwan in the event of any incursion by China, which is effectively a pledge that the U.S. will go to war with China over Taiwan. In light of Biden's repeated statements to that effect, why don't the, why doesn't the U.S. just formally abolish the one China policy and enter into a explicit uh, kind of war posture with uh, vis-a-vis China? And she says, you know, is that what we're doing? I mean, is that what the president is suggesting that the U.S. has entered into with his comments? And Avril Haines, the director of national intelligence, basically confirmed that it was. I mean, it's startling. This stuff doesn't get covered because we have to have, you know, uh, minute-by-minute updates on the latest trans controversy. Um, But, you know, probably of a significance that you would hope this would actually be put out into the public domain so people can understand the implications of what the government is saying it's doing. Um, well, that's, you know, this in this precursor to a, a global cataclysm. I don't think the news knows how to cover this. I mean, they don't know. They don't know how to do anything off, other than read off a script half the time, in my opinion, and unless it's a very clear story. To me, if the U.S. wants to put troops in Taiwan, that fundamentally contradicts the one China policy because we have troops in China, which is incoherent to me. 
Well, they had troops in Taiwan now for. I mean, okay, they just so. announced that they were doubling the deployment a few weeks ago. I think Clearly actually, we're, yeah. <laughs> that's not a so. one-China policy. Then we don't. That's an answer to the question right there. We don't see it as a one-China clearly because if we did, we wouldn't have troops in China. Right. I mean, on, on consistency grounds, the Republican congressman was right. I mean, it doesn't make sense to kind of keep up this illusion that the one China policy is still like the actual policy. That's I'm being worried that we're. I'm worried that you're. I've heard from circles that I've listened to for the last year, just because of the Ukraine war, and they're pushing this idea that the U.S. wants a war with China by 2025. I'm sure you've heard this from some policy paper by some Air Force general or some Air Force yeah, yeah. Uh, officer thinking that if we don't do it by then, it's, you know, we're going to miss our window, essentially. And, right. And, what's the, and, what, and what is the U.S. going to claim it must do in light of that, that it has to bolster the defenses of, you, of Taiwan even more expeditiously as a deter, on, on the, in the name of deterrence, which, yeah. I mean, how did that work out? How did that whole deterrence strategy work out in Ukraine? They're, they're yeah. doing it in Taiwan, but on steroids. It's now, as we speak, yeah. it's, no, it's, pro it's provocation. Yeah, it's and instigation. This is what Russia says. The longer range weapons you give them, the further we're going to push into Ukraine. It's the opposite of deterrence. It's it's a it's it's inviting further aggression. Clearly. And did you see what she said? I I don't know. People tell me that G is not the correct pronunciation of Xi Jinping, but I'm just going with it because it sounds naturally uh, correct to me for whatever reason. So, did you see what G said? Uh, I think Monday. He made the most blunt kind of denunciatory statement about the United States geopolitical designs that he's ever made. He says that the, the U.S. is trying to encircle and contain and basically destroy China. The foreign minister expanded on it saying that the U.S. is trying to um, basically bring about a – NATO of the Indo-Pacific, and the Indo-Pacific as a term is just like another nonsense, but that aside, the U.S. is do it, trying to replicate the NATO strategy with regard to China and encircling China. And that's yeah. going to necessitate China take, you know, drastic action. Um, so when people talk about 2025, I'm not so sure I'd be complacent about there being that long of a time frame here. It seems like things are pretty rapidly accelerating. I agree with that. I think the House voting unanimously to de declassify the information on the origins of COVID also seems very suspicious to me. Just very odd timing right after our, uh, you know, three week long seizure over some balloons. We're now talking about the origins of COVID again. Like yeah. the, it that just leak, about, the leak about the treasury department or, um, was it the Treasury Department? Yeah, the Treasury Department, right? Having come to this apparent conclusion with low the department, confidence. Department of Energy. Energy, sorry, yeah. Energy. Department of Energy having apparently come to this. First of all, why does the Department of Energy even have an intelligence wing in the first place? Nobody really well, seems some to kind ask of that. labs, apparently. Well, whatever they have. Science. Low, it was like low to moderate, com I think it was low confidence in was, the conclusion. Right. And, and, when, and what was it? Remember when that came out? That was like two days that was within a matter of days of Blinken first seeding this claim, really a rumor, at the Munich conference that Russia was on the verge of right, receiving right. arms shipments from China. Right. So all of a sudden you have another, you know, 
and you know, China a leak that's clearly would have the effect of like ramping up antagonism toward China. You know, almost uh, released in in um, quick succession. So, I mean, yeah. it's clear I mean, they're I, priming us. They're priming us. Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've always, I've never, th- I've always thought that you know the, uh, you know, I agree with pretty much the consensus now, uh, and I wrote about this at the time, like over a year ago, that the idea that contemplating the lab leak as a plausible theory for the origins of COVID ought to be like prohibited and it's like racist or something. I mean, that's ridiculous. Of course it's plausible, but like, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, clearly it's, that's being used as part of this propaganda strategy of whipping up yeah, no, antagonism and, and, and passions and what have you. Nothing is true in America. Even when it's true, it's just used for some yeah. other purpose. It's just amazing because I I was on the same boat with the origins thing and it it did seem very odd to me, certain things about the virus and certain qualities it had. And the, you know, one of the biggest pieces of evidence that it came from a lab is the fact that we still haven't found the animal it came from. (coughs) How many of these global pandemics have we seen where we just can't ever find the animal of origin? It's just not historically how things have worked three years out. So I know the saying uh, absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence, but this is a case where that absence of an animal is actually pretty crucial because it's not like no one's been looking. Right. And well, I'm I'm happy that I've been able to look at photos of the pangolin. Have you seen that animal? (laughs) No, I'm not sure I was ever knew that about pangolins before, but they're pretty interesting animals. They're like native to China or something. They look like almost like cuter, scaly, smaller aardvark. Things. Hmm. Type in pangolin and then uh, feast your eyes. Yeah, I mean, because uh, what was I going to say? Oh, damn, Just, I lost my train of thought on the lab leak thing. The, 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 the lab leak thing in general is pretty, you know, I don't understand oh, why. Oh, Ron Unz. Have you ever been to unz.com? <laughs> don't go if you don't want to go down a rabbit hole. But, I mean, okay. the, the guy, this guy Ron Unz, he's like some sort of, I don't. Uh, he's like a computer science genius type who, all of a sudden, within the past like fifteen, twenty years, devoted himself to basically political analysis. And he has like archives, of, like every publication ever. In uh, like, you, if you would need like something from the New Republic from nineteen fifty one, you go to Unz. Oh boy, um, that's a trove. But his uh, and he has like he has a series called American Pravda. Which is really good. I mean, it sounds like a bit of a melodramatic uh, series title, but like, I, I mean, if you really want to rabbit hole, look at his World War II stuff. I know people are get fed up with me when I go on my World War II rants, but I, you know, unfortunately, continues to be relevant. But anyway, his he recently said, and he's not the total arbiter of metaphysical truth. But he said that, and, and he was and he was kind of like a paleoconservative initially, but he's shifted somewhat. It's hard to really pigeonhole him ideologically. Um, but he's now of the view that more likely than not, the origins of COVID was an op, like a secret op among factions of the Trump administration to launch, you know, to do like a bioweapon of some kind. Maybe the bioweapon is not the term exactly, but basically it was a, it was engineered by, you know, ardently anti-China elements of the Trump administration to then pin on China 
And that's the origin of it, not just a benign leak that we can blame China for, but something that was deliberately engineered by, you know, factions of the U.S. government to to kind of accelerate this drive toward conf- confrontation with China. Which I don't know if that's true or not, but like, Unz is one of these people who, if he has like a f- resolute theory about something, yeah, I'm going to entertain it as at least worth um, taking seriously. I mean, it's not the craziest thing in the world, honestly. I, I The fact that we were even involved in a, in a lab, the, the story itself is so crazy, even without something that would seem conspiratorial, that adding the conspiratorial angle is not much of a leap for me at this point. Because I think, I mean, Eric Weinstein has talked about this, and I kind of agree with his angle on it, that it was, at the very least, EcoHealth and this whole lab was a way of the U.S. at the very least monitoring U.S. Uh, or China Chinese bioweapon technology by doing some kind of joint research with them, and I think that's pretty clearly part of the history here. Because if you look at this lab, it's it's not it's not up to standard for the it's like a BSL level two or whatever it was in in reality when it should have been like a four. And this is just, I mean, things about safety procedures and just things that we should clearly were were huge red flags just for any facility working with kinds of uh, pathogens that, I mean, the whole thing, it's like a red flag that it existed in the first place saying, look at me, I'm an outlier. And then, then we have this virus that comes from there. I do think that the U.S. is connected in some way, I don't know about a bioweapon release, but it, it honestly doesn't seem that out of. Well, here's the bottom line per Uns, and he started basically promoting this theory almost two years ago now, and he's kind of reinforced it as time has time has gone on. I think I saw the most recent article maybe within the past month, but here's what he wrote in June 2021. Quote, we are left with the strong likelihood that COVID came from a laboratory and was designed as a bioweapon. China was the intended target, and America seems the likely source of the attack. The most likely suspects would be rogue elements of our national security establishment. The virus and its dispersal devices might have been obtained from Fort Dietrich and CIA operatives. Uh, Fort, from Fort Dietrich and CIA operatives would have been sent to Wuhan to release it. Now, there's not hard proof behind some of those claims, I fully grant, but like, is that That's really so far this, yeah, outside yeah. the realm of possibility that you dismiss it? Well, are you aware with the history of our Navy spraying, I believe it's San Francisco, some city in California with a what they believed was a benign uh, virus, essentially, or some kind of bug where it actually ended up killing people and they got sued over this? So, I mean, we've tested yep. these things on our own population. It was literally a weapons test, but because it was supposed to be inert and not actually hurt anyone, but the bug, you know, affected some old people apparently and they died or whatever. But so, yeah, I mean, things like this are not outside the realm of possibility in my book at all. But I do think that there is, whatever you think of the COVID, there's clearly an escalation with China that's on the horizon. I don't know if that means a war or what, but even if it looks like it might be a war, I don't see how the the current industrial campaign for Ukraine could continue unhindered when we're already struggling to support it now. And then we're going to go to war in, 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 in Asia and who knows where that would stop. If, I mean, the, the whole thing is just so unimaginable. 
I just, I mean, it's, it's, it's almost like a plan to destroy the United States to fight two of our major competitors at once in a, it, it, to, in a way that just completely drains the U.S. military. It doesn't make any sense to me why it needs to happen the way it's happening. But it, it does seem like the only chance that we get out of Ukraine is that we see, to me, that I believe what you're reporting, that these people are hell-bent on regime change. And I think that the only thing that could stop that pursuit is a, a, a kind of pivot to Asia and a, and a realization just because of the course of the war that unless we directly intervene with NATO, this is not going to work out the way we want it to. Maybe we can have an insurgency or something, but this campaign, the way they intended it, is not going to work, I don't think, in a, in a year's time, especially if then they're going to have a war with China that's just incomprehensible. That's, I mean, millions and millions of artillery shells, literally millions and millions of artillery shells just to do that. It doesn't make any sense to me. So I don't well, know. one thing to bear in mind, one thing to bear in mind is that although it gets memory hold and it is utterly excluded from the conventional narratives around like the historiography of World War II, which basically is understood today as like a fairy tale, People contemporaneously were saying basically verbatim variations of what you said there about how, like, this just doesn't make any sense. Are we really going to do this? Remember, there had been a world war like uh, 15 years before (laughs) Um, or, you know, 20 years before that, that the entire political class cross ideologically had agreed could never be replicated and that the United States was going to insist on neutrality in order to avoid ever getting embroiled in again. And then lo and behold, you know, security guarantees are given to Poland and one thing leads to another. And the United States is like, you know, providing the arsenal of democracy, not just to Britain and France, but to the Soviet union and Joseph Stalin. I mean, think about how nonsensical so much of that would have seemed to people contemporaneously right but it just everything just sort of coalesced into place and all of a sudden before you know it it's like a foregone conclusion that the u.s is going to be in yet another global war um so yeah a lot of it doesn't add up a lot of it sort of defies like a basic kind of rational interest test a lot of it seems like ideologically blinkered more so than any kind of you know kissingerian um yeah, it's forecast, but 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 that that there you have, but you know there you have it. Well, you know, it's I don't want to say too much for obvious reasons, but if there ever is a clear indication of a war with China or any kind of direct NATO intervention into Ukraine, either of those things bring up the need for the self-preservation instinct for humans to kick in and have some kind of direct intervention to their own government. And uh, that's as far as I'll go on that topic. But I think at some point... Are you, gonna, are you leading a revolutionary insurgency? Is that what you're hinting at? Um, <laughs> what I would say is that if they get us into a war with a nuclear nation, I would rethink my morals about uh, what... Yeah, what it, I think what that would be obligatory. In, ...in terms of uh, what, what is actually necessary in terms of being a citizen of a nuclear-armed country. You know, these things are bad enough when it's just, you know, a couple 20 million young men slaughtered on a battlefield. But we can't really play like this when there's nukes involved. And think about this. 
like obviously the World War II analogies are so cliched and so superficial when they are invoked, you know, 99% of the time, but there really are some analogies that are worth being mindful of. Whatever opposition you think has coalesced today with regard to the policy status quo, whether it's in Ukraine or, or, or China, but even just, even just leave it with Ukraine, it's dwarfed by the opposition that was readily apparent within the Congress, within the general public, and within the media toward the lurch toward war from 1939 to 19, to December 1941 in the U.S. I mean, there was more opposition then to the transition into a global war posture than there is now. Yeah. And World War II is seen as this, you know, fairy tale emblem of what a good war is and will always be for the rest of time. Right. So, I mean, what is that? That's a, that's a proportionality to, I think, be cognizant of in terms of like what is possible and like what is capable of being pushed back on. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's worthwhile context. But I think so many people have been kind of, you know, instilled with this fantasy version of what happened in that period that they just assume that all you need to know about World War II is that Hitler annexed the Sudetenland and then invaded Poland and then, you know, voila, the U.S. is all of a sudden, you know, (laughs) a multi-front, you know, conflagration with Japan and Germany. And Italy and then drops a nuclear bomb. I mean, no, I mean, there were lots of contingencies and lots of absurdities that led to that point um, that, ri- that, you know, maybe aren't really appreciated now, but do rival and probably even exceed some of these absurdities that you're pointing out today in terms of like just the basic irrationality of what the trajectory seems to be on, you know, multiple fronts here. Yeah, you'd hope self-preservation instincts would kick in over ideological fervor for the people involved. But if that doesn't happen, then maybe someone else needs to do it for them because that's <laughs> not acceptable to go to war with a nuclear-armed country. I don't care what anyone says. It's not something that can be tolerated. It's, it's, I don't know why that's even a question in, in anyone's mind. Well, and, good luck and- explaining to Republicans why they should sap their emotional fervor around China. Um, good luck explaining to Democrats why uh, Putin doesn't need to be defeated at all costs. And good luck explaining to just the convergence of those two as to why this synergy that they're increasingly reacting to between those two powers is not something that they should be willing to like stake the fate of human civilization on. Um, and you know, please report back to me about what inroads you make. Probably not much. You're right. Last time in World War II, they had the benefit of having fought World War One just before, and literally a direct memory of that. And the, the biggest battles we fought are in Vietnam, and that was sixty thousand people dead. That's nothing. That's nothing. It's, and it's World nothing War II was like universally understood, cross ideologically, to have been a gigantic blunder and ridiculous, and needs to, and, and needed mm. to be avoided at all costs. And it was One, a living yeah. memory for people, including veterans. Now we have no living memory of anything that could be an apt precedent for what we appear to be, you know, 
I don't even say sleepwalking anymore because I think the people in power <laughs> it's, it's are wide awake. I mean, they're not. It would be better if they were drowsy because maybe that would maybe be. They're, uh, yeah. yeah, they're they're on Ambien. Maybe they're sleepwalking in the Ambien and like a hazy kind of conscious, but not really. Kind of in a yeah. fantasy land mostly. Um, that's basically the state they're in, I guess. The only hope is for that other that guy who was a caller, uh, you know, a couple of people ago to execute the plan that he's apparently working on to, you know, um, airdrop uh, psilocybin mushrooms to strategic locations in, like, Odessa and Washington, D.C. and Kiev and Moscow and Beijing and Taipei and wherever the hell's the, the hell else they need to be because uh, that could be the Hail Mary. I guess. I, I don't know. It's, it's all beyond me, I guess. I, I guess I'm too simple for these complex thoughts about how we need to go to war with nuclear armed countries. And, uh, you know, may, my only idea I actually have, and I've had this idea for a while is maybe it's worth an effort that if we pass some kind of a draft that drafts the direct family members of anyone in Congress or Senate, you could work with exactly who, but anytime, you know, U S troops are sent into combat, actually into combat, maybe they should, uh, initiate a draft where the family members of these people are drafted. I've had that idea for a while, but I don't know if it would even Well, that was, a, that was an idea that was toyed with by mostly Democrats. I remember John Conyers, maybe it was, who, was, who would introduce bills during the Iraq War for, you know, for every legislative session, calling to reinstitute the draft on very similar grounds in that like it would you know, put more skin in the game, not because he was necessarily actively advocating for the draft to be initiated and for there to be mass conscription, but because it would, you know, bring the Iraq war out, out of this kind of uh, compartmentalized uh, right. you know, domain and, and get people to think more seriously about the, the ramifications of, of the policy. I guess I would just say be careful what you wish for because there's no well, guarantee that they won't actually yeah. initiate the draft for real. No, I think uh, I would my, my draft targeted specifically at Congress because, you know, it's like I don't think the people have that much of a say over it anyway. Because unless You think Congress is going to enact a bill to conscript their own children at the top of the no, line? Hell no, but if I could snap my fingers, that would be one of the things that would happen for sure. Because then at least maybe, you know, 20% of them would think about their family or something like that. Maybe that number's too high, but... Yeah, I, not for the people. Obviously, they could draft people, and you know they did it in Vietnam, and they started shooting people that were protesting. So that's basically what it would take to stop that. <laughs> or uh, you gotta have some Buddhist monks go to like Warsaw and uh, Paris and up. London and light themselves on fire, and maybe that'll jigger people yeah. and out of into their senses but anyway andrew let's let's wrap it up i i i, I don't know what has got, gotten over me over the past like month where i'm doing these insane marathon call-in sessions but what can i say i'm a weird person and i derive perverse enjoyment from it i'm sure it's good for your mental health thanks for your time oh absolutely all right thanks andrew thanks everybody who bizarrely stuck around for this long um like i Mentioned before, uh, people seem to have particularly enjoyed this call-in session. Maybe not the point where it was just me monologuing after uh, Richard departed, but if you uh, tuned in late, I would at least, uh, for the first time, I'm recommending that you would listen to the first like hour and a half or two hours or so because it's gotten uh, unusually rave, rave reviews. And 
Nothing I do really should ever receive a rave review, so you know this is a special circumstance. All right, take care.